Oh, brother. <laughs> well, this is Tom from Third Rail Design Lab. This is Blake Simmons, replicant at large in Citizens United. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> Citizens United. And it's time to release the Kraken. You're not really a member of Citizens United, are you? No, I can't be. I'm not a company. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, oh, so, so here see, we are. Yes. There we go. Again, so, get comments from the peanut gallery. I was going to say, uh, once again, we have a recording session with a with a Greek chorus. Yep, we have a Greek chorus, the Corral, joining us. <laughs> Soon to be throwing up Greek yogurt, no doubt. Yep. Um, so here we are. This is the Robot Kraken podcast, and uh, it is sometime in October. And it's the two of us while uh, Chris is away. So uh, before we dive into our ways and means, we, we should do a Sucking the Monkey segment, man. Do you recall what that is? Yes, I do. It involves what we're drinking and what we plan to drink. What are you drinking? I am drinking uh, Gatorade. Because I'm still recovering from my illness. Oh, that's right. You poisoned yeah. yourself terribly. Right. Okay. Um, I'm having pretty much the same thing, it, except it's a, it's a rum and coke in a sweet Blade Runner whiskey glass. Mm, nice. You might know something I, about that. I do know something about that. And I do have, within reach, the Blade Runner 2049 Special Edition Johnny Walker Black oh. label version whiskey. Right there. Just in front of me, just to be my motivation for tonight. <laughs> while you while you violently suffer from massive <laughs> internal hemorrhaging, you you have to have goals in life, and you know aspiration and ideals still count. <laughs> so, By the way, everyone, if you have any questions about where to go get said uh, bottles, I found them at Bevmo. Believe it or not. So if you're in doubt and you're in desperation, looking online because there are no Bevmo. Uh, links out there just call them up and go get it because it is uh well and they it only is, have a, it is well worth it they only have a couple of uh only a couple of bottles at each location right it's a that, it's it's quite correct. astounding that they have them if you go online they're selling internationally for large sums yep. and if you go to specialty liquor places they don't have any so it's correct. so random that that bevmo even has them when you told me that earlier today i said the hell you say and you were honest you were being straight with me and you got not one, but two. Yep. One my for pal. you, one for moi. My pal. And, <clears throat> and I proved it with the photo. I couldn't believe it either. <laughs> it, seems like, it seems like Johnny Walker crafted a bargain with the devil. And in, in the EU, they're doing it with Amazon. And in America, they're doing it with Bevmo. So there you go, folks. There's your little red hot <laughs> ticket item. Go buy your limited edition bottles at Bevmo. Here's, here's one problem. It's Johnny Walker. But it's a sweet bottle, right? Oh, I've already told you my intent. I, I plan to <laughs> pour the Johnny Walker down the toilet and fill it with a, a bourbon of my choosing and just claim credit for the bottle. How good it tastes when people can't believe it's Johnny Walker. <laughs> There's three, at least 331 of our 333 listeners were outraged just now, <laughs> slamming their fists, their cy- slamming their cyber fists on the table at the thought of you pouring out Johnny Walker Black when obviously the clear choice is to barbecue with it. Gotta make some marinades. Mm, I wouldn't insult barbecue like that. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> All right then. So it's been a tumultuous week uh, with mm. um, devis- uh, sort of emotionally devastating politics 
and uh, raging out of control, multiple forest fires surrounding us and just to the north of us here in the Bay Area, 0% contained and massive internal distress on your end. And my spine has been like a like a failed Jenga of broken teacups. So it's been a it's been a week. However, however, not to make light of the trials and tribulations of our friends to the north and the majority of our country in the free world if things continue the way they're going one salve one sweet sweet salve was the fact that we got to see blade runner last thursday night yep opening night and it's been i've just been on this free base like sort of like i'm riding the fumes of it all the way till now and it's astonishing. I don't. I, I'm trying to remember if there was another movie that I've seen in recent memory where it stuck with me so much for so long that I felt like I was still in the theater days later. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh yeah, I, I still. I'm still having uh, flashbacks with uh, certain scenes that uh, still just left me agape. So uh, yeah, we'll, we'll just we'll just save it. I like I said in my social media posts. I thought this was the best sci-fi movie I've seen in the past 10 years. And it's hands down. It's not even close. Uh, So I feel like maybe the hype around the hype around force awakens. And then my personal satisfaction about rogue one are probably the most recent times that I felt this sort of jazzed aft like that more, more so rogue one, I think than force awakens. Cause that was just more the general hysteria that there was more star Wars, but like rogue one felt more like the kind of star Wars movie I wanted to see. And so I remember coming out of that and for several days thinking about it. And I also remember feeling this way about interstellar, like mm-hmm. although interstellar had some really, I mean, this movie was not, not flawed, but interstellar was one where it's like, don't think just enjoy. And yeah, uh, and one I think one common ground besides the fact that they were both visual visually spectacular and had incredible set design and cinematography was that they both had intense uh, Hans Zimmer soundtracks, <laughs> which I could then throw in the truck and keep going. Right, so maybe that's part of it. But yeah, just uh, yeah, I, I I feel like some people complain the movie was too long, and I I complain it was too short. So. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, I thought it could have been extended into a trilogy. <laughs> so, but, yeah. So what do we do? So we went to uh, we went to our preferred theater, the Alamo Draft House, and we grabbed opening night tickets, which of which there were only two rounds available, like ten forty five and eleven forty five. And when they released the tickets the 1045 showing got gobbled up pretty quickly and except for like the perimeter and you, you want to be front and center and something like this. Right. So we went for the 1145 mm-hmm. showing on a school night. And part of the urgency was that I felt like at any minute I could be summoned off to a faraway land for work. And I did not want to be stuck two or three weeks out before I could see this movie properly. So we had to strike while the iron was hot at the mm-hmm. time we made the, the reservations. I didn't know if I would still be here at this, you know, at the time it actually came out like a week later. Um, and sure enough, I was still here and we were able to do it and not being in our twenties, we knew it was going to be, <laughs> it was going to be a harrowing next day, <laughs> mm-hmm. but, uh, yeah, so we, and so we met a little bit before and then we went into the theater and we saw it. And so we got out of there just before three and I was at home in, in bed or on the couch at like three thirty, thinking about how I was going to get up in two hours. And then you didn't even have that long. Right. Mm-hmm. There's like a 45 minutes to an hour. Oh, God. 
So yeah, the whole next day I was just sort of the walking dead. But I was smiling the entire time, so mm-hmm. I didn't care. On the way home from the theater, coming over Franklin, so I went over the hump, and now I'm I was descending down uh, towards the marina in San Francisco, right? And there were two other there was two other cars on the road with me. There was like two Ubers, and then there was a police car off to the left. And as we came over the hump, he flashed his lights. You know, he turned his lights on. I thought, okay, he's going to pull one or all of us over to check us out because it's three in the morning. And then he put his flood floodlight on, right? So of course I'm thinking, all right, time to pull over. But then he actually sends it over to the left, where to his side of the street, and starts shining it on the sidewalk. And as we all kind of slowed down and rolled closer and looked, he was tracking the biggest wolfoyote I've seen. <laughs> well, if not the biggest, the second biggest wolfoyote I've seen. You know, not the skinny little coyote legs, like big. And it was just trotting along the sidewalk on Franklin. And I kind of kept pace with the police car for about a half block because I was just kind of astonished at what it looked like in the spotlight of their flood. And at one point, it just stopped and was just looking at them. And I thought, God, that was surreal. At three in the morning, blasting yes. blasting Blade Runner music. Yes, of course. Was it real? Was it not real? <laughs> Who can say? <laughs> but it was, it was weird. All right. So I think you could say that there was some... Uh, there are big, big shoes to fill a lot of anticipation and a lot of doubt about whether this project could be pulled off in, even in these last three years leading up to them making this real as they, as they threatened to do it the way they threatened to do Neuromancer, right? Same uh-huh. guy, same guy, I think, right? Isn't uh-huh. Villeneuve attached to Neuromancer as well? He was. Yeah. Oh, uh, he was. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know if it's, if it's going to happen or not. Well, but anyway, even as it started to become real, even and before the first trailers, you know, almost everyone who's a fan of Blade Runner thought this is the answer to the unasked question, right? This is no way this is going to be good. And then those first trailers came out, and we're like, well, it starts to, it sure looks like Blade Runner, and he has a great track record, particularly with the arrival and in some other stuff. And I, and we thought, okay, you know, we're going to choose, you and I both had the attitude, we're going to choose to love it, right? We're going to go in and be positive about it. Um, Boy, did it blow my expectations out of the water! Yeah, it was a it was a stunning coup. I'll I'll put it there. Yeah, um, I think so. I I feel like we should just basically say that this discussion is entirely spoilery because what's the point of doing a non spoilery thing? Um, anybody who's listening to this will have either seen it or can just stop and then pick this up again once they have. Um, before we get into the content, um, I will say I'm surprised that the the halcyon glow of this, in my mind, doesn't seem to have carried on to some of the people that I talked to. Um, I've heard from people that it was too long, that it was a very um, um, like a very precious plot that was too convenient. Someone else, one of uh, one of one of uh, Chris's friends, was saying that it was it was even more misogynistic than the first film, and it was this whole misogynistic wet dream and all this and and uh and i even saw complaints huh? about uh-huh and i even saw complaints about the huh? music and so i was a little surprised because you and i came out of there thinking like holy shit man <laughs> well you know so, it, it just goes to show that uh opinions are like potholes there are a lot there are a lot of them in new york or what they're, they're everywhere, and uh, you wish they would just go away. <laughs> except, except for my pothole, I guess. <laughs> well, that's the, that's the other thing. 
So plot-wise, uh, this movie picks up uh, 30 years after the first, right? Mm-hmm. 30 years. And there were three pre, pre-sequel bits of content that were put out, sort of like they did with Alien Covenant. Did you get to see any of them before you went in? No, I did not. I didn't. I I, I intentionally stayed away from all. Oh, of that's those. interesting. And did you see them now? Nope. Mm. Well, the first one. I don't have time. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> who does? Who, who, who? And then again, who does? <laughs> that was my gaff. You hear that? All right. That was so, nice. Uh, yeah. So the first one was actually my favorite one, which was, uh, I think it was like the 2030s or something, and it's an introduction to Neander, Neander Wallace coming into some little, uh, little cabal of decision makers to petition the right to start making replicants again after their ban. And I don't know what body of, or institution they were in. And, but he just comes in. I don't want to go into the details about what he does, but he basically has a replicant with him and describes what he's done differently than, than the Tyrell models ever did and so forth. Um, it's possible that he had as much screen time in that promo in that sort of little mini film than he did in the actual movie, which really surprised me. But um, I'm not complaining, though, because... Um, I mean, I'm complaining at not having enough of him, but I actually really liked his performance as Neander Wallace. Um, and uh, and this little uh, this little short film really uh, sort of <clears throat> primed the pump for his, his delivery and his cadence and how he was going to act about it. Mm-hmm. And then the second one was a, fo- a focus on... Uh, Sapper Morton, played by uh, Dave Bautista, just showing a little slice of his life before he gets detected or gets on the map and then eventually gets in the crosshairs of K. So it was unnecessary. It's done by Ridley Scott's son, Luke Scott, and it slavishly tries to mimic the look of the original movie, but it doesn't quite have the same gravitas as Ridley Scott's work and certainly not of what... uh, uh, Villeneuve did in the full film and it doesn't tell you anything that you really need to know uh, so if, if if of the three I felt that was the weakest one and then the final one is an anime um, by uh, um, I think it's Watanabe or something he's got, he's got a, a pretty long pedigree of, of, a, of accomplishments in the anime world and he so that studio did a short showing the terrorist attack that the replicants um, I guess a bunch of Nexus 8s did uh, simultaneous attacks on data centers all over the world to bomb out the um, records of replicants as well as other things. The brownout. And, yeah, right. And Or, yeah, the great blackout, as they called it. And so it was interesting in that, if nothing else, it was actually well done. Um, it's a little bit uneven in its production, but it's it's well done. It feels atmospherically on, on point. And then also, it was interesting in that it... it um, addressed one of my questions in stories like this, which was they, they referenced that they were doing these attacks simultaneously on multiple sites. And that, cause I wondered, you know, these stories are sort of like these islands on the land, right? Like, Oh, we're going to do a, we're going to, we're going to bomb out this building and it's going to like take out the entire, you know, all the, all the information that's all over the planet and off world. But what they did was it was a targeted strike on multiple installations. The idea being that they break down that, that information infrastructure and that sets up the stage for the movie that we saw. Um, it's worth seeing. Uh, none of the three were necessary, but I think the first and third added to the, added to the tone of the final picture in a way that I was surprised by because usually that extra content doesn't 
to me feels very superfluous. Like Alien Covenant stuff didn't feel necessary. It just felt like outtakes or trimmed stuff from the proper film. And then these, they did not. So anyway, so that's the stuff that happened before. And then we get into the film. And so I guess very loosely, we're following the... Um, we're following the path of a Blade Runner named Kay, played by Ryan Gosling, who's hunting down uh, hidden old Nexus 8s, which are the A model after the Nexus 6s that we saw in the original Blade Runner. Um, and the and he's working for the police, as as before. Um, and we are, we are confronted immediately with confirmation that he's a replicant. Right? Which I thought was really surprising. It took me completely by surprise. What about you? Well, I think it, it also is going to poke some... I, to me, it pokes some holes on one of your favorite theories about Blade Runner. But, hey, go for it. No, no. Wait. So, we don't have to be structured. Tell me what you mean. No, no, no. I, because... The, no, I think we'll get to it uh, down the line. We'll just deal with it then. Okay. But I think, I think the honesty with which they <clears throat> address this really up front is... Um, it, it actually eliminated some of the plot lines downstream that could have been really infuriating if they hadn't. Right. So, I well, but it was an interesting, you know, th- looking at the, the, the issue of, you know, answering this unasked question about what to make out of a Blade Runner movie other than just doing it again. Mm-hmm. Um, how to, how to, how to tread the same ground in very familiar and interesting ways, but how to take a new twist on it. It was fun to be watching from a replicant's point of view and, you know, after the original Blade Runner in the time, in the years and decades since, you know, I have imagined how it would have been an interesting story if told from the replicant's perspective. Mm-hmm. This was interesting that it's being told from a replicant's perspective, but the replicant is a Blade Runner and they don't shy. And it's not just like one of those points like, oh, I'm a Blade Runner or I'm a replicant. And so, you know, that's that's just my deal. He's ostracized on the force. People are calling him skin job to his face. Yeah. Uh, he's known in the department and uh, prejudice against. And that was, it's really interesting to watch him um, navigate that while trying to do his job. Mm -hmm. Now there was some, and it it brings up a whole host of issues and similarities to, um, Oh, I don't know. Indentured servitude and uh, slavery and all sorts of things that, uh, and the, the original Blade Runner kind of addressed on the side, but didn't hit head on in the way that, this one did like the shunning in the offices, the different looks. He would never look anybody in the eye walking down the hallway. Uh, I thought it was. This is pretty brilliant. Jim Crow, right? This yeah. Was sort of post-slavery. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree with you. I think I never really um, took the first film to be a, um, an analog uh, on the. Um, I never took it to be a cipher rather for the. Um, uh, you know, ethnic prejudice and these sort of issues. I I took it much more on face value at the time. I mean, going beyond the action stuff, but the thematically, I thought hmm. it was just about the nature of of sentience and consciousness and identity and you know what's human. And this one felt much more um, rooted in the issues of the day. And that could just be because I was younger during the original Blade Runner's airing, and I just wasn't as aware of those issues in 
society the way I am now. But they're particularly prevalent now because it's it's reared its ugly head all over the place in the United States and worldwide that people are judged and prejudiced against and feared and feared based on what they may or may not be in nominally and has nothing to do with whether they're human. So, yeah, I've, I I took it quite differently this time around. So yeah, you, the, the first ahead. time I because to me it was the whole there was the what how human is is human and what is more human than human, and then also the fact that the replicants were all used off world is kind of the the um, sacrificial anode of human exploration and economy. I I to me it was I had a much different reaction to the original one uh, maybe because I was a little bit older, but. Um, I saw the the allegories and metaphors to slavery very early on from that, as well oh, as the more human than than human, how human can you be and still you know trigger it, and then um, how can you fake out being a human? The whole AI thing, right? Well, um, I, but I remember when I was younger. I mean, you, we're you know we have a few years between us, but we're of the same generation, and I remember in in the initial viewing and then all the subsequent viewings. Um, I never felt, I never felt a pang of guilt or shame about what he was doing to them as he is coming to grips with the fact that he is just murdering people (laughs) and, uh, you know, developing feelings for one replicant, making him realize the fallacy of, of, of his, that whole structure that he had, had bought into and what he was doing. You know, growing up, I saw I kind of took what he was doing for at face value um, in the way that any sort of, you know, you know, I don't know, sci fi lover, gamer type kid around that age would be like, you know, I could just follow the linear path of, you know, there's the target, take him out and 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 oh, they're in camouflage. You got to you got to suss him out and get him. It was only as I got older that I started looking at it going, wow, man, you know every single thing he does is painful when you start looking at it from, from a, a little bit more mature perspective. Yeah. And, and I, and his whole, um, the reason why he retired, they had to call him back, how difficult he dealt with every death. I mean, he did his job, but he didn't like his job and he felt guilty about it. And that, at least that, that was my read of it all yeah. the way. Yeah. Um, so why not? So why not create a replicant that can do the job without a conscience? <laughs> that's and and that's that's one of the things I found very different is that um, and you get it very early on that first scene with uh, Sapper with Dave Batista and uh, there was no remorse or guilt in any of that to me. I thought that was a much different interaction than um, the original Blade Runner with the replicants versus the Blade Runners. So here's some interesting things. One, uh, do you believe that he was programmed not to uh, resist or challenge or rise against uh, members of law enforcement? Absolutely. Okay. Um, Not just his captain's commands, but anybody in law enforcement. I think any human. Interesting. Huh. I, I, th- I think that the conditioning. So, what was what I also found very interesting about this one is the the conditioning and the imprinting and the verification that they they had on the uh, on them this time around, which you didn't see at all in the original movie. Okay, yeah, 
Right. Do you, well, and I want to talk about that more, but yeah. do you, so you think that he was programmed or conditioned rather, because it, it became more and more clear in this viewing versus even previous viewings of the original Blade Runner that we're talking about um, a manufactured biological entity that other than the vague increased strength and resistance to um, pain and injury uh, or extended endurance, um, they're not rep- they're not um, showcasing any other uh, um, enhancements that would suggest the you know the whole android thing. They really are just artificial humans, which I love. Right, right. But so it's really conditioning that we're talking about. There's nothing about. So I mean, if these are and and it gets a little fuzzy as they go into the primary um, you know um, pl- plot twist, but you know they are they are in all intents and purposes they are just artificially generated uh humans yeah they're and bad so, people they're bad people they're bad but people to- so in that sense he's being conditioned in a way that a human could be conditioned there's nothing about his behavior that uh, at, at his state at his stage of replicant i, I think that's an open-ended question and i think it's going to be up to your own personal belief system about what makes a soul, what makes a human a human, whether the comp would work uh, in this circumstance, whether you could actually turn a human into a replicant well, I think or vice very, versa. I think it's really right? fascinating because he, yeah, because yeah. We, we've had these, so they never define what, what model he is. And they actually really don't define any of the models of the active replicants on screen. But we know that the Nexus sixes were the, the uh, short lifespan burner. Roy Batty. The Roy yeah, Batty, the Roy Batty, and the pleasure models and all that—they are the burners. They are the 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 hot and fast. Use them up and throw them out. Off-world labor and slaves and whatever. Right, right. And then and, and then you probably think right. And then you think Rachel's probably a Nexus Eight. Well, right? I think I thought he, she was a Nexus Seven. Could be. She could be a Nexus Eight. She'll be a Nexus Eight. I don't know why they don't have any odd number generations, but it seems to be. Well, we don't know if they do or don't. Right. Well. Because, you think they'd come up in the vernacular at least once? Well, they did a Nexus Six. Then we know Nexus Eights are the uh, un, um, no defined lifespan can age normally. But if they go off of deviation in their conditioning, they get terminated on the spot. Right, but that's that's fear of breaking. That's like what uh, um, what the police captain was saying. Uh, that was the fear of the tipping point. Right. Mm-hmm. They're they're taking them out because they can't have them do anything except be. Um, obedient servants, Correct. but there's nothing else. But but by all intents and purposes, the Nexus Eights are are um, are the. My interpretation was the Nexus Eight was the most artificial human of the replicants. That's the shift. They went from the burner model to the artificial human, natural lifespan, acts like a human, thinks like a human, can think it's a human. And then the Nexus, did they even define the, the, the Wallace era Nexus by number or not? Was that 10 or was it just? They did, I, don't, I didn't recall them ever. Okay. Having. So then there's this next level, which they show this very clearly in, this, in the short film. Uh, that The first short film about Neander Wallace is that his whole argument about them being reintroduced and being legalized is that they are in complete control. That the previous models... All of the, um, all the Tyrell models relied on conditioning and training and whatever, um, but they could go rogue, as we saw, as 
led to the need for Blade Runners in the first place. But his argument was that the Wallace era Nex- Nexus models were completely programmed, hardwired programmed. They could not rebel. They would do anything that they were told to do. And, you know, he basically forces one to do it. And then you even saw that uh, saw that in the actual film when he birthed that one um, female replicant and then disposed of her, which we'll talk about. But um, complete obedience. And that was his selling point for the new ones. They cannot resist, right? And so what I found interesting is trying to figure out where... Um, where K falls into this because he does resist. <laughs> so I feel like he's a, he, you like, like we were saying before, he's either an eight or he's in some, he's somewhere in there. And the only reason to suggest that maybe, um, uh, there is another version, another model number in there was the, the talk about Rachel and whether or not she was unique or a new version because she could, or was designed to possibly be able to biologically procreate. So yeah, but, but we're getting way ahead. We're, we are going all over. All right, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> okay. So, but my my point though is, it's it was interesting in the movie to try to decide where Kay's programming was conditioning, and where it was something he could overcome, which put him closer to the eights that he was retiring. Because, well, but, but wasn't he an eight? That's what I'm saying. If he was an yeah. eight, that's that's even more painful. Oh, but but I think, but you saw his belief system and how far it led him down this path to thinking he was something else that he wasn't. Yeah. Right. Well, and yeah, yeah. So I guess. Right, and so and so I think I think it's one of those other things that replicants can be self-deceiving as well. Right. And they can convince themselves of reality that isn't actually true. And and that was really really an interesting development all the way through that they could actually. <clears throat> but you sense, but you felt right? like he was allowing himself to be delusioned, delusional, or believing Absolutely. in something. He he exhibited Absolutely. the ability to believe in something without empirical evidence, and that's a very and, human trait. But, but, it was but that's delusion. not the same it as was, delusion. No, it was a delusion because it turned out. Remember the very final scene the, I, that I'm not going to get into. <laughs> I'm going to wait it's for fine. it. It's fine, but no, but he goes off the grid on this farcical dream that turns out to be false. Yeah, but that's not delusion. It was. It, was, it, it, was it a, is. It was a classic mind fuck. He well, reached a point where he delusion. What? Which is the definition of delusion? Uh, I don't know. I think that I think that you could argue that um, if there's valid reason, if there's valid uh, sort of circumstantial evidence to to substantiate your conspiracy theory, it makes your conspiracy theory rational. He had, I mean, he had much more uh, empirical evidence on his side to believe that he was following a certain path than than any uh, any other similar story. He had implanted memories, and it was that the question of whether he was he was starting to believe that they were his own or not, and whether he was this this particular individual or not. I thought that was a rational train of thought. What was but, interesting uh, me, was how emotional he was about it and how it shook him so violently to think about how not only could he be something totally different, but that how he was systematically destroying the people that had so desperately worked to make him exist. But up until that point, up until that point, everything was fine. And then he had a cognitive break. But one event that does in, you know... <laughs> <laughs> in the eyes of Wallace, 
or you know the the um, the non eyes of Wallace. <laughs> the, yeah, the non eyes of Wallace. But, but I mean, at that point, he was operating under delusion. Yeah, you think so? Interesting. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, yes, it was implanted memory, but the question is, why did they implant it in him that way? And uh, no, wait. So I think it was like a Hal Nine Thousand moment. You think so? Yeah. So, so okay. I, I, think, I, I think I think they made a I think they made a puppet intentionally to break at a certain point in time when they needed him to, so that he could perform a specific role. And look, it turned out exactly like they wanted. And who's they? Mm, the resistance. So, how would the resistance be involved in his programming? Well, wait. wait I think we should go through the timeline and go through the movie because I think. I think there's some interesting tells, but there's also, but there's also the, the the suggestion that he's not the only one to a he's not the only one to have those memories, and and also b he's not the mm-hmm. only one to think he was mm-hmm. the the person that he is. Mm-hmm. No, I, I I I know the conversation you're talking about, but I think it was more. There's one particular scene, okay, where he goes to visit someone that I think this is a very deliberate act that goes back to where he was farmed at. Interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, why don't you take us through the, the the basic summary of the timeline, and then we'll we'll. Get oh no, no, no! That, that's your job as host, my friend. I don't want to do that. <laughs> I'm having <laughs> trouble remembering. You want to get into the existential? I, okay. All right. Well, it's pretty vague to me. <laughs> it's a haze, but I do. Okay. So the way my mind tracks it is that he uh, retires Sapper Morton played by Dave Bautista, who was hiding out, uh, protein farming. So he was basically just uh, a farmer for the, like these grubs. And, um, which was interesting. I didn't know this at the time I watched it, but I read about it later that this was basically an unused, uh, scene written for the original that mm-hmm. Deckard was supposed to sit around a farmhouse waiting for the farmer to come back in and, <laughs> and, uh, and tend to his soup and then he would take him out. Um, but it was really powerful. <laughs> the whole scene was very yes. powerful and sad and tragic. And it felt very much like, um, very sympathetic for, uh, Sabra Morton, who is this much bigger, powerful, traditionally a scary looking guy. Older um, model. Yeah. <laughs> and you, you definitely feel for him. You feel like he's being assassinated and he was. And then as he's walking around, well, but he volunteered for it. He volunteered for it. Yeah, he did. Yeah. And yeah. then, uh, and then as Kay is leaving, he decides to do another scan and for whatever reason, starts doing a deep scan and discovers there's something buried at the base of this big tree. Uh, and then they come, the drones come and extract it. <clears throat> And uh, oh, and then he digs. It was a flower, wasn't it? That's right. He saw a flower, right? A flower. Yep. And then, and so then, the they extract something, and then also while they're while that's happening, he's fiddle-faddling at the base of the tree, and he finds a carving down at the root um, of a date, and it f- freaks him out. And so then he goes back to the HQ, and he's being, uh, um, uh, what sort of uh. What's the word I, w- I want to say? He was—he's not being not being interrogated, but he's being a de. Uh, what's the word I want? Well, I think he's being—he's having a conditioning debriefed. Check. He's being debriefed yeah. by—he's debriefed by his captain, who was played uh, Lieutenant Joshi, played by Robin Wright, amazingly as usual. Amazingly, yep. Uh, and uh, but first, we also got to see the scene. One of my favorite things in the whole movie, which you referenced earlier, which is this conditioning profile that they go through and do a whole bunch of subliminal messaging and uh, chant and repeat 
sort of chakras and if they're conditioning and they kept saying, go back to your baseline. And it was mm-hmm. total mental conditioning, brainwashing. It was amazing. And it was yeah, so, so the tone of it and the power of it is like so uh, methodical and it was rad. It was so cool. So, so the it. Void, it was the void comp, but it was like the void mind fuck. Well, Okay. So going back to going to that though, so the original Voigt comp was supposedly that they had that the Nexus models had an inability to process certain emotional responses properly and they're involuntary. And it was, of course it's eighties, it's eighties. So it's only so advanced, but that they were playing with the ideas of the time of non, uh, uh, you know, um, no empathy, non, but nonverbal, um, mm-hmm. Uh, uh, autonomous response to things, autonomous response to things. And they were just kind of playing with it and saying, okay, we're going to look at your eye. We're going to look at your, you know, other, other uh, biometrics and see how you respond. And yes, it was supposed to be about entropy or uh, not entropy. It was empathy and their lack of empathy about certain things because, but they never, they never explained to, to what, to what depth that would be, nor did they explain how, Leon's little, uh, uh, little, little Ruger could, uh, or no, it was a Walter PPK could send a guy through <laughs> and his office chair through a wall. But anyway, twice, <laughs> but anyway, well, but I mean, it, it in was this, special, it was well, in this movie, they, they suggest that it's much more about, or it seemed to me that they were suggesting that it was about a limit to their, that Lloyd Kampf was about a limit to their, um, well, I don't know. Maybe I invented that. I, th- I, I felt like it, they were it, saying that Boycomp was a limit to their um, their Im- memory implants, that it could work its way around the memory implants about certain subject matter that they weren't prepared to answer about, and then that would be a thing. And now, but, but, this movie was a handheld. He was just like... Well, but, I, but come on. It was, it was also a state of technology in the cinematic arts at the time, right? And it's sure. okay, so 30 years different. But the Boycomp was amazing. I loved it. I no, wanted no, but, that wait. physical model so much. But but he had to sit in a chair and make eye contact and look at that thing in the wall. Yeah, <clears throat> right. Which to me, I, I think it's just a variant of the Voicomp. It's just more um, brutal and uh, rigorous. No, but Voicomp was about detection, mm-hmm. and the base. No, I and, think and he had a portable Voicomp. He had a portable Voicomp that he used on on uh, Sapper. But the, I think but the, the conditioning thing. thing was a totally different thing. No, I disagree. I think they're the same exact thing. So you think? <laughs> so you think the original Voicomp was or? trigger words? That would no, no, but but they're looking for pattern recognition, looking at baseline responses, looking at deviation from baseline responses, and if you telltale it, then you go away from your baseline That's and you're next. That's interesting. Um, I think it's just a void comp on steroids, which was super rad, and it was especially satisfying when he when he fails it, right? <laughs> because <laughs> you understand why he's 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 transcended by in that moment. He didn't even have the capacity to fake it, right? No, and he knew he was going to fail going into it. Yeah. So anyway, so he's so he talks to his captain, and um, I'm trying to remember. See, that's the problem. The, it, it gets a little choppy for me, man. <laughs> I can't remember if right then and there. Oh yeah, that's right. At that point, she was like, "You did a great job. Here's your credits. Here's yeah. your fee for what you did." And and and, and, and they had a special reward for him because they knew what he wanted. Right, and so that's when he got the the glow oh, stick. He bought it. Of I thought he took his. I thought he took his credits mm, and bought it. I don't. I'll have to go back and check. But either way, he got the glow stick of happiness. Yeah. So he right. So he came back to his apartment, and then we discovered that he's got a um, a holographic 
AI, which was some of the most artful stuff in this whole movie, was the way that they introduced her, Joy, played by Anna de Armas, and how he participated in a voluntary delusion that she was real. Right? He would play along until he was too tired to do it, and then he was emotionally distant from it, and then he would sort of break he would break the game and be like, you know, acknowledge what she was. But it was a really fun layer, a layer cake on the artificial versus real um, sentience that this series has been talking about. Right. So now we have Mm -hmm. a replicant playing with a hologram. I thought it was fascinating. Right. And so he got a stick that allows him to make her portable. And that was a thing because in a way, not only did it make, did it up the ante, it was a narrative device. It was a choice for the plot to allow her to follow him around, but also, it was the free. It was the freedom. It was the free the slave thing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which I thought was, and they, and the way that they build the construct of how she is uh, generated within the apartment versus how the stick emitter um, works was fascinating, and how her responses to it were fascinating. At, at least in my read of the movie, in the first the first viewing, she is a sentient AI. I've read people thinking that she is just a programmed construct the way all versions of her are that are sold to everybody else. But my sense was that she was programmed to be unique and sentient and that each of the joys out there is operating on their own sentience and not just programming. She certainly seemed to, she certainly seemed to act that way. She was very aware of what she was and yet what the kind of role that she was to play. And then, and at first you feel like she's programmed to be the lover, like, Oh, you know, this and this. And then you get the sense that, I mean, I, I began to believe that, she, that she as the holographic AI was really in love with him. And he as the replicant was really in love with her, even though they knew that they were variations on artificial, that it wasn't programming love, but it was genuine love. What do you think? No, I, I think it's a combination avatar AI combination approach i think it's not a general mode i don't think she would interact that way with uh, anybody i think she's personalized to him and so i think there is a tailoring of that i mean obviously i think i mean this is me anthropomorphizing a little bit but i thought it was a lot deeper than just the you know <laughs> your, your your google uh <laughs> home device or an echo uh, type relationship. So it was, um, she's certainly probably initially programmed. Certainly, yeah, yeah. probably, certainly probably is the kind of content that you expect from robot Kraken. She yeah. was, she was presumably programmed at sale to be in love with or obsessed with the, with the, with the, with the buyer or the target. But I felt like that's just the seed. And then from there it's natural, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe not, but it well, seemed like then, it was. And but you don't really see that much of the previous model before he does the upgrade. Yeah, true. So, but I didn't get the sense there was any upgrade other than mobility. Well, we don't know. Yeah. So but anyway, I think, I think the mobility was a key, right? Right. So he took her outside, and she got to experience rain, and there was this whole thing, which is great. And then he gets summoned. That he's got to go. He's got to get on the job again. Why did he get summoned? What was detected? Because they remember? find the skeleton in the box. Ah, okay. They found the skeleton under the tree. And they bring it back, and they're looking at it, and they lay out all the bones. And they determine that... That it's, a, that it's not human. And how did they... Oh, yeah, that's right. Because they kept doing... They did their version. After all the teasing about um, you know, generations uh, aping the 
fucking classic Blade Runner like enhance <laughs> tracking, you know, <laughs> enhance, enhance. I actually, actually, and so I they did a back. version of that, which so was hilarious. I actually wanted to go back and follow the syncopation with uh, Deckard's, you know, zoom in here, here, enlarge. Yeah. And find out if they use the same exact words and numbers well, and coordinates. But they used in, in large instead of yeah. enhance. But it yeah. was very. It was obviously a play or a nod on that same technology, which was super fun. And it was a doubling down because so many people have poked holes at that technology is not making any rational sense. So they doubled down on it, which was really great. Because again, there was no. Was there any reason? There wasn't a whole lot of logical reason for them to di- to dive to the microscopic level on this on these bone fragments. If all they're doing, the, well, I thought to see the barcode. Yeah, but <laughs> why are they looking for a random barcode on a random thing? In fact, it was accidental. He saw a thing, and then he decided to zoom in on it. But you know, normal logic would dictate that they would just look for a DNA sample in the bone structure, and then start checking against their databases of DNA, which they still had a, a number of, and go from there because they're trying to identify the person. It, it wouldn't be immediately obvious the idea that it would be a dead replicant. Well, right? but <clears throat> so I don't know. I guess I. So it was a happy accident that he discovered no, the serial number. I, see, I have a little suspension of disbelief here. I guess I, I think just like when they found this, the snake scale. Yeah. And, they, and they're like, okay, we got to look for the tag. Not right? fish, snake scale. Right. But it's the same thing here. Like, like to me, that it was just so common for replicants and humans to be commingled that. And, and he couldn't. And let's say, let's just presuppose that you can't have a DNA barcode. You can't have anything else that would be there. But you know, I know that's not true. But anyway, um, that it was just it was a second instinct or second nature to look for those identifying marks. But we've never had any indication in the continuity of the story that replicants commingling with humans was a common thing. They were always well, but, for off-world only use. Right. And. He was. She was buried outside a sapper's hut. He was a replicant. It would make sense for them to check if she was. Right. Uh, well, I mean, maybe. Okay, maybe. <laughs> and, and the fact that she that she had evidence of giving birth. That was interesting. But that was the right, whole so point, though. That was that what was so unusual about it. That was what threw the red flag for them, right? Because didn't they discover that she had? that there were signs of a C-section before they determined she was a replicant or after? Well, I don't know, but I, I think the, 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 the nature of it was that here was a replicant. He did something nasty to someone. Yeah. And then they found out it was another replicant who, oh, by the way, was pregnant. Right. And then they figured out that she, that there were signs of a C-section and then they suggested that she had died in birth, giving birth. Right. Yep. Yep. All right. And we got the cool doomed lab tech. And then we, (laughs) and, uh, okay. And so then what happened next? Let's see. So he went back, right? Is that when he went back to the same site again? Yes. And he was looking, cause you're looking for clues of, well, cause the, the, she might be his captain, his captain told him, you got to find this. If this gets out, it's, you know, apocalyptic. If it's a replicant that really gave it, had a baby, this is horrible. If it gets out revolution, revolution. So you got to find the baby and then you got to take care of it. And so he goes back and he's looking around for clues and he goes to the symbolic piano, right? The symbol of, of, uh, of higher level sentience, right? The ability to create art and music, right? So he goes back to the piano, fiddle faddles with it, just like the original movie where they're tickling the keys. Uh, and he finds the thing hidden, the package hidden behind the, the, the piano and opens it up and then he finds photos, right? 
And then let's see. So he, he, finds, he finds that little box. And he, he finds, finds like the box. Yep. And he finds the little. Finds the wooden horse. Horsey. And yep. starts to have a flip out because he remembers the horse. Mm-hmm. And then he has memories of being a kid in a crazy industrial wasteland area, being chased around, and then hiding it in a cloth in a furnace before being cornered by a bunch of bullies. Mm-hmm. So then, was that the point where he goes to meet with Neander, or what? I can't remember. See, that's why I need you to help me, because <laughs> it's it's hazy for me. Yeah, so... Oh, no, so this is where he goes and finds out that he, he goes in and searches the birth records for that year. Oh, right. right. And he had all that really and wonderful then, anachronistic equipment yeah. where he's like, I'll do it. And he just does this manual, like, microfiche search, but he's doing DNA scans or, like, comparing DNA strands and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And then finds out that there's twins that were born on the same day that's... Not twins. He finds no, no, two but, records of identical no, no, the, DNA, the, male yeah, and female. That's but not they're possible. identical DNA, so they had to be... Yeah, so you can, you can call them twins, you can call them whatever. They're, 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 they were identical. And the point uh, was DNA. that he knew something was wrong because even if they were twins, they would have slight deviations in their DNA. Unless they were, yeah. Unless what? Well, to me, I would think that if they were clones, because I think even clones would have mismatches. But anyway. Uh, yeah, cl- clones would have naturally occurring deviations in the DNA Snips. structure. Right, right, right. right. But, but this was this was the exact same record. And only the two boys listed as a Two different yep. entries suggesting that one was a decoy of the other. Yep. And that's when he started to... And then someone... At some point, someone even makes a gender assignment. Someone says that there was... Right? Remember that? No, no, no. The, 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 it comes later when they say that the, the girl was diseased. Ah, yes. Right. But but there was a long, th- there was a long string that what kind of gave him the feeling that it might be him was there was the suggestion that the female wasn't real and that the male was the real one, right? Well, that, 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 that was a double blind switch and bait. Yeah. Bait and switch, right? Yeah. So he starts freaking he, out because he's remembering that he has the memory. He sees that there's some, some sketchy business. So then he, he goes, he goes to the memory doctor. Goes to the memory doctor. Yeah. Who is Neander Wallace's, uh, kept and consultant. Yeah. Yeah. And Esteline, <laughs> whose, whose deal is that she's got a, a genetic rare genetic disease, a rare genetic <laughs> disease. That means she's got to be a boy in the bubble type, a girl in a bubble. And her deal is that Carla Drury was the actress. And her deal is that she's an artist in creating false memories and false constructs through that. And again, it's the nuance, right? It's the details in this movie. They took an analog. They took this really idiosyncratic anachronistic little thing, this weird little 3d, push button thing that she was fiddling with and made that the thing that generates all these artificial constructs was absolutely fascinating to me. But then, but then she also says, and this is important that it's illegal to program replicants with human real memories. What it's, it's a, what was that? It's illegal to program replicants with real memories from humans. Right, 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 right. right. And so that, that leads to that cognitive break, that delusion where Kay thinks he might be Rachel's son. But did you sense at that point? First of all, we had no sense. We had no idea that that she was possibly the the child. Do you oh, think no. that? Uh, no, I at, did at this not. point, at this point, I thought it was Kay. Yeah, and yeah. but but do you think so? Going back in, so going back into the timeline, knowing what we know at the end of the film, 
do you think at the time, do you think that she was deliberately planting her memories to try to break? Did she know that what she was or did she believe she was what she said? I thought I thought she believed her shit. I thought she believed that her parents left off world and she was stuck because of her malady. And so they gave her all the toys in the world to play with and she's stuck in her bubble. Nope. You don't. You don't think she believed that. You think she knew what no, she was. I, I, th- I think she knew all the way who she was, what she was, and why it was important for her to be hidden. Why? Why do you think that? Because I, I think that was all part of the conspiracy that they had to to do that. Because otherwise, why would she place an actual memory from her into K? But if she's an artist, she couldn't help it. No, I thought that was the. I thought the whole no. thing was that she was she was doing what she was doing because she could. But not no. by design. And also, <laughs> so, if she really was, if she knew that she was the first human human replicant or replicant-replicant hybrid and was this incredible thing that was super important that this whole uh, conspiracy was constructed to hide her, why would she work with Neander Wallace to create memories for replicants? Why would she be... I, I love the concept of hiding the, the the you know the the gangsters having a hideout next to the police station, but that makes no sense. No, why why wouldn't she be? They're why wouldn't she be growing no. grubs somewhere? No, it makes complete sense to me. Why you put you you put them where they where you least expect them? But that's a right rat. under your nose. She's the she's the exclusive consultant for doing memory implants on replicants. For that's Wallace, yeah, I know. It's right, perfect. Well. I, my interpretation on it, I disagree with you. My interpretation on okay. it was that she didn't know what she was. No, I think. So, I, yeah. Okay, so he's so he gets confirmation that the memory is real. Is real. It's a real memory. She says yeah. it's a human memory, right? Or no? Right. What did she say? She says she said it's a real memory. It's a real memory. It's not an implanted memory. So he gets all flipped out, and 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 you know some people are down on Ryan Gosling for things. I always think he's pretty watchable, but I thought he was doing the acting of his career in this movie. Even though he's spending the time, a lot of the time he's just walking very slowly through environments that are monochromatic. <laughs> his mm-hmm. the subtlety in which he reacts to things are the things I love the most. His reaction to the slow unraveling of his reality at that moment was amazing. Mm-hmm. And he just yells, fuck, or whatever it was he says. <laughs> like, whatever and it was he, he yelled. chair off and like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was just, it was fascinating to think, this is a guy who's programmed to be really in control. And, and all of the parameters on which his programming is based are falling apart. So he's, mm-hmm. he's completely rudderless, right? I love yeah. that. And then he goes back and he fails his test, right? No. Yeah. He goes and, back he, and he, he says. that he failed the test because he completed his mission in killing the child. Right. Oh, and also, do you think? Remember how? Uh, remember how uh, Joshi was kind of like, "What if I finish this beverage, whatever?" And he's like, "You should go." That was a total like, "Come on." Yeah. Do you think that she had hooked up with him before? Yes. And he couldn't resist it because yes. he's programmed not to. Well, maybe in a sense, making him a pleasure, him, him and any avatar. Well, yeah. making him and any replicant a pleasure model if their owner or their programmed owner requires it. Mm-hmm. Which is a very slavey thing. Okay. Yep. All right. So then at some point, all right. So he, so now he goes to, uh, Wallace because he wants to, he goes to the, he goes to the corporation because he wants to look up records. Right. Oh, wait, wait. So no, no. So the Wallace thing came before all of that. Did it? 
Yeah, I love that. So, the, I love that our our discussion about Blade Runner is partially about reconstructing the three hour movie we saw at three so, in the morning. <laughs> so, so when he first found out that he had orders to kill the kid, right? He goes and visits the headquarters of Neander because he wants to figure out if there's records of who this female replicant right. was that was buried. Right, and that they identify her as Rachel. Right. And then he learns of the ties with Deckard. And there was this wonderful, there's that wonderful construct of the infinite sea of filofax, or not filofax, Dewey Decimal, mm-hmm. like library library cards that the whole, that this oh, incredibly crystals. advanced civilization has reduced, has, what? Well, they had those little crystals too. Oh yeah, but at first it was the sea of, file, of uh, library cards and it was the whole like, you know, post-Roman. Brazil post-Roman Brazil sort of thing and that crazy little dude that was the guy that let him in and and uh, who is he from oh, by yeah. the way I never went to look him up uh, Tomas Lemarquis he's he's from something I've seen him before anyway uh, that's when he about. first meets so that's when Kay first meets Love played by Sylvia Hooks who's a Danish mm-hmm. actress interestingly Danish, just like, uh, just like uh, old Roy Batty himself, Rucker Hauer. Anyway, yep. so of the serious fringe, she looked rad. And so, oh my God, the style in this movie. I mean, I can't even get to the plot without deviating on all this. But okay, so okay, so she sees him and says, here, we're going to help you out everything you can. Here's, here's some fragments of records that we were able to recover from the blackout damage material, whatever. And he hears bits of this... Void discussion. Comp. This yep. void comp test between Deckard, Deckard and, Rachel. and Rachel. Yep. So now it's about trying to figure out where where and what happened to Deckard. Mm-hmm. Now, did we ever see him try to figure out through official records what happened to him? Because he's a Blade Runner, for fuck's sake. No, he did not. No, he just like he skipped right to the end, <clears throat> right? looking around for this guy. We went. Yep. It's implied because he went to see Gaff, and Gaff is a retired Blade Runner. Right. And he, it, Edward James almost is always stupendous. Oh, my God. He even threw in a little city speak, right? Mm-hmm. So, so he put the origami down, and everything I've read suggested that they thought it was a sheep, and that it was just a nod to the book, the book's name, which otherwise has been completely abandoned in this in this um, adaptation, right? They don't they don't really focus on the other than the the thing about the dog and whether the dogs are repi- what dogs artificial or not that. The, the symbolism of artificial animals uh, has not really been touched on in this in this movie world. But everything I've read suggested that they thought the gaff put a sheep down as a nod to the book. I thought it was a unicorn. I thought No, it wasn't a unicorn. I thought it was a bull. I thought it was a unicorn. I thought it was a bull. No, nope, I, I thought it was a unicorn. Suggesting that he, because he had a, it, was, it was broader in the front than in the back, and it had horns. And so I thought he was putting a bull down suggesting that K was wrecking things. He was undoing things and making problems in a bull in the china shop. Like he was causing uh, damage that was going to be unfixable. Um, any of those interpretations work, I guess. But it was Edward James almost doing his shit. So, yeah. Hold on. Um... Are you going to try to find a screen cap? Yeah. Because I'm pretty sure it was unicorn. The same one they left at the end. Of the original movie. When you when you prove yourself wrong, I need you to do a perfect recreation of uh, the the echoey motorcycle sound and the soundtrack of the urban landscape. 
<laughs> Did you find it? No, go ahead. We've got to go on. All right. Anyway, so from there, he says he's hiding and he's hiding where no one would think to find him. Right. That's what he says. Right. Something. Mm-hmm. Like that. And he basically sends him. And it wasn't immediately obvious to me that he was sending him to. No, first he went to the. Wait, 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 wait. I'm confused because he also went to the orphanage. When did that happen? No, that comes after because he. Yeah, that wasn't after he saw Deckard. No, it's, it's it's when he. No, no, no. This is when he goes to the orphanage to find, um. The the horse. Okay. Well, all right. So he goes to the orphanage, sees the records. Because he because that that's where. They said, okay, if you're going to have a replicant baby and you're going to get him lost, you go to one of these farms. Who right? said that? Who said that? I forget. Well, Maybe he... Because I can't Andrew. remember how he came to conclude that he should go look at the one of these big... One of, let alone the specific orphan farm in some fucking giant grain silo somewhere in the middle of nowhere. But he did. And he went there, and he went and forced himself in, and he looked at the record, and he, everything looked really familiar and creeped him out. And he looks at the records, and he discovers that the pages on the day, the pages that would 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 reference the the either the date or whatever it was mm-hmm. of the baby he was looking for had been torn out of the of the book. Right, and the page could never be torn out. Say what? The page could never be torn out. That's what the, the that actor said. The the dude that was running the orphanage. Meaning what? Meaning that it had to be a deliberate, intentional act to do it, and it uh, wasn't him. You mean it couldn't accidentally have happened? Jeez. Well, <laughs> yes. no, I just don't know what you mean. Hey, yeah. sometimes you got to explain your ways and means, okay? <laughs> so, okay. I, so, so you're saying, so you're, you're simply saying that the guy was incredulous that the page had been torn and he didn't understand how it happened. Well, I, to, to me, it just underscores my conspiracy theory that this is all a big thing that Fresa and Sapper were a part of, that they were very deliberate, methodical, and just like Roy Batty had, you know, 10 degrees of freedom on a three-dimensional chessboard while everybody else was playing 2D. Which is your fancy multiple PhD way of saying you think that everyone was engineering him to discover who he was. Exactly. Putting him on play for a specific outcome. Hmm. Okay, so he freaks out some more and he leaves. And then, so then eventually we find him going and seeking Deckard out. Which, despite the marketing, was actually act two and a half or something, or three, which I loved. Um... I didn't immediately acknowledge. I didn't immediately recognize that we were looking at Vegas. I didn't. I, I oh, didn't, really? I didn't understand that about the environment, but I thought it was amazing. And there was the implication that it was post disaster or post apocalyptic. But um, the, I guess the inspiration of this, as I've come to read, was from the 2009 dust storm in Sydney, where everything was coated in this orangish red clay dust, and it stayed, mm-hmm. and they couldn't clean it off, and it was just like this gross thing. And it was very um, powerful and monochromatic in these all these photos that were taken at the time. Even there was an amusement park they had there, right, with these giant heads that were completely covered in this dust. Anyway, what incredible, incredible set design, mm-hmm. that whole sequence. And then you get this, and then so Deckard's holed up in an old casino, which is the most perfect anachronism. Because Blade Runner is anachronism, right? That's what That's what's so wonderful about it. It's like... It's like a modern version of the Jules, Jules, Jules Verne, hello, Jules Verne's science Jules fiction Verne. design. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, his stuff, even at the time, was anachronistic because he was drawing on imagery 
from 30 years behind him, right? In all of the curves and all the Art Nouveau stuff that he was doing. So here it's the same thing. Blade Runner is all about this. Like it's a mod, it's a future world that's been pushed back in time and, and then even has all of these affectations that are way, way earlier than it's, than it could be. Right. The, 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 the record player, that's a hologram and sitting down at the bar and having a drink the way people did 60 years and 70 years before and all this other stuff. So, but the, yeah, some I of the mean, best sequences in the whole like movie. The thousands of bottles. <laughs> all, bro- <laughs> he's, all he's been having is honey and <laughs> honey and whiskey. <laughs> so, uh, some of the most incredible imagery in this whole film were in this whole sequence, and particularly when he's had this. So, before he gets to sit down with Deckard, and he goes to confront him, and they have this little battle and this little chase around. The power gets turned on. But it's been off for a long time, and it was classic Blade Runner, and it was my, one of my favorite things in these kinds of worlds. It's artifacts, right? Just like Joy has, like the large version of Joy, the advertising Joy has all this weird pixelation and ticks and, uh, and 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 horizontal banding in her. Um, I love when the imagery has defects, like in. Matrix when the cat did the, the little the little hop skip and the, the cat jumped forward or whatever and first gave him the clue that something was wrong. I love all the defects in the technology and I think that's incredibly interesting when you talk about the you know hol- holographic projection and virtual reality and all these other things that you, if that the slightest defect is going to throw you way off because that's something that we see now today right the uncanny uncanny valley in animated. Uh, realistic animated material and depth depth and frame rate issues in VR and all that stuff. So I thought it was absolutely fascinating that they're stumbling around through this lounge room uh, and the recording turns on and it's this hologram of Elvis and the backup dancers and the musicians playing, but it's all choppy and it was so violently choppy and distracting and unsettling. I loved it to death. Right? Agreed. And it played with light. It played with sound. It played with texture. And it played with pattern in a way to make you very disoriented. And I thought that was really powerful. Um, reminded me of, once again, my favorite film ever, which is Heat. Uh, at the very end of that film, the final battle is under the flight path of planes taking off and landing in LAX and they're doing this whole thing as under the 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 burn the hard burn of the planes taking off and blasting everything with light and sound and then everyone gets blinded and then it's gone and then it's pitch black for a minute and silent and then the next plane takes off I love that imagery in a tense uh, sort of I don't know stalking scenario between two people I think it was fantastic very powerful yeah I thought it was really brilliant cinematography. And it was also fun that they just kind of reached a point where they're like, do you want to just keep doing this or do you want to just go have a drink? <laughs> that was really, that was fun. Mm-hmm. So what? So they have a drink, so they have a drink and they bullshit a bit and, uh, Harrison Ford, Harrison Ford's about, and then, uh, there was a great line about, is the dog real? And he says, who cares? Ask him, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I loved that this movie did not even attempt to to define whether Deckard was 
a human or a replicant. And we need to talk about that. But they were very in your face about the fact that they weren't going to do it and that you should that the point is not to know. And the point is that it doesn't matter. And they use these other anal- analogs to talk about it, but basically that's what they were doing, and I love that. And so then the so then oh we forgot we I forgot one thing, which is when he lands, uh, he got taken out by that that uh, targeted EMP, which was amazing. I loved it. That whole thing where the sand the sand people of this world shot that shot that thing at the spinner, and then it launched this kite up and and and. and you know, sucked the electricity out of the out of the lower atmosphere and mm-hmm. sparked the spinner and crashed it. That whole thing was so well executed. I just wanted to be a fly in the wall in the design lab that was coming up with these concepts for that. It was beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful cyberpunk bullshit, right? Yeah. And then there was the orbital drone striking of all those targets so that he could finish his finish his mission that uh Love was doing. And so then once he's met with Decker and whatever else, then once he's found the guy that they wanted him to find, not the baby, but the guy, she sends in her thugs, which beat the shit out of him, take Decker away. Fresa. Fresa. What? That was her name. Who's Fresa? That's the, re- that's the resistance person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who was also the madam. The madam of the... Yeah, yeah, huh? sorry. Yeah, no, that was love. love. Yeah. But it was weird that Fraser was running was a madam running a bunch of uh, replicant hookers though that whole thing was a little strange and we forgot to talk about the fact that they had one of the one of the coolest parts of this whole movie was that whole thing where uh, Joy overlaid herself on top of a physical being oh, yeah. in order to yeah, give yeah, yeah. him the most real real that he could have which was and then all the again all the artifacts all the errors in the in the in the sink in the sinking up of her and the physical body were fascinating to me absolutely yeah i don't know i don't i could have done without that scene but anyway really why i I, it it wasn't really necessary for anything on the plot line for me but see what i thought was was poignant about it was it showed how desperate joy was to give him something a give him a rock give him something to to make him feel grounded and make him feel real that she was willing to do that to do this and then to do that, to do this, that's the kind of content you get at Robot Crime. And then, but, but, but the but, fact that it wasn't me, quite working. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, that's all. No, I was going to, I was going to say, to me, it would have been a lot better if it would have been, it would have turned out that if she was being manipulated by Neander Wallace and she reached out to, um, well, what's her name, um, Fraser or Mariette, Mackenzie Davis yeah, character, Mariette. and and. Just to get that, the um, the tracker in his bag. Yeah, that's interesting. I so personally, I mean, if if there's any thread in this movie that I could have done without, it's the whole rebellion and the and the fact that there was any there there to Mariette being what she was. The whole tracker, the whole revolution of whatever underground replicants, all that stuff that was never even capitalized on. I didn't need any of it. It would have been an extremely intimate and serviceable story without any of that. She, Mary, mm-hmm. could have simply have been the prostitute that she was presented to be. And in fact, she didn't need to be, a, and, and not being a Mary and not being a replicant at all. Right. Being a human Correct. prostitute, it would have been perfectly yep. fine. Yep. So I didn't need any of that, frankly, three stars. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. So they, so they take Deckard and they take off with him and, the fuck so then did he 
they took Deckard back to Neander. So what was Kay doing at that time? Because Kay didn't just chase right after him. Kay went, Kay had his fever dream where he's wandering around looking at big joys and all that stuff. Right. How did that go? So wait, they took Deckard away, and then what did he do? He flew. Well, he, let's see, hold on. <laughs> Are you looking for like a, like a little synopsis or something? So they track they leave a Valentine cave for dead and destroy Joy's emitter, and then he's oh, rescued right. by Freysa. She crushed love, crushed the emitter, killed yep, his joy, killed his lady love. Yep. And then Freysa bails him out and gives him back and goes after love. So Freysa gives him, gives him the spinner. Yep. Or recovers him, cleans him up, talks to him, tells him, about tells him that he's not the one. Tells him that he's the, not the one. That Stellan is Deckard's daughter. They don't directly say that. They just say that he's not the one, right? Well, yeah. And then, so then he goes, then they say, your mission is kill Deckard. sacrifice the way your family. No, kill Deckard. Yeah, the way these, these original replicants sacrificed everything to keep this baby hidden, you have to sacrifice yourself, or you have to sacrifice Deckard in order to keep his secret hidden. That's what he would want. Mm-hmm. Now, what's interesting about that is he has not yet, at that point, had he had not yet talked to, had he talked to Neanderthals or not? No. Ooh, Deckard at that point? No. Not Deckard, but Kay had. Yes. Okay. And so we have this whole thing where when Wallace gets Deckard in front of him and is pushing his buttons and doing the whole thing he does... The the idea is that he is desperate to get a hold of the technology that was lost, that that Tyrell had barely s- scratched the surface of, which allowed for reproduction with replicants, which would allow him to exponentially increase his production. That was mm-hmm. what it was about, right? Mm-hmm. Which he was do it on his own. Which was odd because he was very wasteful with his replicants in this movie. <laughs> Because he's just killing them left and right. Well, it's but, kind of irritating. No, if, you, but, if, you make, if you make 100,000, I mean, what? Yeah, yeah. What's one or two? What's one or two? I know, I know. But so, okay. So, but what what was interesting to me, and I was a little, I was struggling with it while we were in the theater, is if, if Neander Wallace wants to successfully create replicants that can reproduce, and the wonderful majesty of this, of this miracle that's happened that these replicants or this replicant has created a child is such an incredible thing because it's the one thing that's prevented them from being uh, perpetual as a species, right? Not necessarily human, but the one thing that has meant the difference between their survival and death is their ability to create themselves. Right. Mm -hmm. And if, and if Neander wants to do the same thing and yet this whole rebellion is about keeping them hidden and keeping them from Neander, that means it's all about keeping them from being slaves free babies versus slave babies, right? Mm-hmm. And so the idea that they would say, you have to go kill Deckard so that he can't tell him what? Tell him what? Tell him who his baby is? Deckard doesn't know who his baby is. So yeah, then the only other thing that he has is the threat that he's going to take Deckard off world and and chop him up and find something interesting in his genetic code that allows him to reproduce with a replicant, right? Mm-hmm. Right, it's not the replicant itself. What's that? Provided it's not the replicant itself. R- right. That, that Rachel wasn't the unique thing because no one knows what Rachel was. True. 
sure I remember. But now we're skipping to now we're skipping to the meat of the of both movies. So are you suggesting that you think that Deckard was a replicant? I do not. Okay, I don't think I don't think so either. And I think his story is better if he's not. Yeah. Which is interesting because, you know, with all of the iterations of the first movie and the opinions of Ridley Scott when he was when he was doing it, you know, they were very adamant about the idea that he was and Harrison Ford was adamant about the idea that it made more interesting more nuance in the story if he wasn't it's interesting that they landed even though they were executive produced by Scott it's interesting that they landed in a story that suggests that he was human well Ridley Scott makes lots of mistakes (laughs) (laughs) no but I'm saying Ridley Scott's partially funding this movie right and he's heavily invested in this thing and they're undoing his his, his... I don't know. I mean, uh, I just look at what really did the alien. I don't think he's as brilliant as everybody thinks he is in terms of storyline connectivity. I'm not <laughs> saying he is. I'm saying he's just funded and been involved in the sequel to one of his, you know, one of his foundation films that, look, that seeks look, to look. undo his his principal argument in the in the in the completion of that film, right? I, I don't, I don't necessarily believe that he actually said that. <laughs> he may not even realize what they're getting at in the sequel, to be honest with you. So well, I know. just look what he did to the alien storyline and yeah. he was in charge of all of it. But to give him credit, I like the idea that mm-hmm. he's been floating in the press that the next alien movie will just be about AIs and not about aliens in the first place. I think that's great. Go that direction. <laughs> David's fighting more Davids. That sounds fine to me. I don't need any more oh, no. No? God. Come on. God. That was no. it, the David stuff in Covenant was much more interesting than the alien stuff. Oh, God. No. It was. Yes, but that doesn't mean I like it. <laughs> you mean that's an argument for better alien stuff? <laughs> yes. It doesn't make a doesn't make a replicant movie. It doesn't get your shit together and make a good alien movie. It's all about replicant movies, man. That's official um, canon, right? No, because I think we're getting this weird spot where Ridley is trying to be like Tyrell because he's going to die soon. <laughs> and so he's trying to find a way that he can live forever through a replicant or an android or something. I think it's just every king has his day and then he dies. And just, just, just go. <laughs> I, I really kind of wish so he very brightly, Magneto. <laughs> All right. So anyway, he's sent off. To nominally, they think they've sent him off to kill Deckard. He heads yeah. out and finds. So he's in pursuit. Meanwhile, Deckard's been taken to Neander Wallace again. We get to see his cool magical uh, optical poos that he has that float around and give him some sort. Of, there were so many of them. It really makes me wonder what his HUD was, right? Yeah. And uh, so they have that whole thing, and then the big, the big. Uh, the big top secret reveal was that they generated a Rachel. They, they, bat, they, vat, they, uh, vat grew another Rachel to try to tempt him. And in Canon, it was interesting because, you know, it was tempting and then they got a detail wrong and he's like, fuck you. And then there you go. And then yep. he was willing to just shoot her for no reason. But as a viewer, it was of course interesting just because the, of the trick and the technology employed and, and, you know, 20 years worth of insisting that she should never be anywhere near any competent director ever because she's so crazy. So that was quite a surprise. It was a surprise, but it was a pleasant one. It was super cool. They did an incredible job. I've heard multiple people say that they thought it was uncanny Valley, terrible, 
didn't buy it. I thought it was incredibly convincing. We walked out of there arguing about whether it was CGI overlays on Sean Young or a construct. So they were doing something right. Just, you know, people, again, just <laughs> the whole, oh, no CGI in a sci-fi movie. I mean, really? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> really? So I read about what they did, and apparently they – it's interesting. So she apparently got a, a, a credit in the film, and we were so – or at least I was so uh, overstimulated that I didn't even watch the credits <laughs> – but, but well, it was three o'clock in the morning. I was, was. too tired. It was, but apparently she actually got a credit in the film. But what she did, what they did was they brought her in, and then they found a model or an actor that was close. That was the closest possible to what Sean Young seemed to look like back then, and then they had Sean Young supposedly coach her about mannerism and inflection and movement and all the things that to basically just pillow talk, right? Just this is what I did, blah blah blah, and then. They did a bunch of CGI enhancements on that model to make her look like Rachel in order to make this effect work. So, uh, you know, it, it almost seems like why did they need to have Sean Young there at all? And I'm not sure I really believe the story that she was there. Yeah. I don't well, know. I mean, That's what they said. I, I think she could have gone in to, like, teach him how they walked. But I think, why? I think They got video. I don't know. What do you think choreographers do? There's a certain cachet no. to get into the real thing. No, I think it was if, – if, if it's real, if it's true that they did this, they did it as an olive branch just so that they wouldn't have Sean Young wandering around arguing about why the hell she wasn't involved in the recreation of herself in a movie, right? I don't know. Anyway, it was a powerful scene. It was very evocative. And in fact – Well, because – I mean the, the reason why is because they're trying to capture her youth and she doesn't look like anything in her youth. Well, absolutely. But the fact that they regenerated her – with the the fact that they created a young period Rachel uh, to tempt him was interesting because, at least for me, it worked on me being that I was a younger guy when I saw the movie and she was amazing looking and it was very much like a super. I mean, she was she was dolled up, she was done up in that crazy '30s style. But then when she's in his apartment and then takes her her pins out and everything else, she became a classic Gibson girl, right? With the curly ringlets of hair and then the, the curves of her face and everything. She was a classic Gibson girl. Classic. And it was all about the fantasy, the fantasy female at that moment. She played that in the movie and it was for the viewer. And so it was really interesting that they would go 30 years later and they would generate the period Rachel at that moment. Because everybody who's in the audience who's, who saw the original film is now 30 years older going, holy shit. This is the prom. This is the next level promise of the fantasy of artificial humans and holographic lovers and all this other stuff. Is that you can? It's just like the VR thing. You can go back in time and experience people at whatever age that you want them to be at any time in your life that you were. Right? That time travel component to the to to the imagery. The idea that they would make her young and st- you know that to me was really powerful. I thought that was great. I lost you. Where are you? I'm here. Sorry, I was on mute. I, I guess I I thought of, I kind of took it for granted that it was all about trying to get the Deckard, and they couldn't even get that right. So I <laughs> I liked how they, they they even screwed that up. It was interesting that the, it was interesting that the flaw she would had be green eyes. She had green eyes. It was it was interesting that they would do that because if they were recreating her from some sort of genetic records. 
keeping in mind that this is a civilization that's post-digital, right? They somehow have those records and they recreated her and yet they got the eye color wrong doesn't make any sense. Like plot-wise, it didn't make sense. What if she's wearing contact lenses? <laughs> like I, it would have been just equally as powerful if he were to simply say, you know, it's not her. It's not, you know, she was not the body. She was the soul. She was the person inside that artificial body. You can't just recreate her by recreating the form. I don't know. I didn't need it to be that there was the, the MacGuffin about the eye color. But anyway, it was it was a cool scene. And it was shocking when they took care of it. They shot the replicant to show how disposable they are to him. And then what? They threatened to take him off world and, and the whole thing. And then so then he's, he's, he's dragged off into a shuttle. And Love has taken him presumably to a launch pad or something. And that's when Kay shows up. And they have that final battle at the seawall, which was very powerful and scary because of drowning and the the uh, symbolism of the of the powerful forces of nature against all this technology. Right, that was very cool. Um, and he, what K drowns her. He's been stabbed. He's been shot. He's been beat to shit. And he rescues Deckard and then takes him back to the memory artist who is his actual daughter lets her go in and lets him go in to talk to the daughter. And then he lays down on the stairs and seems and to pulls die. a rucker pulls seems to die. Doesn't seem I've talked to, se- I believe he died. I've talked to several people who think he's, well, you know, he's probably not dead. Like, you what need are you to talking talk about to different people. You talk to morons. <laughs> Don't say that. Those are our faithful listeners. <laughs> Many people took the imp- had the impression that because he was artificial that he was not truly dead. Well, he had a wound he could walk and fight with. No, no. He was pale. He wasn't even bleeding out anymore. He was just completely wasted away at that point. I thought he was totally dead. No, he was dead. He was super dead, right? Dead. Not just dead. He was super dead. He was cyber he dead. Was dead. No, he was he was he fulfilled his mission. He stayed true to the memory. He did his quest to get them together and then he died. That's just how it goes. <laughs> What's it? More mouth, more, uh, more deep throat singing, heavy. So throughout Vangelis that time, on bath salts, <laughs> jealous on bath salts. So half of that, half of the impression that I had about how powerful this movie was, was that that soundtrack was to 11 in the theater and it was causing the seats to vibrate. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, as it does my Toyota. And, I've I've read even Chris mentioned this to me like wow well, well, they need to adjust their sound because it was way too loud and it was vibrating things and I thought it was really powerful really powerful how physical the music was yeah right and also compared to the original movie the music was dark and ominous and unsettling as opposed to that weird sort of whimsical synthetic uh, sort of almost optimistic the way some of the Vangelis stuff was mm, I don't know when they're flying through the city. The first time I kind of viewed that as depressing. Yeah. Well, and also there's there's smokestacks the downtown. Original, the smokestacks downtown are not a good sign, really. Right. <laughs> so, <clears throat> okay. So I think we na- I think we totally nailed the plot. What did you think? <laughs> what did you think <laughs> about? What was your takeaway about the the themes of the movie? What did you take? What was your takeaway about what? K was experiencing and what K accomplished. Well, just that over time, human nature gets worse. 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> and over time, if there's something to exploit, we will. And if there's if there's more fuck whatever we can do to each other, we will. Um, that that that's the primary tale I got uh, from this movie. That okay, it's been 35 years since um, Blade Runner to Blade Runner 2049, and shit just got worse. Right. And yet, and, at the same time, things did not progress technologically the way you would imagine in 30 years. It's very stuck. Right. Very stagnant. Or or if the, the top 0.1% have gotten that much better and the the 90% that lives down in the trenches is just stuck there. Huh. And um, people can't get off-world fast enough. <laughs> I, thought, I thought the whole... Um, I thought, I thought the whole thing about the pregnancy was interesting from a plot standpoint. I was, I struggled with it a little bit. Like I didn't need any of that in this movie. Right. I, it, it could have been, it could have been entirely about consciousness and self determination and breaking programming. That would have been a completely satisfying movie. But, but it could have been, it, I, to me, it's just a rough, again, just like children of men. Yeah. Right? I didn't, the, which I didn't see. It, it's like, um, the fall of the Roman civilization and the birth of Christianity. And the, I mean, there's a lot of different metaphors you could throw in there and imagery that would reinforce that perspective if you wanted it to. But, um, it was certainly like something that has become so burdensome and so bloated and so corrupt that it's crushing under its own weight. Right. And, uh, eating itself alive, eating itself alive. And then, and then now we have these upstarts that are going to come and, uh, melt it all down. So my perspective on this, uh, and this is the dreaded, uh, you know, par- my parent as a parent, comma. But here's my thing: the whole idea that the that a replicant or replicants could procreate. The reason I thought that was so profound was that among everything in the mortal existence, the most, in my view, as a parent, <laughs> the most profound thing fundamentally that we can do in our lives before we die is procreate. It's a biological construct that we're, 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 we're programmed to do it. But in terms of the way things are important to us, the way our brains work, the way our hormones work, when we create children and I, and this is not to disparage people who don't have kids, but there's a, there's a thing, there's an incredibly intimate, uh, universal thing about raising children or having children, right? It breaks all of the cultural, barriers people from any culture the one thing they'll have in common is the 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 hormones and the motivations and the imperative about procreation and we see that with animals right the 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 cutesy the cutesy biological construct of 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 other types of mammals when they're when they're when they're babies and the way their eyes are shaped and the way other animals will adopt the baby of a different species because it's imperative is what well, looks like a baby in need. I'm going to, I'm going to adopt it. It's a fundamental thing about life, right? It's a, or all right. Some degree of sentient life is the procreation and the taking care of the young. And to me, that's what was really interesting that this was the most dangerous thing that the replicants could have happen. The most dangerous thing for them against humans is procreation because there's no way you can argue that they are, not human, that they are not the same or not valuable if they can raise their own young, which in turn makes all the arguments about racial prejudice, obviously complete garbage, right? Mm -hmm. 
how do you fucking how do, you know how do you argue that that Syrian refugee shouldn't with their baby shouldn't be allowed in, but the Canadian one is allowed in, right? And and of course, I mean it's so fucking obvious if you're of a certain sort of progressive mindset, I guess, or you're basic or you're a basic empathetic empathetic human. But to me, that was what was so powerful about it. I didn't need all that in the story, but since they put it in, that's the mm-hmm. way I interpret it. Yeah. Uh, so what do you want to talk about? You want to talk about set design? Amazing. Amazing. I think, uh, the costume design, amazing. Just the, the entire, at a design level and aesthetic level, it's just freaking gorgeous. The way that it played up on existing designs and then pushed them forward just a little bit was fascinating. I loved his, I really loved his high collar trench coat where it would, the collar's up and then the flap is over. So it's covering his mouth and nose to make him. By doing so, making him less humanoid. I thought that was really cool. I thought it was also just a particle filter. <laughs> yeah, well, it is. But I'm saying visually, visually, it it had the same effect as when characters put on a bakla, uh, balaclava, right? And all you see is their eyes, but you lose all their face, their faces, and so they instantly get dehumanized, right? I thought that was very cool. The whole the whole post apocalyptic uh, dust dust storm Vegas set was amazing. The 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 hotel he's in absolutely amazing. Um, yeah, and, I mean, and, and, but let's talk about let's talk about Harrison Ford. I thought he did a stupendous job. Everybody wants to bang on Ryan Gosling, but everybody forgets some of the acting performances in this. And I still like Ryan. It was just incredible. I think you're right. Um, Harrison Ford gets a bad rap for just being Harrison Ford walking around, right? Uh, but. You know, I thought he was was very vulnerable in this. I thought he was he act, he did an incredible job of com, of slowly disassembling in the third act. Right? He was so hard, and he was the classic guy that we remember. And then he just comes apart, and he's very emotional. I thought it was very powerful. Sorry, I'm speaking on mute again. Yeah, I couldn't agree I more. That. I thought I thought he was. Um he's really had a renaissance and it's really great to see that he's no longer doing these like rom-com BS movies. And, uh, so it was, it, I thought it was just another turn and it's good to see him being able to wrap up on all these storylines. And of course, Deckard is the only one who's still alive. So Blade Runner 2079 coming out. <laughs> Deckard, uh, Deckard actually is a replicant and dominates the world and kills everyone else. I'd like to point out, um, cause I'm using the sweet, sweet, whiskey glass rock glass that we got from mondo and the alamo for blade runner i'm having a beverage in it and i just noticed for the first time that the heavy base to it is fractal have you noticed that so it has this really great nope i will in a minute hold on choppy (laughs) it's like this choppy geometric uh terrain so when you get to the bottom of your drink, you have all these facets that you're looking at, which is really cool. It's like layers to Ridley Scott's soul. <laughs> While you're gone, I felt like I, I, I felt compelled to just do uh, urban motorcycle sounds. <laughs> I think it's really great sounds. We haven't talked about that either. I mean, we talked a little bit about it, but I think that the sound, the soundtrack to this was astounding so powerful oh. and so urgent and just ugh, over just overbearing i loved it and i'm a han zimmer devotee so i was delighted so am I. 
Yeah. And how great is it that Hans Zimmer and Ryan Gosling team up, much like they did in Drive, to create a kick-ass movie? Uh, so he did the soundtrack to Drive? You're on mute. You're no, on no, mute, hold dude. on. I think I'm wrong. You're high, actually. And also, what's up with your muting, dude? I'm getting a lot of amping noise from the dogs and the and the family. Ah, uh, okay. Well, <clears throat> le- don't don't mute because no, Cliff Martinez did for, drive. Sorry, forty five minutes ago you you had a soliloquy that was muted. I just didn't have the heart to tell you. I thought we could uh, we could just like later in no, post I, I know, put I, in I, a bunch I, of uh, Benny Hill stuff or like e- e- like hee haw. Anyway, <laughs> I, I tried did, to did, 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 did. and it just it was just awful. Okay, yeah. but uh, it was a poignant soliloquy too. Yes, it was. I'm sure it was <laughs> profound. Uh, soundtrack's amazing. You, I asked you the next day whether you were listening to it, and you said that you listened to it on your commute, and it made you tense. Yes. Uh, for me, it makes my commute seem very important. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I did though is, uh, and and frankly, this is just an, a, an, a happy accident of the newer iTunes because you used to not be able to do this, but I uh, I went in and edited the meta tags. You used to not be able to do that. So I've changed it so that all of the, <laughs> all like the Elvis and the Sinatra stuff is like volume two, so that it doesn't keep interrupting the ominous, you know, zim- zimmering that I love so much. Yeah, that's my favorite Sinatra tune, by the way. A different version of it, but that's my favorite song from him. So I was delighted. Really, said, okay. they put that in just for me, just for me. So anyway, so. Uh, I'm sure we're going to have more uh, nuance to talk about. Um, hopefully we'll be able to get Chris on here to talk some more about his thoughts on it. And um, we'll have more to say, but I have to say, like you said, the, the most impressive cinematic experience for sci-fi movies in forever. Yeah. For you said 10 time. years. What do you think it what, what do you think the last one was? No. So the, I knew you were going to put me on the spot. So what was so great in 2007? And the point is that, no, I just can't remember anything past 2007. <laughs> that was close. So, uh, uh, yeah, you're, you're one of those guys that throws that. artificial numbers out there. Like I'm 52% certain that was the best movie ever. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, yeah, that's all I got. I don't, I can't say off the tip of my tongue. What was the best sci-fi movie back in 2000 even? So, but I mean, um, it's hard to remember one that was as powerful as this. Other than to me, the the original Star Wars in '77 when I first saw it, right, mm-hmm. and Alien when I first saw that, and Blade Runner, and Blade Runner. But I'm not going to say it was the best movie, best sci-fi movie since Blade Runner, right? Yeah. You know, the the problem I have thinking about it over time is that, uh, you know, certainly people have picked apart aspects of it. You know, it could have been shorter, and it could have done this and that, and we've even talked about. It you know, aspects of the, of the plot or whatever that maybe we could have done without, for me, it was the conspiracy of the, the rebellion of replicants and whatever. But oh. the bottom, the bottom line though, is those things didn't deviate from our enjoyment of it. Mm-hmm. We see movies all the time where they go, they, they go some direction. Think about, okay, here's a good example. Do you remember oblivion? Yes. So Very well. visually arresting, loved it to death was just screaming my dunes throughout the first act and a half. And then they, they suddenly, he suddenly discovers the human resistance or whatever. Yeah. And while I enjoyed the, re, the, the, the twist about what the aliens were using to 
to subjugate humans. And I and I and then I enjoyed the 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 death bot that came down out of the out of the house and was fucking shit up. The bottom line was it was a far more interesting and 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 uh, claustrophobic movie when it was him alone <clears throat> in the bubble of a ship that could also kill him. And then he goes back to his house and he doesn't know who to trust and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. All of the first act and a half of that movie was astounding. And then and then you got into the bringing in the the you know the 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 rest of humanity and then it got less interesting to me and in a way that's sort of how i felt about this how they included in this movie but all oh really said, all hmm. said and done all said and done it didn't change my love of the movie and and on repeat viewings i'm sure i'm going to feel the same way it wasn't like the little tweaks that 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 i would have done differently of negatively affected me the way so many movies we talk about where they go fall off a cliff and I think, ah, oh, the potential was there. Yeah. Just interstellar. Just, uh, well, again, interstellar fell apart in the, in the 99th percent, right. Or like at the very end of the movie, it's like, wait, what? But yeah. the majority of that movie was solid. Right. Yeah. And, and, so and that's what I remember when I think of that movie. Yeah. So now I remember what movie I've, uh, I can index it. To District Nine, Congo, District Nine. Yep, <laughs> not Congo, not Congo. <laughs> District Nine, just District Nine. Did you? Uh, so you felt District Nine was profound. I, I, I just it was such a breath of fresh air it in really the sci-fi was. realm in the time it was made and the in the cinematography of it and the the script writing of it and the breakthrough performance of Charlotte Copley. I thought absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know what? I will always give him uh, give him credit for that movie is uh, it was the first time that daylight tech looked cool, mm-hmm. right? Because to make it look interesting in some sort of ambient natural light is really really hard. Yes, couching stuff in dark in darkness and weird lighting effects and everything else is cool, but to have things walking around in broad daylight never looks right, never. And, and, and the first movie I yeah. can remember where I was like, wow, that just looks totally real. That's that yeah. is just walking around. Well, and, and the, uh, and the shrimpies walking around the prawns, the, yep, prawns, the prawns walking around in day in the meat markets and in the slums. And it's just like, Oh yeah, the, you know, that's, that looks like it's completely plausible. And my, <laughs> in my South pro- Africa, I think my problem <laughs> with it was, it was such a heavy allegory that, and it had to, I mean it was fine it made sense for it to be based on on his on his background and what he was choosing to do but it was the allegory was so heavy <laughs> um but, that but it was the, apartheid that you know, I was like come on yeah, guys but it was very powerful but uh, you know I still it still comes back to what was the whole point of sci-fi I mean it's roots sure. were to take modern day problems and put them in a fantastical setting to drive the points and how wrong things were even more to the core X-Men core. man that's what it right. is yeah uh yeah. So, the, so to so, me, the best sci-fi movie since District Nine. There you go. Now I have a point. I, I wish I wish that Chappie didn't have. Oh don't. Oh God. You had to bring up that abomination. <laughs> I do. So do you think? But so thinking about it, I like I like um, I like those uh, dipshits. What are they called? Uh, <laughs> I like those dipshits. <laughs> Zephside. What are they called? Uh, Die Onward. I like them in concept. I really thought they were a terrible, terrible, terrible choice to introduce to be introduced into this film. If you were to take them out of it, uh, Chappie could have been an interesting film. If I don't know Zev Zappel, whatever his name is, Zev Zeppel, whatever. Uh, I, I really don't like him either. What? 
Oh. Dev Patel. Dev Patel? Yeah. You don't like him? No. Yeah, no, I, I didn't. No. That's what you're talking about. You don't like him. Yeah, I don't like him as an actor. I, I, I don't think he's that good, actually. But that's just probably just me. But okay. But okay. So take him out. The Man Who Knew Infinity. Oh, God. And, and, and take, Lion. Oh, God. And take... Take Diane Tward out, but you if you if you if you leave Hugh Jackman back, in. I just think it all about Hugh Jackman and Hugh Kathy, Jackman in the Kathy shorts. Oliver. Wasn't he in like <laughs> Safari shorts or something in that? It's movie? a Gorney like Weaver. Yeah, oh, he was hilarious. But so Gorney Weaver, Hugh Jackman, and Chappie, it'd be a much better movie. But if but if Chappie had fought, if the if the concept was have him run in with some low level uh, hipster thugs to give him a sense of identity that was incredibly human and and yeah. and, and stylized as a yeah. shocking juxtaposition against his robotic nature. They didn't need to have, uh, you know, these Diane Tward, uh, showboating around. It could have just been stupid thugs. They could have been dumb as paint and it would have been more, more interesting, right? That, that Chappie, who's this like, you know, visionary piece of equipment is being dumbed down by a bunch of idiots playing PlayStation. That would have been mm-hmm. a much more interesting story. Yes. Right? Yes. And but, you could argue I mean, that Diane Tward is pretty dumb, but they weren't, portrayed as dumb <laughs> they were portrayed as well, like protagonists yeah the whole faux father mother thing <laughs> ripped two times over with dev patel and then oh, dick bag one from diane work um i'm just gonna come clean i really just want neil to make district 10 district and 10. just stop dicking around and just get to business <laughs> okay look so have you i know you're a man of no time and yet you have all that time on a plane have you seen the the stuff he's been putting out with the unity engine that i keep sending you and Yes. Direct messaging. Yes, I I I freely admit that there's very little core content there, but visually, holy shit, man, amazing, right? Yeah, Adam the Mirror. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And particularly in the first one, when the when the leaders of the of the released uh, androids or what or uh, cyborgs, I guess come and the, and the one guy's on stilts and the other one is in the big cape with the with the weird mask on and all that i thought that i think that's some of the most arresting imagery that i've seen in years i thought it was absolutely amazing to look at and if you were to put an actual story behind it it would have been fantastic yes yeah, so I, I guess i just how is oats and unity going to work together to make this happen right so all i've seen is like this experimental um right. You know, little forays. Yeah, what's the it. point? What's the point? Uh, right? Are, right, are right. they so, selling so the engine for gaming, the or are they doing a, or proof proof of concept for film? I don't know. Or or even worse, a video game. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. Because I, I won't play a video game. I'm just, I just, oh my god. What is the deal, man? We're just too busy, right? I actually go through the. I actually waste my my time and money. I actually buy the video games, and I put them over by the PlayStation, <laughs> so that they're there, right? Like. It, it's it's depressing to think. I like the idea of playing video games, and I have no time whatsoever to do it. Yeah, see, I don't, I don't even, I don't even make the false attempt to even <laughs> do any of that. Like, dude, you, you come at me with all these TV shows I should watch. I'm like, I, bleh, bleh. yeah. Again, though, you're sitting on a plane the whole time. I have platform compatibility issues. I don't know how to rip things. They anything and bring them with me or do anything like that well the only way i got into house of cards which was a little bit late but the only way i got into it is discovering on the on the flight to switzerland that they had netflix and i was like oh so i so i flipped through and i was going through i was like oh house of cards that looked pretty good and i just freebased the entire show 
yeah. on the way to Switzerland. Yeah. But, uh, anyway, so all right, so that was our United. United isn't up there with your first class tickets to Switzerland. <laughs> I forgot that you fly on the government dime, yeah, but not as the not a member of the government elite, <laughs> which I, fl- fly I fly slided. Private. Yeah, <laughs> slided. You're not part of the government elite that take private uh, private jets to like Omaha. Nope. Nope. <laughs> I love it's the tragic. Perry saying that. Sergeant Perry saying he had to take uh, special flights to the labs because they live in exotic locations. I'm like, dude, I've been to every lab and I've taken a commercial flight everywhere. Or I was going to say, those, <clears throat> those news items must be the best when you read them right before takeoff on a coach flight <laughs> to Washington, D.C. You're like, no, <laughs> I don't think so, man. What a Mauritius. So, okay, so that was Blade Runner. And so let me ask you this, man. Uh, so, uh, what about, what about, what about, let's see, let me think if I can remember what we called the segment. <laughs> That's nice and professional. It's been a while. Uh, uh, well, anyway, the shipyard? No, the shipyard was our art stuff. We had a segment and it had the a name. Bucket. No, and we had a name and it was about the kind of stuff that we're into, what we're watching, what we're planning on watching or reading or whatever. So what's on your short list right now? What are you currently absorbing or planning to absorb? Dude, that's a really good question. So I just finished all the Expanse novels. You son of a bitch. Yeah, so I got all those done. We'll be talking about those then, soon. Yeah, I, dude, I stand totally corrected. I am I am totally blown away by where they took this. Um, Why are you standing corrected? Because you were always a fan. I know, but but I I like the so not in my too distant past. I like the series more than I like the books. Oh, right. We talked about right. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, and gosh. Was I wrong? <laughs> well, you can't be wrong no. if they haven't done it yet. I know, but I'm just like, dude, I don't know how they're going to match us in the series. I literally, I do not know how they we, will. We have a unique problem. Uh, well, not unique. It's, it's a problem among podcasters who talk about nerd shit. But we have this strange problem where we sit down together and have a beer or a, or a refreshing beverage. And then we say, dude. What about X? Oh, we can't talk about it. We should talk about it on the podcast. Yeah, not waste this precious, precious content that we're well, shooting we out of our assholes. About it. Yeah, and uh, and you start to realize why. If you listen to podcasts and stuff, you start to realize why they start doing more and more of the like. We got a mic <laughs> and we're in a bar because they're just like <laughs> like Steel Saunders, who does. He's a he's a comedian out of uh, Australia, and he's a big Star Wars guy, and he does this thing where after each of the Star Wars films or after the big events like the Star Wars conventions and whatnot, Star Wars Force Fridays and whatnot, he he gets he goes and sees it late at night and then he gets a bunch of people together and they go to some bar that will do it and he puts the mic down and they just have a live session afterwards, right? Which, see how ugly how ugly would that have been for us if we'd done that right after Blade Runner well, I was at gonna, four o'clock in the morning. I was gonna say uh we uh so Chris and I saw last time we talked about this in the previous podcast, but uh, after Rose City Comic Con, we had a chance to see Logan Lucky before I had to hop on a plane out of uh, Portland, and it was his second and my first. And we sort of talked about afterwards. We talked about the fact on the way to the airport that if the timing had been different, if we had been able to, and what we keep intending to do during cons uh, is see a movie and then be able to talk about it right then. Like we would have loved to have sat down right after seeing Logan Lucky and just had a recording session about our immediate thoughts about it because we were fired up, right? I was mm-hmm. fired up. He was doubly fired up from his second viewing, but 
Anyway, so so anyway, the point well, was <clears throat> we were we, you and I were in a bar not too long ago. In fact, right before Blade Runner, talking about Expanse without talking about Expanse because we knew we wanted to talk about Expanse on the podcast. So, so we got to do it again, right? So I'm 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 about a third away through the fourth book right now. Okay, so you're right. The the origami uh, from Gaff was an ox or a cow, and they everyone keeps saying sheep. I was right, 100%. It's an ox, and you have to sing the crazy uh, motorcycle. (laughs) 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 All right, so you. So, I mean, so so there's two answers. So, like, in this movie, Gaff lays down a sheep origami, which directly insults Officer K by implying he is like a sheep. Always following orders. No, false. He's and, and also specifically says K is not a Nexus falling. Nine. What? In this little this little blog thing, it says K is a Nexus Nine, built to obey and never rebel. But that's so that would be he was the same generation as the. That would mean that he is a Wallace era Blade Runner. Yeah, he's a love. He's a love, but love never rebelled. She had emotions and feelings and thoughts and frustrations. Correct. Survival instincts, but she never so, rebelled. I, so again, this is why Fresa and the whole conspiracy to get to this point. That's what I'm saying. But there's still no... But because they've left it ambiguous, just because that blog said he's a Nexus 9, because I... You know, some people that I, I respect very highly had this really solid theory about where 7s, 8s, 9s were, and I, and I didn't mm-hmm. really agree with it so i don't know yeah well i don't i'm not necessarily agree this because it's a blog that i mean i agree with it all i know is it was an ox and i was right mm-hmm. so so you're saying you just finished expanse yep and so my new thing the question right my next thing is autonomous by annalee newitz Ooh, it's a really so good yeah she's uh she's a writer for boing boing right yep yep or io9 io9 one of the two and she's really good what have you read any of her other stuff no, this is the first book of hers I read. I'm about a third of the way through it, and I like it a lot. Send it on over. In a fine tradition, buy it for all of us. Hey, I'm from the I government. Will, I'm here to help. I, you know, it's so funny. I mean, I'm in my 40s, and it doesn't, you know, I'm, I've seen a lot, and I've done a lot, but uh, the small joys are the best ones, right? We were recording some time ago, and you, we were like talking about Expanse, and you're like, you haven't read the Expanse novels. Hold on a second. You're like, I just Amazoned all the Expanse books to both of us. <laughs> I'm like, choice, man. Hey, That's the modern era, and I love it. <laughs> and just a throwback to another book that I don't think we ever talked about, Nod by Adrian Barnes, probably the best no. zombie stay-awake book I've ever read. Really? No, I haven't even heard of it. Nod by Adrian Barnes, so B-A-R-N-E-S. Does the title suggest that the whole point is don't sleep? No, it's it's about how... Like ninety nine percent of humanity gets a disease where they can't go to sleep. Oh, that sounds terrible. Yeah, and and what happens is not pretty. Yeah, hey, I bet. Yep, that's that's rooted in real science. Mm-hmm. People go ape shit when they can't sleep. Yep, and then and then the few that can, what happens to them? So it's a it's a really nice, interesting. It's a really nice book. Do you uh, did you watch Walking Dead? Fear the Walking Dead or the Walking Dead? I Either both. Yes, hello? no. Mute. Hello. Do you watch I'm here. him? Can you hear me? No. Hello. Hello. I'm here. Hello. Ra- Radio Free Europe. So. How about now? 
Monkey. Monkey loves shiny. Do you watch you? Walking Dead or any variant of Walking Dead? I watch all of them. Really? Yep. Do you like them? Um, I, I like them at the beginning. So I watched the first one, the pilot, and I was scared out of my gourd. And then he found Civilization or whatever, and I was like, well... And then I never watched any of the others. Oh, really? Should I? Um, yeah, they're really good. At San Don't watch them with the, the, I mean, you can't watch them with the kids around and not no, no. doors. No, no. Yeah. At, San Francisco, at San Francisco Comic-Con, I was, my table was across from the yeah, winners, the yeah, winners yeah. as you know, of the, of the lookalike contest for Walking Dead that they won at Heroes Villains Fan Fest slash Walker Stalker Con in Portland in the spring, which I was also at. Anyway, so they're across from me. They're up on this tower and this battlements and whatever. And the, the guy that's Megan. doing the Rick... Yep. The Rick Cipher and the Negan Cipher are so realistic that as they walk around, I keep double taking. And it's not like it's not like the double take if you're at Noah's Bagels and you know, Michelle <laughs> Pfeiffer walks in. It's the double take of it's the character, right? Like it's so like creepy. They were really good. I'm pretty sure I've been in a Noah's bagel with Michelle Pfeiffer walking in and just ignored her. They probably sat down with Matthew Broderick and Rucker Howard. I, I bet you rehashed have. Lady Hawk. I bet you have Lady Hawk. Lady Hawk, ruined by the music, ruined by the chrome squares for Chainmail. Uh, uh, I still love that movie. <laughs> yeah, but if you change the music and you make the, the, the weird glittery chrome square mail into Chainmail and it's a perfect fantasy film. If you don't Sorry. do that, it's the 84 Olympics. I still love that movie. It's one of Matthew Broderick's finest. <laughs> Anything else on your uh, to-do list? Uh, get better. Less poison? More whiskey? Less poison. Less poison. All right. So since you asked, uh, <coughs> I have been watching <laughs> Son of a Bitch. I give, <laughs> I give and I never receive unless it's delicious bottles of amazing Blade Runner whiskey and all the other things you give me. So... Uh, so I've been watching Star Trek Discovery on CBS mm-hmm. All Access, yeah, a paid-for premium service. Mm-hmm. And as I told you the other day, before Brilliant Runner, I think it's worth paying for the service because we can afford to. And I mean, it's fundamentally, psychologically, philosophically, we should not be paying for this. It's bullshit. Fucking CBS can jump off a cliff. But for the sake of just you know, supporting their efforts to do another Star Trek series and do something a little bit different. I've been doing it. And all I can say, because we need to talk about this later once you have caught up, but the two-part pilot is the one that's done by Brian Fuller, and then everything thereafter is done by the new uh, executive producer and the whole team. And uh-huh. they're in, they're entirely different shows. The the remainder of the season is based on the events of the of the two part pilot, but it's a completely different uh, style of show once it changes. And they were in a terrible place because they wanted to promote a fi- a paywall service, and at the same time they were also dumping and changing their creative team. And so where are they supposed to make the split? And so they chose to do right they they put it right in the middle. So they <laughs> they put the paywall right between the first two. Uh, acts of the pilot so people could watch the first half of the pilot the first hour 
on General CBS or over their app. And then if they wanted to see the second half of the pilot, they had to pay or they had to go into the trial to go into CBS All Access. And what a dipshit move. That said, what else could what else yeah. could they do, right? I mean, that's just awful. But if they were to if they were to do the two part pilot as the primary, and then and then the rest of the season as the paywall, then people would be like, "Well, there's a bait and switch. It's different." So their only choice would have been the right choice, which is to eliminate the paywall and forget their whole attempt to make people pay for this, which is, drives me nuts anyway. But they mm-hmm. didn't. All I can say is, and, and since I talked to you, I've seen another episode. It was a little more uneven. I'm not sure, but. As a as a rule, as a whole, they're experimenting and they're doing things with this show ongoing that are stuff that I've never seen in a Star Trek before, and I'm really, really enjoying it. So, watching that. Mm-hmm. And let's see. I finished Preacher, season two, and now I think my next sort of genre project is I'm trying to work my way through Rick and Morty. So I just finished season one of Rick and Morty. I've got to start season two. Love it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the problem is I keep reading about stuff and, and, and seeing references to things like the, you know, all the, like the, the, the imagery from the more recent stuff that has, that people talk about the cons and stuff. And so it sort of influences how I'm watching it. Cause I know about stuff that's happening, but I love it to death. Have you watched it? Yes. So, uh, Rick and Morty or Adventure Time? Which do you like more? Adventure Time. Hmm. Interesting. As an adult human. Mm-hmm. As an adult human who lets his, at the time, uh, four-and-a-half-year-old watch Adventure Time. <clears throat> <laughs> <clears throat> no, I just really like... I just really like um, Adventure Time. Yeah. Some of the best cosplay at the cons has been Adventure Time cosplay. Lots of uh, bubblegum princesses and other types. What's this guy? The guy with the backpack. <laughs> <laughs> what? Finn, the human? Yeah, Finn. Yeah, yeah right. That's what human. I said. Guy with yeah. the backpack. Yeah. I haven't seen very many of the dog, but anyway. All right, so I haven't seen that. I haven't seen much of Adventure Time, but anyway, I want to catch up on uh, Rick and Morty. And then what else? So I'm reading... Book four, The Expanse, which is mm-hmm. it called? The Cibola Burn? Yes, Cibola Burns. Take, you need like an engine, like a, like a web engine, maybe like 1998, 1999 era, where you press the one button and it gives you the first word, and you press another button and it gives you the second word, and together it randomizes a science fiction novel name. <laughs> And that's what they do on those damn novels. It drives me nuts. I couldn't tell you what the names of the first novels were. Leviathan something. Leviathan. Leviathan yeah, whatever. Snorted. And they, like none of the it doesn't it has no bearing on the content of the book. I'm outraged. And and you could go back and you look at the references. I understand. Yeah, yeah. I get it. It's but, but I don't, it yeah, I don't get shit. Babylon's Ashes, Caliban's War, Abaddon's Gate, Sebulba Burns, and Nemesin Games. Like, yeah. Look, I get it. You wikipedia Greek myth, it doesn't make a difference. No one gives yeah. a shit. They just want sweet sci-fi adventure. It could be just book one, book two, book three, book four, book five, really book it six. Really it really could. I don't really care. Could. Like the way we think of the this, this series, right? Like se- yeah. season one, season two. Just take my money and give me what I need now. So the only other thing in my radar is uh, I'm really looking forward to... Uh, okay, so there's a film. This is nice and specific for the podcast, but there's a film 
that uh, Klein, Star Trek's Klein, Chris, mm-hmm. or no, no, Pine, Chris Pine, Chris Pine, and uh, Angel did. For fuck's sake, man! I can't remember anything right now. I'm tired. I'm an old man. There's a there's sort of like a modern western where they go to rob a bank because their farm's being foreclosed. Hell or high water. Hell or high water. Super stoked! It's, I have it right here. You gotta watch it. It is so fantastic. You it were even you ratif- ever you ratified yeah. that for me last week. I'm super hot yeah. to watch that. Hell or high water. I knew it all along. It was a test. And then also uh, after I watched that, my next thing is I'm super stoked to watch Drive because you mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. I've heard, unfortunately, I've heard the end like three times. So it's one of those. It's like a crying. I read the I read the end of the crying game in an article in Movie Line <laughs> magazine before I saw the movie, and I remember reading it. Well, nope, I'm going to not watch this movie for three years because I. How am I going to not remember that? Right, and then I waited three years and I watched the movie and I'm like, nope. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, anyway, I got to watch Drive. I want to watch it. So that's that's on my list. I will have an opportunity to do so very soon. I'm stockpiling all of my ways and means for uh, very long international travel. Hey, I looked it up recently in my my uh, in my journeys to Indonesia. What I've discovered is just the flight from San Francisco to Singapore, which is one of two legs in my travels, mm-hmm. is the fifth longest flight in the world currently. Go take a look at United flights to Mauritius. No, I would refuse. Mine are yeah. eight thousand miles long, dude. That's yeah. San Francisco to Singapore, and then I have to get. Then I have to travel. Yeah, I've done that. Yes, I know. No, yeah. you haven't. No, yes, I have. no nonsense. Yes. No yes. one cares about your line of work in Singapore. Nobody cares about your line of work in Singapore. Well, that's true. <laughs> but they do. So there, you've done that flight, but you've done it in coach, which means you get. I've points. done it in coach. I've, I've done, done it in, in a bucket. I've, I've done, done it in a bucket <clears throat> of unlimited <clears throat> cokes. I've actually done it, lock myself in the bathroom cabin (laughs) (laughs) with the duty-free liquor and just drink myself into a stupor. Mm -hmm. It's all a fucking joke, man. So there you go, robot cracking. So uh, What a great great way to leave everyone here. It's it's been super fun. When next we talk, we'll be talking about other things of great import. Mm -hmm. I want you to plan. Plan hard because I expect high content from you. Okay. Not full <clears throat> mediocre content like tonight. I want like maximum content from you next time. Okay. I'll try my best. All right. So that was Robot Kraken for this particular segment, which will be a component of other segments for the remainder of this month. And more segments to come. What are you waiting for, huh? What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? What am I waiting for? What am I waiting for? What are you waiting for? Fuck you! So, uh, (laughs) it's been a while since we last talked. Um, However, this gets uh, combined in the end and released to the 333,000 loyal listeners that we may or may not still have. Um, We've been recording in little bits and pieces and assembling it into longer final products. So, at this point, in the timeline of our recording, it is now November, and a little time has passed. How are you doing? You feel older? I'm I'm feeling very older, and I'm feeling very <laughs> depressed. You're like just doing a litany of woes to all the listeners out there. I'm here no. to 
We're doing fine, everyone. Everything's great. Everything's I'm not saying great. it's a bad thing. I'm saying we... <laughs> it's been a while, everyone. It's been a while. Come back to the fireside for a lovely chat. That was my way of processing mentally that um, we don't have to do another intro recording because this is a continuation of the last one. It just, I, I can't. I can't quite process in my mind that we're collecting the recordings from two or three months time. <laughs> it's been just an explanation. I think it's worth explaining. Um, it is. We talked about it a little bit before, but um, you know, uh, Chris of deeply Daffer has been under a lot of uh, uh, stress with his, with his business as well as his health. And he's entering the holiday season, which is of their busiest time for yep. uh, producing, producing content, uh, which they need to push hard on in order to get that, done and make money and then they have to launch right into being prepared for the con season that follows so um with everything that's been happening with him he's had to pull back from podcasting for a little while and he's going to be popping in and out as he has time to do that and i'm going to try to keep the ship from sinking um as i navigate the icy waters of unfamiliar technology <laughs> but i think we're doing okay so far right i think we're doing great uh, and uh yeah we're just i'm uh, chris come back at the don't don't get too stressed out. And a little shout out for him. For everybody listening, go to Deeply Dapper and he's got a Kickstarter going right now. And um, some really cool Krampus Christmas card um, offers going on. So that's a really good point. Go check it out. Um, he, 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 couldn't, he couldn't record with us today because he's, he's just under the gun. But I'm hoping that uh, we can talk to him a little bit um, very shortly while that's still active because I wanted him to talk about it a bit. But in the event that that doesn't happen, uh, yeah, his, yeah his, his, his theme this year is amazing. I love it. Yeah, it is. It is. He's taken, old, he's taken old-timey public domain paintings, and he's done that deal where you overlay some cool art of your own into the existing stuff. And so he's got these beautiful holiday cards, uh, picturesque holiday cards, where there's like a Cthulhu coming around the corner or there's a creepy, a creepy crawly on the roof or whatever. They're amazing. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> No, I, I love it. The, my favorite is that one with the, it's like the farm scene and there's a Cthulhu and the clouds coming over the foothills. It's beautiful. Oh, it's a, yeah. It's amazing. And he's, and yeah. he's hitting his stretch goal. So he's got a, uh, he's got a, a, an amazing enamel pin currently that's already unlocked, which is uh, you know, it's a crumpus face, but then the, the tongue wags. So one of those kinds of pins, what has it, uh, there's a pin in the pin. And then he's pushing forward into new stretch goals because he's, they're doing great on this one. And uh, I've seen some designs for some new pins he's going to be doing as well. So um, yeah, deeplydapper.com. And then you find that Kickstarter and jump on while you can. So there's a collector. And, and go for the Grinch. There's only 11 left. Go for the Grinch. Um, so yeah. So anyway, so it's been a little while. We last time we were talking about Blade Runner and, and I know it was a, alcohol-fueled meandering journey through trying to process the plot of a film we watched from 12 to 3 in the morning. <laughs> I, think it, I, think it's, I think it's some of our best work, my friend. <laughs> it certainly is. But I think it, in a way, you know, I thought about it afterwards, and I thought, you know, this is poetic because to the average view, thinking about how this is, you know, the, 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 the buzz on this movie online has been, you know, critics love it and fans of, many fans of Blade Runner enjoy it and mainstream audiences are stupefied and they're not getting butts and seats and the box office revenues are, are not good. And I think about the fact that this movie was a high budget um, pet project for people like us. I mean, I, I don't think that they had any illusions that they were going to suddenly have a bombshell on their hands. Right. 
it's 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 a labyrinthine plot. It doesn't have. I wouldn't say that it's not labyrinthine, but it's but it's meandering. It's a slow paced movie. It doesn't long. Nice and easy. And it's long. Two and a half hours long. No, two hours and forty three minutes. Yeah. Yeah, and that and that also affects their box office because it's less yep. units per day that they can show, and then it's based on it's a follow up to a movie that um, outside of our circles, a lot of people don't know what that movie was. It's not part and of the certainly not passionate about it as we are. Yeah, sure, sure. So you know, there, it's a it's a it's a marketing disaster for them, and as beautiful as it is. And as much as I think that it must have looked visually arresting in, in uh, commercials and stuff, I also think that in the, in the political and cultural climate that we have, I think average moviegoers would look at that and go, well, that looks really interesting, but bleak. Yeah. I you know, I, I need to go see, you know, a comedy instead. Or something, <laughs> right. Or maybe I'll just wait for Thor, you know, <laughs> this looks exactly like my life. I don't want to see this. Yeah. Um, that's right. But, but so, I will yeah. say, you know, but, but, you know, all the doom and gloom out there, it still makes close to 250 million on a budget yes. of 150 million on the production budget. Yep. And I think I, if I'm, if I had to make a projection here and, you know, I would like to do those. You do. I think, I think it's going to be a lot like the original Blade Runner where it, it kind of went out and people didn't know what to do with it. And then the fan base over time internalized it. And oh yeah. Yeah, so I think I think it'll be fine. I think it's not going to be a one. Obviously, it's not going to be a one billion dollar movie, but two hundred fifty on a one fifty million budget, they, they they can probably make Who that up in marketing the budget. Yeah, yeah. But, but also, you know, the other thing about it is it was the it was the answer to the unasked question as far as fans are concerned, right? Um, you know, we're pretty open minded to the idea that it could be good, but there were a lot of people that were you know, big, big Blade Runner fans that were vehemently opposed to this. Like, why would you go back to the well? Why would you, I even felt that initially, like, wait, they're going to do what? Right. Although, so remember, remember my initial reaction when I saw Ryan Gosling on it, I was like, no, <laughs> see, I, I've grown to really like that guy. I think at the time he was cast, I was still sort of like, I really didn't have a sense of him because I hadn't seen anything he'd been doing and I didn't understand the point, but he has that kind of dopey face, but boy, oh boy. Now I'm all in. Now I'm all in. I've seen. I feel like I've seen two or three movies with him in the past few months. And uh, on your advice, I've I followed up and I watched Drive. By the way, so no, no, that, yeah, that, that's a that's a great movie. And uh, I just it was so jarring to think of him in that context of yeah, yeah. Blade Runner. Right? It was just uh, I, it was I had a cognitive um, misgiving. Yeah, and and also the feeling. Well, actually, I, I didn't expect this this to be the case when they were setting up the production for the thing, and certainly the marketing started to lean towards that. You know, you were going to have bring in Harrison Ford. It's going to be this whole thing. I thought he wasn't going to be that involved. Like he was sort of back end involved, maybe. Um, but what I but I thought what I thought was going to happen is that when he comes out, it was going to be like when Harrison Ford came out in Force Awakens as Han Solo and everybody cheered. cheered. Yeah. I thought I thought w- that the show would tread water until Deckard was involved and that's when it would get um, that would be the part I'd want to see. But in practical reality, I was so invested as it was that I didn't need Deckard. Like I liked the story as it went and it was and I enjoyed their dynamic together, but um, even if it had been a completely standalone thing and we never saw Deckard or any of the references to the first movie directly, I would have been completely happy with it. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a little bit of a different perspective than you. 
Oh yeah. You feel like yeah. it was necessary. I think, I think to answer the questions that they set out to answer, I mean, it, they could have gone a completely different way, right? They could have said, uh, and not to give any spoilers away, but I think if you haven't seen it, you're probably not going to see it. But I think, um, his bones in a box. <laughs> yeah. To me, if, if he was the one under the tree, if Decker was one under the tree and then Sean Young was the, 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 <laughs> the heroine that he found at the end, but there, there had to be some continuity, um, with the first movie. And I just think, you know, when I look back at, uh, Prometheus and Covenant, right. When they, they chose Fastbender as the continuity and kind of yeah. got away from Numi. Uh, I, I thought that was a, that was a, mistake but also an understandable one because of where they took it but yeah, yeah um, and and i and i don't necessarily to me i don't think they they really answer the question is decker uh decker uh, a replicant or not i i think no i i i'm still i'm still on the fence uh you know when we last uh i know <laughs> We were going to talk. We were going to talk more about this after you watched it a second time. But here we are. Um, let's, live in, <laughs> let's live in the moment. Let's live in we the moment. Even, we haven't even done our, our drink check. But look, here's the thing. We um, when we last recorded, we were not. We weren't clear yet on the technology they used to recreate Rachel. And subsequently, we've seen right how they did it, and it's really interesting. Yes, right? it is. Yeah. Uh, th- there's no reason. My feeling. So for anybody, anybody who hasn't uh, looked into this, so they actually have another actress who has similar shape and you know body type and could emulate the mannerisms and everything else. And so that was the cipher for Rachel. And then they CGI'd the Uncanny Valley Rachel face onto her. So it's her body with the uh, CGI face. But then they also used... Sean Young as a consultant to come in and lecture the actress about how to walk and talk and act and everything. And I think, so my personal feeling on that is that they did that to keep from like to try to rein her in, to keep yeah. her involved in a token way so that she wouldn't go off the rails because you don't need that. Yeah, they don't. <laughs> any, any self-respecting student of Blade Runner knows exactly what Rachel walks and looks like and acts like, right? Yeah. She walks like she's a batshit crazy psychopath. Yeah. <laughs> A, A-line skirts. There's only so much you can do. Um, so I was struck by looking at the video of, or not the video, but some images of how they did it, what the actress looked like before. I posted it to uh, Robot Kraken, but um, there's images of the actress in costume with the hair and everything done. They did the makeup and everything. So basically the actress done up as Rachel, then they show the overlay and then they show what she looks like, um, uh, you know, in the finished product. And, it, there's a part of me that is willing to accept uh, recasting, right? Like I could accept Don Cheadle being the same character that Terrence Howard was in the the Marvel stuff. And I asked myself if that woman, that actress had been presented as another version of, of Rachel is another uh, replicant as Rachel. Would I have been able to uh, cognitively accept it? And in a way, I almost wonder if I would have appreciated it more because the MacGuffin of using the technology to map the face made it, it, it can't help but distract you because you're looking for the flaws, right? You know what I mean? Well, I, I think I think it kind of depends on the the viewer. I I can see how you 
would be looking for, well, how do they do that? And that looks all goofy. And certainly the Carrie Fisher thing um, in. Oh yeah. In, for, in, right. uh, in, in Rogue One. In Rogue One. And, uh, and Grand Moff Tarkin. Yeah. And Grand Moff Tarkin. Well, Pre-Grand pre Moff, I guess. Yep. And so, yeah, I can see it, but I, I was just um, blown away that they had the balls to, to go yeah. there. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, yeah. And I because it was such a, I mean, in the sci-fi fetishdom, uh, that character in that role was, you know, <laughs> something so singular to that point that it was uh, kind of sacrosanct, and they <clears throat> they just went for it. And I it was just, it was really ballsy, and I really appreciated it. People are complaining. I listen to people talk about it in other podcasts and other things, and they rant about how terrible the Uncanny Valley was for her, and they also say how terrible the Rogue One stuff was. And to be quite honest. I thought Grand Moff Tarkin or pre, what is he? Just Tarkin? I yeah, it was like Grand Admiral, I think. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought he was done very well in Rogue One. I think that, um, and we talked about this earlier, but I think that, uh, I think the Leah thing was, she was, Leah thing was a little, there was a little too much of her. Like she should have been more silhouetted or there was maybe a little less FaceTime would have worked better. Yeah, they shouldn't have been so focused there. on her face. I think they could have been done, you know, profile views or silhouette or distant shots. And it would have been much more effective and still got the job done. Uh, uh, yeah. And, and then, and then also this, um, and then, and then you get to this with Rachel. I, I mean, I think Rachel was, uh, almost flawless. I'm, I feel like some of the people complaining that it was uncanny Valley, um, might be doing so in a bandwagon kind of way. Like psychologically, they decided it didn't look as good as it did. As it did. What do you think? Yeah, cause I, I, I think you go back and you really watch it. It's pretty close to flawless. Yeah. <clears throat> even, even the play of light on her face, it is still, um, if you go back to the original movie and the first scene when she's walking in and sees Deckard and the light playing in that room and the shadows going over yeah. her face, they, they, they basically recreated all of that uh, in a very compelling and powerful way. And I just think haters going to hate. And uh, yeah. for those folks that are just complaining that one, because um, I, I think you just got to have, a, again, a willing suspension of disbelief and just go into it and live there in the moment of it. And then you can do all the post analysis of it. But I can't wait to see it again. You're so lucky that you're going to do that. Um, as soon as you are, uh, I, I granted, I listened to that soundtrack on repeat pretty much as a, as, as just the background music for my life. But I, I, I keep being drawn back. I get drawn back to specific scenes and, and moods and stuff in that film that I, that I, that arrest me that I can't, that I can't get away from them, that I love them so much. Uh, and you know, it, it's still very visceral to me. This is a, this is a film that uh, a lot of people that we know and respect would say is a snore and they could barely get into it and blah, blah, blah. To me, it, it ended too soon. <laughs> I, we felt that way in the theater, right? We were like, we want more. <laughs> oh, no, I, di I didn't want it to end. I, I still wanted them to go another 30 minutes and take it, you know, <clears throat> all the way and answer everything. Um, so they've said, they said subsequently that that script was originally at some point intended to be two films. Uh, and it was even uh, framed that way in, yeah. in, in and carried into what they filmed, even though they intended to just continue at that the act one and the act two, it's been it bracketed by, by the eyeball close up and all that um, sort yeah. of na narrative uh, bookending. I, I think I'm glad that they did one film though. Uh, I would like it. I would like it to go on forever, but I thought it was, I, I thought it was well encapsulated. I liked it as one story. 
Yeah, but you could you could see where the narrative split would be perfect, right? Like right. he goes to Vegas and then he finds Deckard, and then that's the end of part one, and then right. part two. Because I do I do feel like they kind of sell they sold themselves short on what they could do with Harrison and Ryan, and they really just said, okay, we're going to amp up the action and um, really dial down some of the the subtlety and the tension that was there. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but it was understandable, right? The other, I, the I other could have used less. I could have used less of the uh, of the replicant army and that yeah. whole thing. I could have just had that whole thing go away and have another 10, 15 minutes of that cool, slow burn dialogue between uh, Deckard and uh, Kay. Yeah. Right? Uh, Joe. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's interesting. Harrison Ford gets a lot of that. He, he's one of those actors that gets a lot of that rap of, you know, he's just being himself on screen, you know? <laughs> Um, Sean Connery style, right? You're watching the celebrity perform and it's not really that they're investing in a character. character. But, but I felt that I was watching a different guy than old man Harrison Ford playing old Han Solo. This very much felt like old Decker. He had the mannerisms, he had the exhaustion, he had the the, the slight paranoia. He just, mm-hmm. it felt like the same character. Absolutely. Even in the dirty t-shirt that I hated so much. But but I mean I, I bet if you really pushed Harrison Ford and said what was one of his favorite roles I would I would hazard to guess that Decker would be one of them because it's one of the few times where he's the antihero he's thrust into this he doesn't want to be in this uh, he you know he he has all this guilt that's wrapped up over time and talk about PTSD um, yeah I, I think I think he could get more meat and and relating to that character and uh, personifying it in a way that. You know, Han Solo is just going to be Han Solo, right? I'd like to think so. The problem, though, is that that production was so um, filled with conflict that they everybody involved has such negative memories of making it that it's. I wonder if they ever get out from under that. You mean the original Blade Runner? Yeah. Well, no, they they hate it because they were wet all the time. <laughs> they were wet all the time. There was, uh, you know, conflicks about the script and what it meant. There yeah. was, you know. Hiring and firing of 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 you know uh, on set screenwriters and the, the the fighting between the financiers and the production company and and what uh, Ridley Scott was doing a lot of battling between Harrison Ford and Scott um, yeah. and that kind of and that kind of um, actually links up to another thing I was going to mention which was this ongoing thing about uh, whether uh, whether he's a replicant in the continuity of this film given that the, the he is or he isn't nature in the first film is undermined by the fact that you know how the sausage is made. They made multiple versions of the film based on that internal battle over who gets to say what it is. And so in the narrative of the story, there was no, there is no one answer. And it's not even like it's an ambiguous thing. Well, you get to decide for yourself. In the original one, it wasn't an ambiguous thing. He either was or he wasn't, he wasn't. depending on who was cutting the film. Right. And I appreciated that in this one, they left it ambiguous, this time on purpose, which I appreciated. Um, I think, if I remember right, Villeneuve has said that he was not a replicant in this movie. Yeah, I think think, that right. And I actually think that's much more. I think think Ridley and Dennis themselves don't agree on whether he is or not, which is hilarious. Which is no, that's absolutely true. He got he got Ridley Scott's blessing. He's got the production, he's got that executive production 
side of it happening is definitely happening because of Ridley Scott's uh, blessing. And yet he's definitively changing or deviating from what Ridley Scott's vision of the character was. Right. I think he's more interesting as a human in that story. I do too. Cause I just like Ryan Gosling in the replicant, I think he showed very well that there's a limit to that emotional depth. They used a, they used a visual trick that this is one of those uh, chicken or the egg things about uh, film study, right? This is a classic thing about uh, film students. They watch films, they break it all down to the, to the, finest detail. And then you talk to the director and they're like, well, no, we just, we were, <laughs> that's just an accident. Well, think about like lost, right? Remember in the lost days, I had so many theories. We would talk about that for hours about what was happening in the, in the, in the bigger picture in lost. And there was that one moment where the stars were reversed and I was completely convinced it was a Tesseract situation. They were in an, on the other side of a, of a plane of like a, a universal uh, barrier. And they were on the sort of the mirror world of their own world. And then the production people were like, no, actually, we just mirrored that because it looked better compositionally. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. As it relates to Blade Runner, what I'm getting at is in the original, there was a specific thing where there are shots of Harrison Ford and, uh, and Sean Young in his apartment in particular, where there are uh, uh, reflections of the of the uh, the light baffles, you know? So they have the white, you know, there's these, these reflections in their eyes that are white and it has this very alien look to it. And you also see it in the owl. When the owl turns and looks, you see this weird lensing flash inside the, inside the eye that's very artificial. Yeah. And at the time, that was all kinds of half the reason why people were pointing that and the unicorn stuff was like, well, very clearly, you know. Well, and especially, so the unicorn on the, Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think that was a film. I think that was an accident of the beauty of that, of, of filming those scenes and not intentional. I don't know. Yeah. I, well, I don't know because they had such an emphasis on eyes. Always do. Yeah. Right. And you know, the, 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 the that's metaphorical, though. with the, with the, I made your eyes and, and yeah. then when, when he goes to meet his maker, right. Uh, he yeah, crushing goes the eyes. Out. eyes. Um, and so it's a, but those are metaphor. Those are yeah, yeah. But 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 I also think it's you can and the boy comp was through the eye, yeah, and so right. it, was, it was basically the eyes are the gateway to the soul, and you can tell right. who's and perception, right? Reality is perception, sure, right. So, so. It, it makes sense. It makes sense in that continuum that if Deckard's eyes looked like Sean Young in that that unmistakable scene, which is walking through the dark, and she's got like the yeah. Terminator red eyes coming through. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, you, you, I can see where that connection can be made and that, and that conclusion could be drawn. I mean, that, that's logical. Yeah, I think so. And so the question is whether it was intentional or not. In the, in the decades since that film, fans like us, that's absolutely what it's, what it's wired as, right? That's, it's absolutely, between that and, the, and the, the unicorn and a few other things, it's absolutely broadcasting that he was a replicant. But I can completely accept that. I can accept that. It's like I can do with... You know, you're watching the Star Trek movies and be like, I'm just going to make each, every other movie disappear or whatever it is, you know? Uh, I can can have him. Yeah, Alien too. Yeah, I can have him be a Blade. I can have him be a replicant in the first movie and not be one in the second movie. It doesn't hurt me that the perception changes. Yeah, I can can have him. I can be even more parsed than that. I can have him uh, as a real human with the bullshit narrative voiceover because why, what replicant with any decency would do that? Um, 
and then uh, <laughs> and then in the director's cut, I could see, oh, he's human, uh, yeah. or he's a replicant, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's that same part. I mean, I have to say, I don't want to toot our own nerd horns here, but I will. Um, there are a lot of people who get their purists, right? Or, and, and they get so focused on whatever they think is the right way and they can't accept other versions. Uh, I think you and I both are flexible in our appreciation. If it's a good story, if we enjoyed it, we're willing to accept if it deviates in continuity, right? Like it's all, multi, it's the multiverse idea. It fits. Well, it- well, and it's just, can you, can you live in the moment and just enjoy it for what it is as opposed to trying to put your dogma and your perceptions on it and then try to own it and then make it yours like some, you know, Aesop's fable well, or something, right? Sure. It's, yeah. And there's, two, and there's two ways this happens. In the one sense, it's like, well, okay, can people watch the Nolan Batman films and then watch Ben Affleck as Batman in the new ones and... Do they no, have conflict or can they accept those? <laughs> I can accept those as two different versions of the story. The well, harder part is when they try to thread the continuity to make it so that they both existed in the same continuity. Yeah. And, but they're actually re- rewriting the story, rewriting the plot, everything else. And so there's a fine line where I feel like the marketing and the, that need to web everything together starts to fall apart. Yep. Well, and, and, it's and, better when they're standalone. Yeah, I get it also. Like, uh, with Jared Leto versus Heath Ledger as the Joker. I mean, that's yeah. I oh boy, that's, a, see, I, that's, that's a bridge too far. But um, so I I would prefer that they just exist in different multiverses in my mind because I would be much more at ease with that. I feel like I'm the guy in all of our podcasting. I feel like I'm the guy that is apologize is the apologist for these performances that everybody else hates. I still like Jesse Eisenberg in. In BVS, yes. even though he shouldn't have been a Luther, I'm right. happy. I, I still enjoyed that character, and I and I and I still enjoyed Jared Leto as the Joker. I would like to come back. Yeah, yeah, no, don't, don't get me wrong. I I really respect Jared Leto as an actor, I, it, it, and he's fantastic. It's just when I'm trying to bring those two performances and say these exist in the same no. multiverse on the same yeah. timeline, I just but they, that's really tough for me. And fortunately, um, they didn't say that, so which is good. Yeah, I've I read on the Blade Runner side. I've read some lists of like you know things that don't make sense in the movie, and and they're like multi-page articles about it. You know your listicle type deals, and there are a lot of real, <laughs> there are missing links. There's a lot of stuff about the movie that continuity-wise just doesn't make sense, or um, in terms of internal logic, start to fail. But what I think is wonderful about it is that the that the mood of it is so consistent that you don't you hardly care, right? Right. Well. It, it, I think what's also interesting, and you can use this either as an excuse or a condemnation, is that Blade Runner is like a world on the edge, right? It's, it's, yeah. it's having some morality crisis and infrastructure and everything else. But Blade Runner 2049 is actually a world on the other side and like falling up, actively falling apart or is falling apart. Right. And, um, some of those arguments that I've seen about the technology and continuity and all that. Um, and the, you know, to me, it's like the world that we live in right now, the social inequity, the income inequality and everything else. It's like 2049 magnifies those even more. Yeah. And, yeah. and some of the continuity issues, I think um, I attribute to that. Did you, since, since we last talked, have you had a chance to watch those pre the sequel prequel? No, I have not. No. So, 
I think it's worth, I, I really do think it's worth doing the, the second one, which is the one that involves, um, um, uh, what's his name in the movie? Um, Potter Wallace Potter Potter. Yeah. Potter. Uh, Bautista's character. So there's a, the second film is the one that was filmed by Ridley Scott's son. And that's following him around and watching him try to get credits for his protein slugs or whatever. And then having a thing and then getting on, basically getting on the radar of the police. It was an unnecessary film. And it was so obviously his, uh, Scott's son trying to emulate his father that to me, it didn't add anything particularly to the narrative, but the first one, which is the introduction of Neander Wallace. And then the third one, which is the animated uh, story of how the blackout occurred are both to me, you have to go and watch them. They're completely connected to 2049 in my mind, my mind. Mm -hmm. They're part of it to me. And uh, I think you'll feel the same way when you watch it. Okay. I'll, I'll check them out. The, the, um, I, I would say that I, one, one thing that I would be looking for in an extended version that I hope uh, Dylan Wavy does release is more, <laughs> Wallace, is, is more Wallace. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Uh, the promise was there for something so much more than we got. And, and even that little snippet that he, even if they were to stick the part, the, the first mini mini movie into it somehow, I would say do it because that whole sequence was your first taste. It's your first taste of how crazy, how creepy, how how unreal he is as a as a he's a truly a post human, yeah. Right? And it's amazing to watch his his presentation in that first one. Yep, and, and I, I think about his mannerisms all the time from that movie. Yeah, that, the, his the way he talked and the way he was looking off to the side, whatever. And he has all these those weird drones with, you know, he's seeing things from like nine different perspectives at once, but yet he's still he's getting data from them, but he's not seeing through them necessarily. Yeah, yeah I think it was fascinating. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, that post-human thing, because one thing that stood out in Blade Runner 2049 that didn't in Blade Runner that I thought is a very compelling at, uh, concept to, to think about is that you know, humanity is getting more and more like artificial and synthetic with the, the, AI, the AI implants and, and kind of more like cyborgs. And then the replicants are actually more human than human. Um, That's absolutely true. You're right. Right. And so it, it's just interesting to, to think about, did humanity create the replicants to be them after they go through this transition? Or, you know, there's a whole thing that you could say about slavery and the metaphor there. And, and mm -hmm. obviously that is very compelling entry, but there's also this, um, you know, what is human? Um, right. And this, this drive to become, you know, immortal, uh, powerful, um, smarter through all these additions and implants. And then you have the replicants, which are, they're just trying to get by and get past their, their, their end date. Well, it's um, interesting. If you were, if you yeah. accept, if you accept the premise of this passion to create a bio, a biologically reproducing replicant, which is actually, it's a pretty, it's one of the more compellingly flawed components of that story. It was interesting in the plot but doesn't really make sense. It's much makes much more sense to um, exponentially increase your manufacturing capacity of the replicants they had versus going biological, but, or go robot. But what we've, but what we've been given is we've seen them with, in the, in the line of the Nexus models, you getting closer and closer to very human, very human like, but with the added bonus of immortality. And so 
they're if the last step is biological reproduction, what they're doing is Neander Wallace is in engineering the perfect human, not the perfect replicant. replicant. Right? right, right. And at the same time that he, as an example, is becoming less and less human in doing so. I also think right. he, I also think that he was. I think that they should have um, played up more that he was an affected person. That he was not. He was beyond that. I mean, they were playing him like he was just a super genius who was distant because he was seeing this big picture and didn't, you know, he was far removed from the sort of the, the normal human trappings of how you react to people. But I feel like I mean, a yeah, lot was, of his behavior, his irrational behavior could be explained by that he is actually just a little bit nutty. Yeah. And his backstory, right? What they didn't get into at all. Um, you know, I, he to me, he was kind of a metaphor slash analogy for like, Steve Jobs uh, gone to the dark side. Yeah, yeah. Right? Uh, and, you know, the, so is he trying to create the replicants to just be the workforce of the future, uh, that they can do cheap labor and not have to, you know, run the bat so hard? Or is it that he's trying to create a better version of himself and kind of redemption story, which is and a replacement strategy, which, you know, it, well, you, you, I'm reading a lot into it. I, I'm, I'm, I'm taking the liberty of, putting things out there that are not substantiated by any stretch in the movie, but it's just interesting philosophically to think about that. Well, but also, and I, and I do the same thing, but I think that the, I think the using the replicants on off world colonies and using them as labor and all that stuff was a, was a functional mechanism from the first movie to explain why you would have a replicant in the first place. But I think by the time you get to, once you dive into, it's just like the Terminator problem, right? You, 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 dive, you dive past the initial layer and Terminator doesn't make sense. Um, this, you know, the logic of making Terminators, right? Why, why Cyberdyne would do that and all yeah. that. Yeah. But the same thing goes with these replicants. The way it's portrayed in 2049, to me, that would have been an emphasis I would have done, which is to, well, no, you should take some notes. because. So what I would have done is emphasize, <laughs> I would have emphasized that Neander Wallace is using the the construct of creating replicants as labor because he's he's petitioned and successfully gotten approval to recreate replicants again. And that's what's in that pre one of those prequel movies, right? Okay, he's using that as the as the pretense, but his bigger picture goal is playing God. He's building he's building a new human race, and to me. And to me that is what makes it so interesting and makes him so interesting as a crazy person is that he's in doing so does he love or fear his creations does he respect them or not because it's that one scene in the movie that makes that was it was visually arresting but was confusing in the narrative that he he had them hatch the woman replicant was able to tell through his implants or whatever that she didn't have that particular you know mystery uh, genetic component that allowed her to procreate. And then he basically just, you know, yep, yep. Stabbed, her, stabbed her out right then and there. And there's, and it was so, um, you know, it was, it was, it was chilling because it suggested he didn't, he didn't, um, he didn't see the beauty, the beauty of her as an artificial being, being, being the same as a human, that she had a right to life. There was no, no morality to it to him. Yeah, but no, it, 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 less than animals, right? Just, just right. the artificial construct that's an automaton that I can do whatever I want to. But at the same time, though, this whole thing about the, the biological procreation was supposedly about efficiency. But we know it's not because 
if that was the case, he wouldn't be wasting replicants back and forth like this. It's the same thing he did with the Rachel construct. Right. He argued he shot her because he was trying to shock uh, Deckard into um, cooperating, but that doesn't make sense either. By shooting her, that was that was just cold. That was just sadistic. Um, you know, oh, yeah. psychopath, it, it seems, psychopathic behavior. Well, it was a temper tantrum, like a really violent temper tantrum. Like my toy didn't work, so I'm throwing it out the window. I, I totally agree with you. And but that scene where he kills that that female replicant for no reason, to me, uh, it had so a you lot don't... of. But it had a lot of. Um, of Kuhn's tale, yeah. right? But you don't like, you don't think if you don't think he was trying to motivate that other replicant to get the job done? Because I think there was a little bit of that. Really, I don't see anyone has to, anyone needs motivation at all because they know he could flip their switch at any time. Well, no, I, I just I'm just thinking it. I there may have been an element of I think there may have been an element of that that I, I you know you you could be next. Um, um, I was seeing it as he he was basically saying my current goal is this missing link, this, this thing that, that supposedly yeah, yeah. possibly had been designed into that interstitial nexus line by Tyrell, but it's the, it's the forgotten Roman technology for all of his advancements and for all of his improvements in the, in, in the newer models, he hasn't found a way to recapture that. And because that's his new focus, nothing else matters. And that other replicant, it, for example, is you know, their right to life or their, the reality of their existence is meaningless to him. And to me, that could have been amplified even further that he doesn't give a shit about anything unless he can solve this and he doesn't need to solve it. There's no need for a biological recreation of a, of a replicant. He's doing it because Tyrell figured it out and he can't. That right. I think would have been interesting. Yep. But why that motivation? Did Tyrell do something to him in the past that, uh, you know, so the like the simple case in Ant Man, yeah. right, where the 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 new heir apparent is trying to replicate the the accomplishments of the, the his mentor and been kept in the dark of it, and now he's trying to do it just kind of out of spite and revenge to to prove that he is now replaced the master. Is it is is that motivation, or is it really just a, a diseased mind trying to um, appease some inner ego drive? Neander just never got enough milk and cookies to keep him awake. I guess that, you know, <laughs> I think it's uh, probably as good a time as any to, uh, to, <laughs> to split. To split. Let's go back to the beginning of our podcasting session. Okay. Which we probably do a quick, uh, um, sucking the monkey segment because we, I think, I think we should, by the way, I think we should splice this section that we just did on Blade Runner and replace the old one. And just say, you know, go, go halfway through it and just put that in there and just be done with it. And then we'll look so much smarter. Than, no, it would uh, be like one of those, uh, uh, like a choose your own adventure tree. If you want to get yeah. the bullshit, go press A. If you want to skip right to some a little more, little more nuanced discussion, go to B. Yep. <laughs> but no. But, uh, but before you leave on this one, I, I, before you leave on this one, just on that technology vector real quick. Yeah. What do you think about wiping Spacey out and then doing digital Christopher Plummer? Uh, I think it works perfectly fine. Yep. But I just think that's state well, of technology. That's where we are. I mean, it's just amazing. Well, it is amazing. But also, I think if it had been any other project, um, it would have been a, it would have been a different, uh, it would have been a different discussion because as Getty, they had, uh, they had Spacey under a bunch of prosthetics. So to wipe him out and put Plummer in, in is 
is actually going to like in the in the final product that someone sees, they would never if they didn't know the background that Spacey yeah. was in this film, they'll never know the difference, right? Yeah. But the oh, fact. Wait, that, interesting. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say the fact that in both cases, it's it's an actor who's who's already been mutated. It's already under a layer of, of artificiality in the creation of that character makes it interesting to me that they've swapped out the uh, the insides of the same of the you know what i'm saying it's like they yeah, scoop yeah. the guts out of one and put in the other one in but the but the, the but the external appearance is still going to be this prosthetic but you know what's also interesting did you see the backdrop of the the whole casting that they kind of went plumber in the beginning but then they went with spacey because of the box office draw oh no i did not read that yeah I really wasn't following that project very closely until this happened. Oh, me either. I just, uh, uh, while I am a hundred and three hundred thousand percent behind the decision, it's just, I was just fascinated by how they were going to do it. And again, it's Ridley Scott during the digital makeover. Yeah. It's, uh, it's just, it was, uh, I just had to read the, the whole thing, um, and, and dig more into it. So it was yeah. a very interesting, uh, well, it's an, it's an awful situation, obviously, but it's a very creative solution for that one particular dimension of it. Talking to people, I keep unwittingly using the term how, the house of cards collapsing, which is, you know, it's a bad pun unintentionally. I guess now I can't, I can't say it's unintentional because I keep saying it, but this, this, this thing happening, um, the, the floodgates opening after the Weinstein reveal and, and then the space reveal and then people, you know, the, uh, people coming forward and feeling like there's finally that 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 surge of strength in numbers that they can overcome. You know, there's been that shift, and people can now speak out about these things that happen to them without fear of being blacklisted. Uh, well, and incredible. What's happening? And persecuted and persecuted, right? And persecuted. That they the 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 victim actually gets prosecuted, right? In the public domain, right? Which is just it's a sick and um. And, and it's hard kudos, to stay. It's hard to everyone away from the politics of it too. Yeah. Well, I mean, but kudos to everyone that's coming out and doing that. The Me Too campaign and yeah. and everything else. It's um, as a father of a daughter, um, I'm I'm very excited that we may get to a place where people treat people as people. Sometime, I think it yeah. would be. I think it would be great. Well, and I think also. You know, it goes just beyond. I think it's more being a parent in the first place, because yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah our first reaction is thinking about our daughters because of the, the, the you know, the, the the high rate of, of, of harassment of yeah, but it's women Spacey, by men. But it's happening. Yeah, Spacey wasn't doing it. Spacey wasn't doing it. Uh, <laughs> you know, isn't it uh, interesting? Women. Isn't it interesting that how much of the um, so okay so. Spacey wasn't writing House of Cards. He wasn't directly uh, influencing a lot of the subject material. But I think it's interesting that there was this undercurrent and story in House of Cards that, that the president had a closeted bisexual relationship and yep. had a lot of, mis- like, he never married the, the one he really loved. And he married for politics instead. And, you know, the dynamic, I thought it was very um, well I thought it was very subtly handled in the show. Oh yeah, and complicated because he didn't not love Claire. Yeah, and they had their their three ways with other people and everything else, and they had this whole relationship. And sometimes it was okay, and sometimes it wasn't. And sometimes he killed the people he was sleeping with. Yeah, yep. Yeah. <laughs> and his nostalgia over 
the one that got away or not the one he left because he was still there. Right. But yeah. that nostalgia, that nostalgia and sort of melancholy about the choices made, I thought was really powerful. And then you put it in the subtext of that. This guy has been, you know, not just that he has, we knew he was gay. It's not just that he was um, harassing, not just that he was doing, having all these cases of sexual harassment coming out that he was being this aggressive and predatorial, but also it's unlocking those other stories that you already heard and didn't like that he's a dick on set that he is walking around like God's gift and is just, just as miserable person that doesn't, that kind of story undermines your enjoyment of the character they play. Right. Oh yeah. No, but then you add the predatorial stuff and it's just like, yeah, yeah. a, A really, really good show that will now forever be stigmatized by a jerk. Yeah. And, but anyway, I really appreciate this flood of people coming forward. And I think, I think we're going to look back on this time as being an incredible shift in the culture in Hollywood because, and of course it has ripple effects outside of Hollywood. Well, I I think, I I hope it, it it, it transcends Hollywood and really impacts everyday life. I, I hope we can get past change behavior in a substantive way that's, that stands up and says, this is not okay. Well, what's maddening about it is, as progressives, as we look at this and we we see how, um, I mean, I know we (laughs) keep trying not to be political on this, but, you know, we see how the establishment is trying to, uh, uh, trying to, to, to beg off on dealing with the situation in Alabama with Moore. And, of course, we're in a state among all the other horrible things that are, <laughs> that are realities about the current president. We also have a president who was a sexual predator. So there are young people who, among all the other things they see, that's the, one of the biggest problems that in my family that we had with what happened at the election was yeah, that yeah. kids were at an age where they're coming home from school and asking questions about a pussy grabber. It, is it true that, that Trump does, does this and says this and says that. And I have to look yeah. at a boy, I have to look at a boy and a girl. And say, yeah. you don't let that happen and you don't do that. I mean, that's a really. Well, and uh, but, but for both, just don't, don't be a predator and don't be prey. Mm-hmm. Right. And how do we teach these kids? This goes back to the larger issue with the presidency, but how do we teach these kids to respect authority in the intelligent way? Respect, respect authority that, um, you know, non-abused authority mm-hmm. when the symbolic greatest authority in the land that they're being taught. They're right at that age where they're being taught all of those, you know, all those platitudes about this is, I mean, this is practically the King of the United States. Right. And, uh, and, and how you're supposed to teach them to be, to be respectful of institutions, institutions, systems that maybe, uh, even though they participate in it, maybe they don't get what they want out of it and all that other stuff. When from the top down, these kinds of dis- this kind of disparity and, and, and deplorable behavior is excused. And they're young enough to be to see that. Yeah. confused, but they're old enough to understand the concept of things like corruption and lying and bullying and predatorial behavior. And they're seeing mm-hmm. it from the highest office in the land. And they're yeah. seeing also, if as they get a little older, kids that are, you know, late elementary school and are learning about the divisions of government and everything, and they see what the bigger issue is, right, which is Congress, and they see how much they are allowing this to happen to get their ends. It's it's horrifying. Yeah, I just I just try to keep it simple. Um, I just keep reinforcing. Don't be a predator. Don't be prey. Well, the, the, and treat people like you want to be treated, and you're not better than anyone else, and no one else is better than you. 
That's right. Um, and, and just keep it simple and act good, get good, act bad, get nothing. So I just try to keep the mantras very simple. Don't get complex. Don't get into any Keynesian uh, economic theory overlay on societal mapping. Uh, <laughs> just, uh, just keep it simple and, and, and just reinforce that. Um, that because, yeah, I can, I can go, like literally we could talk from now until 24 hours from now on this topic and uh yeah keeping it simple going back to our 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 sucking the monkey segment i don't have a time i don't have a time stamp anymore because of the program we're using now to record we've been we've been we've been going on for about an hour and 20 minutes now that's great so good time to to get back to the beginning of our our session and do our sucking the monkey segment what do you have (laughs) or time i i am going uh with a traditional california guy who's uh watching his daughter at night stuck in the house. Uh, and I'm drinking a, a nice little rosé. <laughs> Everclear? Ever <laughs> no, I'm, I'm finishing the rosé, and then I'm going to go do the whiskey thing after this. Awesome. Just, okay. just simple simple things, not like the chemical um, nightmare you have in front of you. <laughs> Speaking of chemical nightmares, so uh, it's the future where I am. So I'm in Indonesia right now while we're recording this, and, and I'm in Jakarta, which is in the top three most popular uh, polluted uh, urban centers in the world. Um, and I'm taking that uh, toxicity into the hotel room and I'm making a cocktail with cheap ass Amsterdam gin huh, and a melon soda, a brand called the Sangaria. I believe this is Japanese, possibly Korean. Now it's Korean. And uh, it's, uh, it's a hot mess, let me tell you. I decided to call this beverage the the melon melonificent. <laughs> so I I have a better name for it, and I'm just going to call it the heinous anus. <laughs> the heinous anus. Heinous <laughs> So uh, given that it's 90 minutes into the beginning of our of our podcast session, I, I'm on my second one, so I'm not I'm not tasting it as much anymore, which is a good thing. But anyway, yeah, but you're but only like three away from a uh, ethanol induced coma. I know it really is horrible. <laughs> Unfiltered, Unfiltered, like it's a point of pride. <laughs> I mean, I mean, Amsterdam did not, not to bash any brands, but fuck that stuff sucks. And, and, uh, and then, and then to couple it with, you know, whatever concoction that <laughs> crawled out of yeah. the swamp and died and went into a liquid defecation zone. That is just not good. My friend. <laughs> This has, okay, so according to the Indonesian label, it's in Bahasa, but it's Camposisi is air. Air is the first ingredient in this melon soda. Air. Air, comma. Syrup, gula. Are you serious? Are you sure that's not hair? H-A-I-R? Possibly. The heinous anus. Air, comma. Syrup, gula, fructosa. Pengarbanasi, CO2. Okay, carbonation. So sugar, carbonation. Pengatur, kesamam, asam, citrat. So some sort of artificial citrus flavor. Parisa artificial melon. Okay. So it's like anything else in the world, right? If it's a, if it's a soda product, it's probably poisoning you. And it is. The sad thing, though, is this Amsterdam gin is probably the best gin that I've had here because this country is super light on liquor, right? So, like, I had a Bombay Sapphire Martini at the bar last night. And I watched the amount of ice water and 
even though I said make it dry without vermouth, I saw how much ice water went into it in this in the shaking of it. You know what I mean? And then when they poured it for me, I was like, this is really my <laughs> like it's it you could hardly tell you're drinking gin. So but you know, in, in, in counterpoint, you can go out and buy any human you want. And um, you know <laughs> what did you what did you say? You can buy any human you want out there on the streets, but you can't get a good cocktail. It's uh, that's one of those true. Things. Great. That's 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 absolutely true. That's absolutely true. So anyway, this New Hampshire gin is garbage, but at least it tastes like gin. So anyway, so okay. So at least it tastes better than a monster drink, right? That's right. That's right. So um, you know, for for a while now, we've been since we switched to the nominally monthly format, which at this unfortunately for this year is going to become the sort of the quarterly format for uh, Robot Kraken. We eased off of talking about entertainment news, uh, current news, and we moved towards mostly reviews and art and other things that were a little less uh, um, sort of uh, dependent on being current. But that said, it's been a lot of stuff happening in like the last week. And, uh, you know, why not? Let's talk about it because pretty big stuff for just in a few days' time. Um, I was pretty surprised. No, the, the, the news cycle since last November, I guess I, you know, last January has just been exhausting. Like every week, it seems like a month. Yeah. Right. And, and you can't even remember the shocking shit that comes out on Monday by Saturday. Well, and that's, an, and that's negative. That's, that's the current events and politics and. Well, but, but, but yeah, yeah. But I'm just saying within that hypersaturation backdrop, then you have these entertainment news coming out and all these yeah. things. And um, it's, it's hard to keep track of things. You're right. You're right. But I mean, I, I was just thinking about how, because I've been writing, occasionally I write up the robot crack and news flips, the robot root uh, reports that I put on the website. And, and you know, I was just <laughs> was thinking the ripple effect of the, the news that was revealed this week will have, you know, profound impacts on entertainment culture and what we see over the next, if it, if it goes forward, what we see over the next decade or more. And all this came out of a shareholders report, report right? Which is how they get this news now. Yep. It wasn't public news. It was just, here's a report to the executives, the Disney board. And oh, by the way, all this stuff's happening. And then immediately there, it's made public. And immediately thereafter, everyone starts posting all the official comments saying, yes, this is, that was true. And this is what's happening. But yeah, I was kind of shocked. So the biggest one was, or nominally the biggest one was that they revealed that the reason why Ryan Johnson didn't take, didn't continue on to do Star Wars 9 is that he's actually developing a new trilogy. I thought that was a good, I thought that was good news. Well, yes, I, I, I know you are, um, well, we alternate. We're like the yin and yang that's always in rotation. <laughs> you, um, <laughs> but we both look like yins or yangs. Well, yeah, you know, <laughs> the bear club. They, um, they, um, <laughs> yeah, we could go down a rabbit hole on that. We're not going to, um, the, uh, oh, you're right. <laughs> you, know, you know, I, 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 I hope that it turns out to be a good move. There's no top and bottom in the yin yang symbol, buddy. Well, but you know, it depends on, <laughs> it depends on a lot of factors, like how many heinous anuses you've been drinking. Oh, Right. And, and I, I have every confidence in his abilities as a storyteller and director and, and all of that. But um, 
you can do a lot of harm with the best of intentions. So okay. it really depends on what what aspect they're going to go. You know, if it's if it ends up being. Um, well, look, know, they did a lot Star of. Trek, it turns out to be Star Trek: The Next Generation, and not you know Deep Star Six or whatever. Uh, <laughs> you know, they lived the Star Wars. Ed, they lived it. Um, well, okay, but so look, they did a lot of damage with the prequels. But as I'm often reminded, younger people who grew up with the prequels think they're the best ever, and. You know, older older fan view on some of these moves is always filtered by our perception that it's supposed to be for us, and and it's really not. That said, uh, the best uh, news. What you talk about? about? Oh, the best news <laughs> about this, besides the fact that I so I really like Ryan Johnson's other work, and I think I I really like Last Jedi. Just I'm planning to right. It looks like I would like it. Um, I like the sub. I like the person who's spearheading it. I like the idea of who they're talking to. You know, it's not like Brett Rat is taking on this role. It's not like George Lucas is coming back. For all of his strengths and weaknesses, I don't want that. So that it's Ryan Johnson. He's at a point in his career where he's confident enough to take on this level of responsibility. I mean, you think about the way J.J. Abrams took a huge risk by helming Force Awakens and now has come back for the ninth, for the ninth one and how, how much pressure there is and how much it might define him and all those issues you know, the success or failure of it could influence how his career goes or whatever. But look at Ryan Johnson. Ryan Johnson. Well, but, I, but wait, J.J. Abrams is going to be just fine. Right. But I'm saying J.J. I mean, I'm saying Johnson doesn't have that. He's not a yeah. megastar director um, bouncing around between properties and, and remaking them in his image. Ryan Johnson yeah, yeah. is an independent yeah. director who took a step forward with the movie we haven't even seen yet. Right. Looper. And now... now Am I missing something? Because isn't it basically Looper directly into Last Jedi? Yeah. Well, no, I think so. he. Uh, yeah, I think. Uh, I'm pretty sure he did something between. Um, pretend you're not looking it up. Just put, hold the envelope to your head. Okay. Right. Yeah, I'm looking well, it up. But I mean, big picture though, independent director suddenly working on the biggest franchise in the world, and yeah. now triple down. He's going to develop and produce the entire next three movies, which is, and it's not just the next three Star Wars movies, because they have multiple spinoffs in development and all this. It's yeah. the next three flagship. It's, it's, you know, it's very specific. Here's a trilogy. This is the next three flagship movies. But, you know, it's exciting for him. Yeah, you know, it, 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 I think it's great, but it is interesting that. Um, um, it's interesting that they didn't turn over the creative range entirely for the entire mythos of the Star Wars campaign to somebody like JJ. Unless he didn't want it. I, my, sense was that he came, my sense was he came back to do nine out of a favor, as, you know, as a favor. And there's, there's a lot of scuttlebutt that even uh, Spielberg's doing some, doing some work on it and is not credited. Really? So, oh, I haven't yeah. heard that at all. Mm -hmm. Possibility that he's, that he's actually done a fair amount of work on it and that uh, Abrams is the, the face of it, but is front ending something that Spielberg is already doing. It's possible. That's how he got in. Right. But who knows? Yeah, yeah. That's true. But, but I guess what I'm saying is Ryan Johnson's at a prime. He's at a prime point in his career. He hasn't hit mega stardom. Star Wars hasn't even come out yet. His, his version. Yeah. And Disney has so much confidence in him that they're going to give him this, at least for now, they're going to give him this next arc of movies 
that says a lot about their level of comfort with him. Because if you think about it, the, the nearest analog I have is is uh, Zack Snyder and how he sort of became the the one holding the bag on the <laughs> the literally holding the, the nuts. Yeah, the, entro- the entropy that is the uh, the Warner Brothers DC universe, right? Yeah. They never they never made a statement like, oh, he's gonna he's gonna be you know heading the next X number of movies. Even when they had Jeff Johns uh, supposedly being involved in a number of properties at once, it was never like there is one person like a Kevin Feige who's yeah. shepherding it all. For, the, for Disney to establish one guy and say, you're the guy, shows a level of confidence that, you know, it's impressive. Yeah. But I mean, it, it's to me, I, I, you'll probably freak out about this, but Joss Whedon had the same kind of thing with the Avengers, I thought. Right. That, right. Um, well, and John Favreau. I mean, look at that. It, it, he's a fucking visionary, it turns out. Um, and, uh, but th- there are examples, right? Of guys that, that, <laughs> that just um, catch lightning in a bottle at the right time. Mm-hmm. And, but, but his first movie, now that I looked it up on Google, you know, how can you go wrong with somebody who made evil demon goofball from hell? Absolutely. In, look at in James 1996. Yeah, evil Gunn's entire, fall from his entire James Gunn's entire uh, filmography is Stroma films or whatever it is until yeah. until all of a sudden he was handed the reins of Guardians and is doing this incredible thing. But yeah. um, the other thing about Ryan Johnson that I that I liked in this news was he said in a follow up statement that the new trilogy will cover characters characters outside of the sphere of the first six or the first nine rather. And I and I'm really excited about that, yeah. Because I've wanted this is a huge universe, and I want to see more stories. There can be empire, there can be rebellions, there can be all this other stuff. There can be mercenaries and smugglers and all this these these things that are related to Star Wars. But we've reached a point where it's like we're going to talk about with Expanse at some point. Yeah, why well, does a point where everybody th- these same individuals have to be involved in every little thing that happens in the timeline of this universe? is a little exhausting. I want to see the nuance of p- things happening to other brand new characters entirely. Right. Well, I just, I just want them to, to really take head on the genocidal war between the Ewoks and the Wookiees. <laughs> that, that, is, that is really, you know, mission critical. <laughs> That's not in real EU continuity or something, is it? No, of course not. I'm just making okay. it up because I hate Ewoks. Okay, that's fine. I was excited when Force Awakens was first being marketed. I was excited the idea that they would have new new characters to follow. And then as we started to see that it was that they were ciphers for older characters, and then we started to see that the old characters were being brought in again, and that the whole thing was a ring was like this ring theory sort of redo of of the original stuff. I liked it fine and I enjoyed it. But what I really want to see was the new characters entirely on their own. No, no Skywalker, not hashing out the same story over and over again. I want this entirely. I just want to be in a totally different place in this universe. Well, but um, I, but but I think it could it, it could be like the like how Marvel did um, an incredible job with Legion um, taking place in this 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 universe that's impacted by these events, and the same thing with. Uh, the Defenders pre-series, right? Luke Cage right. and others, where, where all these big events are going on. And even The Amazing Spider-Man did a great job of homage to, mm-hmm. you know, aliens dropping from the skies and people harvesting the technology and whatnot, um, a la District 9. Um, but it was, 
I think you could have that backdrop, but it doesn't need to have the plot doesn't need to be dependent on it. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And that's what makes so it's something I associate with games, right? I like the idea that you could set, you know, you could set these games in a universe that is recognizable, but you're not directly related to, you're not having to deal with the characters that you're, you know, like when, like uh, when uh, the first of the Force, what was that run and shooter from Star Wars, Force Unleashed, right? You had a guy who was a Sith trainee. And so there was the, the loose involvement Vader starts out at the beginning. He's there, but then the guy's off running around. He's playing with all the same tools. You have Imperial troops and you have rebels and you have all this other stuff, but it's new characters and only towards the end. And then in the second, in the follow-up to that game, they started roping stuff back in. And now you have battlefront where they're bringing in all of the, 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 the name characters that you could play them if you want. But what I, what it would intrigue me about that game in the first place was that it, that it was set in this world the events of the events of which we are familiar are the background. And then this is a character doing its own thing. And in star in battlefront two, the premise appears to be, these are PlayStation games, right? Or whatever games, console games, the premise yeah, of you're, battlefront you're, two. You're speaking, you're speaking Portuguese. Cause I, I have no knowledge of okay. any of this. But go in ba- battlefront two. So ba- star Wars battlefront is a uh, first person shooter. That's set up as a multiplayer open, not open world, but an open player type arena game with all it's all fully licensed right and so when star wars battlefront came out the new version that's it came out at the launch time of the playstation 4 which is why i ended up buying the playstation 4 which is the whole reason they did that right <laughs> like like it was like i like, gotta have it because i gotta play that game because there's bad ats and all the sounds are right and there's tie fighters flying around and you know it's very immersive the problem with the original game though was that uh it was all multiplayer arena based and there was no there there for single players, which is the world I'm in, in my 1% of my free time to play games. So Star Wars Battlefront 2, which uh, by the time of this being broadcast will have already been released. They've introduced a single player story mode to it as well, which is exciting. And the loose premise is around a an Imperial officer after the events of uh return of the jedi so the emperor's been killed the empire is in crisis and it's what is everybody doing after that point and it looks really fun from that perspective i don't want any more i don't want a luke skywalker to come storming in and i'm sure they will i don't want any of that i just want to be i just want to play with those toys and and have a completely different story so anyway i won't have time to play it but that's what it is sounds exciting i'm happy for you so Star Wars, I, I hope that this is an opportunity for them to carve a new corner of this universe out in a way that um, that still feels right, still feels like Star Wars, but doesn't make um, doesn't uh, slip into the comfort zone of doing callbacks to the original. Even Rogue One, which I love, love Rogue One, but pulling Vader in at the at the end, uh, that last minute addition to tie it together while narratively was fantastic. I still yearn for the version of that film that was just completely its own thing. You know, no, what I mean? no, I know what you mean, but no, <laughs> yeah, uh, I get, you. No. I get you. But uh, I'm just saying I, it was more bold when everybody died and there was no connection. to that. No, no, I, but I was, I'm a huge Darth Vader fan mm-hmm. and, um, right. Not, not an Anakin fan, a Darth Vader fan. <laughs> yes, and, uh, <laughs> 
uh, and to see him just pull out the can of whoop ass on everybody, I was uh, I was giddy with joy walking out oh, of that. It was, it was thrilling. There's no question, and that's why you your fandom is why you're actively trying to make your backyard look like Mustafar. Well, you know, lava flows and yeah, just one step at a time. Terraforming takes a while. Yeah. So, so I, the announcement of a new trilogy of Star Wars films is a big deal, but also from a, from a commercial standpoint, what I thought was a big deal was maybe even a bigger deal is that Disney finally admitted that they're doing a streaming channel. And on the face of it, that doesn't sound like a big deal. It's just a streaming channel. Everybody's got a streaming channel. CBS is wasting my time with their streaming channel. Everybody has one. However, we've known this was going to happen for a year or more. And we've been watching Disney uh, uh, product get pulled away from Netflix and Hulu in anticipation of this, right? I was trying to catch up on Star Wars Rebels and then that was pulled off of Netflix. And then we knew there was an all stop on Marvel Netflix projects after the ones that are currently in development. This, everyone's been waiting for the other shoe to drop for them to admit that they're going to do their own service and they finally admitted it. And this streaming service is going to have all the Star Wars and all, you know, every, every Disney property and all that, all that stuff, all the Disney films and all their spinoffs, but also it's going to have all the Marvel stuff. So now all of the Marvel con, all the existing Marvel media, TV and film will all be found on the Disney streaming channel instead of on those other sources. And they're producing new content specifically for that channel. So whereas CBS all access is a waste of time that's being is limping along with the Star Trek show and a few other small projects to rationalize it. Disney took the other approach, which was I'm going to make, I'm going to take my time. I'm going to have new material, but I'm also going to just slowly pull everything else back too. And now boom, it's all there. So I think it's going to be a big shift in terms of that next level of, of, of the change of broadcasting, right? We've gone from TV channels to, streaming content and then we've gone from um from uh col- collection streamers like hulu and netflix and we're starting to see this split off into individual content streamers i think this is the one that's finally going to be, be the one that'll work yeah as far as a dedicated streaming content channel well i'm just i'm just hopeful that one day i can uh, not pay our our overlord comcast for the 700 channels of bullshit in not <laughs> <laughs> that because um, I only want to watch the 120 channels in HD, and I don't want to pay for the, you know, the, the loser package. Um, <laughs> I and, was and, so proud of not being on cable for so long until I needed HBO for Game of Tolls, and prior yeah. to them producing their own HBO channel, and I was and I was hijacking it from you, and then we had problems with it, and finally I was like, you know what? So I called Comcast. Just for the record, I have no idea what he meant by that comment. I you had uh, no. You had I have no, no idea. I have no idea had, what you're talking about. You had no. You did not participate in this at all. I, I'm pretty I, sure it I didn't happen. I'm pretty I sure. I'm pretty sure you're making this up. I may or may not have stolen it from you. And what's his name? What's his name? Put his HBO credentials on his Twitter feed. Who was that? Who did that that one time? Oh, but wasn't it Trump? No, it's like it's like Seth Rogen or someone. Anyway, the point <laughs> is that uh, that I in just calling my cable company and saying, Hey, you know, I'm going to change my service. They ended up giving me back all that cable, including HBO and all those channels for less than I was already paying. And I still don't have my cable box hooked up. Right. 
yeah. I just am streaming. I'm streaming it through the apps just like I was before. But I used to be able to say that I had cut the cord, so to speak. I was an early adopter of the cord cutting concept. And yet here we are. I have that service and I'm just not, you know, I just don't use the cable box. But I just, I'm just, I'm longing for the day that I can actually doesn't do that. Right. Well, the problem is with the everybody making their own little streaming services is that you rapidly, we, we, we fought for a long time for the idea that we could have a la carte services, right? I don't want 120, yeah. I don't want 800 channels. I want seven that I choose. The problem right. is the price point's too high for them. So right now everybody wants between seven and $12 for their streaming service. And so that means if you want to rebuild the content that you were after, you might be at... You, you you could be hitting your same price as your cable bill and you're just paying it out to all these individual people plus the carrier fee to get to it from your provider. Yeah. Don't like that. The yeah, thing about Hulu and Netflix, at least for, for their, you know, for what it's worth, I like the fact that you had a, in each of their little domains, you had a one-stop shop for content from a variety of sources as well as original content. Mm-hmm the move to individual streamers means that you're now beholden to having to have an account with each of those. And I, that annoys me. Well, there's gotta be somebody out there that will be like a Trivago that will just be the broker for all these things. And you can just do a menu drop down and just check the, the content you want and the provider that you want, and then just do a pay for fee service with a 3% surcharge to get it through one. Yeah. Pipe. Yeah. There's some, I mean, Tam- there's something Samsung. that happened like that. Yeah. What? Samsung tried it right with all the apps that you could integrate onto your yeah. TV, and then and then you just had to manage well, those all locally. I have it on the Apple TV, right? I have all yep. the apps in front of me, and they tweaked the operating system so that you could uh, use a common password for a lot of them, right? Which was important. Common username and password automatically log you into them individually, and you just set up just your set up. and 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 that worked for all the services that were. If you had a cable, if you had a cable subscription, all you had to do was authenticate yourself. And now you can have them, but for all the pay, the premium ones that you have to pay for, like AMC, for example, and HBO yep. and others, you have to have your own set of logins for each one, and the previous, you previous you will get kicked out periodically and have to reset it up. It's a nightmare. Yeah. Well, yeah, Such whenever you do a soft, whenever you do a software update, you have to redo the whole fucking system. <clears throat> and I mean, I wake up sometimes not remembering my name. I can't, I can't deal with that crap. <laughs> So another thing uh, that happened this week was that there was a fairly out of context interview snippet that was released where Ridley Scott is talking about the more or less debacle of the more recent films and saying that the time for the xenomorph is done and we need to move on. And that's what he's been trying to do. And he fumbled around between rationalizing that Prometheus was him proving that you don't need xenomorph anymore to tell a good story and the, go a different direction and then and then he put them back into uh covenant because people demanded it and then look it wasn't that great so that proves his thesis that you don't need the xenomorph to tell a story and i think that the news can i interject can i interject yeah you can you can okay just, just real quick motherfucker step away <laughs> well what i was gonna say was you know on the face of it what he was saying and particularly how that was uh, snipped up and, and, and blurted out to the media and everybody got excited about it. Um, it doesn't sound good. And I feel like, if I'm going to devil's advocate a bit, I feel like what he was trying to say was there's enough interesting, there's a lot of interesting things about that world, 
you don't have to have the MacGuffin of the same old, same old xenomorph just chasing people down a corridor to tell an interesting story. I agree. But, but, but every but the back time half been, was he didn't tell like, that story. Yeah, but yeah, every opportunity he's been given to tell that story, right? He's fucked it up. Right, it hasn't worked. And right? I like, and he, like the films, engineers, but it, you're right. He didn't. He didn't hit where he was supposed to hit. The engineers, if if Covenant and Prometheus, if it would have just been the whole backstory of the engineers and nothing about the xenomorphs, you know, other than that was their method of, right. of you know, Fair conquering point. and and capturing other planets or taking over other civilizations. They're a super warrior that they engineered to be, yeah. you know, part of the host. Right. And it was just about, right. right, and just why did the engineers want to destroy, you know, the worlds that they built and got into all of that, I would have been on cloud nine. But right. he's had two times to do that, and he just, he just MacGyvered them. Well, and so what I'm saying is, you know, thinking about his comments and how people reacted to it, I still think what he's saying is technically true. Outside of his blunders. It's true. You do not need a xenomorph in that world. And frankly, I am tired of xenomorphs because they have not found a way to make them interesting beyond the initial use. And no, that, that I was been all for a yeah. story that was focusing on androids and focusing on other types of xenoterror that wasn't xenomorph terror. The problem was couldn't figure out how to do it effectively, couldn't work out the basics of, of script mechanics to make a story make sense. And then folded them back in in a way that was so out of continuity and confusing that it just frustrated everybody. So you did a very terrible job of it. But I do agree that you don't need the xenomorphs to tell a good story in that universe. No, but but you've got to tell a good story. Yeah, correct. Absolutely. So I was thinking about it and then I fell asleep and then I woke up and I had this image in my mind that I realized I thought was coming in Covenant but didn't. But I think would have been cool, which is... And and you know maybe it maybe it comes in the next one, given what they set up with Covenant. But I wanted to see David walking around and having subservient xenomorphs standing around like guards, you know, not acting like a like a, a weapon, an unleashed weapon that can't be controlled. Xenomorphs no. that are entirely under control. I think that would have been amazing and scary because that's yeah, where absolutely. that's where you take that concept and you and you take it to the next level of scary, which is. That's a weapon that's now in, in complete control. That's even scarier to me. Yeah, I, I agree. But I, I also think it'd be great because then David would be Wayland. Right, 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 right. Right, and, and it, then he comes and does to humanity what, <laughs> right? Yeah, there's um, a lot of opportunity left in that franchise. Yeah. And I would love to see them pull off something serious like that. The, the last two minutes or the last five minutes of Covenant were like the best part just because of the premise, because of the promise of where that story could go. Right. Yeah. But I still want them. I, you know, I really wish they could have done a better job of closing some loose ends and, you know, if, if they could have been a gateway transition, like, um, I think they really did a sellout job when, um, the Prometheus ship at the end comes over to the engineers and just drops bombs and then the, and just takes over the planet and kills everything. I like, there was only dude, a thousand engineers. Just, they were all small, and they were all in this one little area. Yeah, you just you just fucking just took a bullshit cop out, yeah. and um, and it, and it really, um, to me, just was a wasted opportunity to really explore the richness of that and get after those big questions that everybody was trying to address. Which, after all, was the whole point to me. Right? Why are we here? Why are the engineers why are, doing? Why is this even right? happening? Right. Right. And, why and is and a weapon like a xenomorph necessary? 
Right. And it just became into David's little jean shop and his daddy. <laughs> shoes, right. And I was, like, reading, what the fuck? I was reading, you know, the, the fallout from this, like, like everything about this week's news has all been about the fallout, like the, what people respond to what between the, the, the sexual predator allegations that are taking down all these people to the, to these big, discussions about entertainment properties changing or whatever. I love the res- reading the responses and the ripple effect in the community is fun. And the responses to this uh, alien story has, have been hilarious. And someone was writing about how they said, you know, he talks a big talk, but um, you know, his last movie involved, you know, at, at a, one of the central conceits was like this, this 12 minute sequence, homoerotic sequence of Fassbender teaching Fassbender how to play a flute. And I thought that was really hilarious because I thought that scene that was incredibly was... tense because you think someone's going to get murdered immediately. It just, it was so, no, I, it was no, so I got, worse and weird. I, no, I got weirded. I, that, that scene creeped me out. Like, here's oh, yeah. your armature, you get the armature and then I'll do the fingering. Like, dude, yeah. no. <laughs> it was, no. that was the joke, man. That was the worst dialogue ever. It was so, so bad that said the scene over overall was really 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 creepy and tense and that was the intention but the idea that they had distilled the entire hot mess of that movie into that that 12 minutes being the banner moment for that movie cracked me up anyway and and who the hell fell asleep at the switch with script control (laughs) all of these movies i feel like they suffer from design by committee right you picture them like the Saturday Night Live uh, writers' room. They all have these the, the the board, and they're throwing the stuff up, and they're moving stuff around, and just trying to make it work, and not having a big picture plan. That's how I felt about both of those movies. It just, I felt like everybody was just throwing shit at the wall, and whatever people sort of glommed onto just kind of stayed where it was. <laughs> right? Heinous, heinous. Oh, I'm here. I'm sorry. I had you on mute. Yeah, no, I completely agree. It, uh, you had me on mute. So we thought that we thought that you know, Lost would be this big war room, right? We always right. dreamed of the of all these big blackboards that were, uh, you know, filled with plot details and all the subtext and all the you know the cross <laughs> yeah. lines of it. And in fact, it was just a bullpen with a bong, um, yep. and uh, and upside down margarita shots and. <laughs> you know, that was it. Like, what are we going to do this week? That's cool. Okay. <laughs> yeah. 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 Improv. Improv is an exciting thing. If you have the skills to do it and you have the right people. And if you can't, and if you can't wing it as a game, as a gamer, right. As a, as a judge in, in role-playing games, I loved improv, but I had to have the right tools. I had to have very loose structure and I had to let things just go. And you have to have a framework if you're going to do that. And I have a feeling that these projects, they just don't have the framework. Like, yeah, let's just wing it. Like as if it's serialized soap, to, like soap operas. Exactly. But you need to have boundary conditions and a point. Yeah. Right. And, and the point can't be, well, you know, it's kind of the afterlife and everybody kind of is happy until they're not. And um, maybe the shark was a robot. <laughs> what? <laughs> so... My friend. And then what about the smoke? The fucking smoke monster. And then the deities. And it's just, what? Okay, anyway, I'm going to stop. Why are you ripping open old wounds, man? Because I never let them go. The scar tissue and the, and the, the weeping, you know, infections still remain. I have, this, I have this mental image that's like this 20-minute 
this 20 minute YouTube video rehash of all seasons of Lost that puts it together in a way that makes total sense. And I've forgotten all the stuff that was crazy. And it was just like a super fun show with a plan. And, and yeah. you will not let me, you will not force me to remember <laughs> that it was not. No. <laughs> but, but, you know, again, the entertainment news, if you want to go back a little bit, yeah. you know, the, the Marvel universe and how great the majority of the Marvel properties have been, even some of the spinoffs and the connections to Sony and, yeah. uh, and everything. And then, and then you get the, the TV division, which appears to, you know, freebase on the weekends before they come into work. Uh, <laughs> and uh, started you know, strong. Well, what the hell? What the, where did they go wrong? I just... It started strong. Yeah, there's... It did. But you know what, though? There's something, there's something here that I'm not quite sure. Like, I don't see... I don't feel like we're seeing... I don't, I don't feel like we've been exposed to everything about this that has led to some of the missteps. Because the same producing crew... The showrunners who ruined Iron Fist moved on from Iron Fist and went and did Inhumans, and for, and I haven't even bothered to watch Inhumans. I've heard it so bad. Yeah, it look, looks look. bad. It sounds bad. It is bad. Same guy. So my sense is, and I've lost track now whether Perlmutter because previously the whole thing was that the TV division was divorced from the movie division because Perlmutter was demoted down to TV. Feige had the movies, and so they were separated. And so Perlmutter is going to do whatever he wanted to do. And, and he made decisions based on cost always and didn't care and treated it like a commodity. Whereas the, the Feige side of things was trying to tell a cohesive story. Now, I'm not sure the degree to which Perlmutter is, has control over the Netflix Marvel stuff or not, but there's still a divide, even though they've made references to the films, just like agents of shield and all the Perlmutter stuff has done they're they're framed in such a way to feel like it's its own project but i but i feel like there's been missteps in the direction of some of those uh netflix shows that are executive level missteps because the casting has been good except for you know there's issues with finn jones as iron fist but he could still he could have done it differently he could have been directed differently certainly could have been written better and there's still a chance for him if they just keep him as the as the butt of the jokes it'll work but I think there's a top-down problem on the ones on the seasons that don't work. It's it's because the whole construct of the of the show didn't work. That the the, the direction of it down in terms of its of its of it of the meat of it made no sense. Yeah, well, I think that it's being I, the best example of it. Well, I mean, no, it goes on and on. The um, I think they have a Frank Darabont problem, and they're just not mm-hmm. willing to deal with Frank Darabont the way that Frank Darabont needs to be dealt with. You bring him in the beginning, and then you get him out the door as fast as you can. Right. Okay. Yep. Well, the, okay. Walking, the Walking Dead and AMC saw that. Why? But I mean, yeah. Come on. Are you still watching that show? The Walking Dead. Mm-hmm. Oh, religiously. So I should watch past the pilot. Is what you're saying? Yeah, maybe. Um, that. Um, I thought the pilot was incredibly unnerving, but then I just. I just couldn't pick it up. And then by the since I was coming at it, since when I came back to it, it had been going for some seasons. I tried to imagine yep. multiple seasons of running away from zombies. I was like, well, Oh no. So, but, but of course it's more than just the zombies. I know. Um, I know. Right? But I'm also bored with post apocalyptic gang wars and things. So, right. Cause it's, it's more about the human conflict than it is the human zombie conflict. 
Right, right. right? It, it's, it's moved past the point. The first two seasons were really about, oh, the zombies are coming, the zombies are coming. And now it's like, oh, my God, the humans are here. Um, and, you know, it, it's, a great, it's a great study of what humanity can do to each other under duress. Right, right. Yeah, the metaphor is clear. Yeah. So, okay, so... Well, I mean, uh, it's, not like George, it's not like George Romero, quite quality, where, you know, the GOP were the zombies, but, you know... <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, so the other thing that I was quickly going to mention entertainment-wise was that you have this, you have this incredible buildup on the two sides of the fence for big budget superhero stuff coming out. On the one hand, you've seen the sort of tire fire of Justice League marketing. And they're hypersaturating the media with imagery as we lead up to the release of that film. You have billboards that are different in every country, you know, advocating that everybody, everybody's super excited about this movie to come out and everybody should be totally in love with it because it's the Justice League and they have all this sort of semi-viral stuff about how wonderful these actors are and how, how cool they are to work with and, you know, you know, how wonderfully, how, how they've managed to, 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 to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat by bringing in Whedon and all this. And yet the entire... The entire thing is premised on catch-up. It's defense, right? The entire marketing of and 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 propaganda about Justice League is defense against bad the anticipation that's going to suck and all of the sausage-making reality that they've had problems with that. And then you contrast that with Avengers, and we've heard hardly anything official about the new Avengers movies, and almost without without question, people are like, "That's going to be the best thing ever." Yeah, well, and, and oh, by and oh, by the way, Thor, which everybody thought was a sleeper outcast, you know, the whole group of the yeah. of the Marvel property, um, and and we won't talk about it because you haven't seen it, but Thor Ragnarok. I mean, you can just be non spoiler. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm just going to say is one of my top three Marvel movies ever. I I I got that sense as that we're getting closer and closer to it that uh, that it was going to be that oh my movie. oh my god, dude. Um. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, so I'm going to see it. Um, I'm going to see it the next available show after we finish our recording. By the way, I okay. did some research. My buddy Ryan was texting me, and he's like, "Hey, you got to see this movie." And I was like, "Yeah, but I'm in Jakarta." And then I started thinking about. It. I was like, "Wait a minute." So I did some research, and one of the big megaplexes is around the. Um, there's a big roundabout here that takes about 20 minutes to get around because. It's really not designed for pedestrian flow. Right. No, it's not. Around there to this other side, there's a megaplex buried in some super mall underneath one of these towers that has uh, multiple showings of Ragnarok. And I checked with the front desk of my hotel and they said that it's English with Indonesian dubbing. Okay. Or no, no, Indonesian subtitles. Subtitles, yeah. Not dubbing. And so I was like, I'm in. <laughs> that, sounds, yeah. that sounds fantastic. That sounds like it might even be like perfect, right? It seems because you know written indonesian is is, is kind of wacky looking if you don't read the language and i think it's going to work perfectly with the way that film looks well hopefully that they haven't blown the the visual frame but I just well, it's, an IMAX. it's an imax theater yeah so you'll be fine the, yeah uh, the uh run you know the, the just to reinforce that hypothesis of yours marvel doesn't need to convince anybody that they know what the hell they're doing right right and they haven't had they haven't had a true um, shit the bed theater event. Right. Right. And they've had 17 movies now that have come out and debuted at number one. 
And I think that's that's more than any other property in the history of entertainment. What right? is your least what is your least favorite Marvel film? Well, the, the one that they claim as part of the MCU was The Incredible Hulk with Edward Norton. I still don't buy that as being part of the MCU. I still feel like that's a precursor. No, but but so you gotta remember at the end they had Robert Downey Jr. and right? Yeah, but it was No, come on. So okay, according to those rules, that would probably be my least favorite. That 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 was the beginning of the thread. So I'm I'm going to take the easy shot, and yeah. Edward Norton, if you're listening, much props. <laughs> but um, He's a dick too, so don't worry about it. Yeah, but um, that that was just a that was a bit of a mess. So, I'm trying to think of the one I like the least. It's hard to say because some of these, you know, it's, it's funny though, based on number of viewings. If that's going to be the litmus test, then Thor Two: The Dark World is the one I saw the least. I saw it once. Yeah. See, my, um, my, my, my close number two to the Hulk would be Iron Man 2. Yeah. I saw, a lot, I saw that many times, though, because I liked, because it's such a personal comic for me, I liked things about, I liked places they were going with it, even though it, it was stumbling in its lack of focus. Um, but I wanted to I like wanted it to. enough that I was enjoying parts of it. Yeah, like if well, the movie yeah. could have been stopped after the racetrack, I would have been stoked. Right? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't want to get into rehash of it because it's just too painful yeah. for me. But um, <laughs> the um, yeah, those would be my two that I would single out. But I mean, Guardians. Everybody thought that was going to poop the bed, and well, guess not. And then um, and Thor has just. I mean, you take a look at the 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 reviews and the quality of the films, and just the 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 popularity and the critics' review. I mean, uh, I'm seeing I, Thor I, and Guardians I, I, differently, but I think they need to take that uh, New Zealand director Taika and and just give him like control, like Everything. the Russo brothers, and just so hand over. Okay, take, take it. It's a really good point that you make about the Russo brothers, though, because I have to tell you, my favorite Marvel films are theirs. So, you know, I mean, well, I should say again, though, it's been sprawling long enough, and we've. We take it for granted now, but uh, Favreau's original Iron Man, as improvised as it was, and you know, it had its faults, but it defined this entire world, and and it was my favorite character. And before it existed, we wouldn't have imagined any of this happening. So, you know, credit no, no, no. to that. But, no, you know. John Favreau, it, it, hands down, is probably you know one of the top five most important folks in getting the super, the popularity of superhero films the way they are now. The so, um, and absolutely. the popularity of Cubano sandwiches, buddy. <laughs> Yes. Well, you know that movie. <laughs> okay. So, but um, but but the Russo brothers. I mean, and shawarma. Yeah, and shawarma. Well, that's Sweden's world, right? That's Sweden. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. But uh, the the Russo brothers, I happen to be, uh, I, I happen to have a hard on for espionage films and things. But I mean, their work on uh, Winter Soldier, Winter Soldier, and then Civil War. Mm-hmm. I was just like I was in I was in hog heaven because that was the kind of that was the kind of stuff in comics that I, you know, that was the sweet spot for me, right? Oh, no, but, it's superhero yeah. stuff, but it's also urgent sort of politics and social suspense. narrative, yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, God, it's, it's Jason Bourne with superpowers. It totally was, and I loved it. And that's what yeah. I want. I want a solo, because Taika uh, Waititi said that it, it was taken out of context and made it like he was saying he wanted to do a Black Widow film, and he didn't say that, but... He said he could make. He was very confident. He was when he was drunk with the whiskey on stage for that thing. And he said, "I'll make any of these movies they want me to make." 
And he said that he would make a, a Black Widow film that was that was like funny. And, you know, a lot of people's initial reactions to, to Ragnarok is, oh, it's successful and it's funny and Guardians was funny. And so now we're just going to get a bunch more funny, funny Marvel movies. And they're missing the point that every Marvel movie has had humor as well as yeah. drama. And it happens to be more humorous than dramatic. Well, who cares? That's the t- they have different tones in different movies. But, but, it, it, but to me, it keeps it human and relatable. Right. Right. That, that they're having the conversations that we're having. They, but I, the, 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 but the, I don't the, want, but I don't want, I mean, I can see a, a black widow movie. That's, that's a comedy. I can see one where she's the straight face and dealing with colossal fuck ups of everyone around her. Like the eye roll, right. like, I got to get this done, but every single thing is going wrong and I'm still going to get it done. Everything right. that could go wrong in the course of this operation is going wrong. And I'm still going to, get ahead of it and do my job. That's what I, I can handle that. But what I really want is just more Russo style black widow. Right. In, in fact, Soviet uh, thriller. Yeah. Yeah. With, 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 with uh, winter soldier straight red hair again, please. Well, or, but, and also I think, I think a, a really interesting film to dig in would be uh, Hawkeye black widow. Absolutely. Adventure where they, you know, Istanbul they, yeah. uh, or where they come. Yeah. That they actually go into that, prequel thing where they, they talk about how they met and that whole thing. I think that would be fantastic. Okay. So the reason, um, what I was leading up to with the difference between the two is that I, I want justice league to succeed. The initial reviews are that it's a hot mess, but it's fun. That's fine. And I think that the Whedon component has gone a long way to, um, give it something viable. Maybe like maybe before he was as actively involved, it was going to be another somber mess. And instead, we have a mess that has some highlights of humor, which go a long way towards uh, like sticking with you when you leave the theater, right? If you watch a hot mess that has some funny moments in it, you're kind of like, well, that wasn't okay. It was okay. okay. Right? Yeah. So I think that that's happening with it a little bit. But when, you, but when I think about the stuff I'm reading about what may be happening with Infinity War and Avengers 4, I'm so excited about it. And Captain Marvel. So excited. Yeah. I'm really... And uh, I can't wait to meet Adam Warlock. Um, but, I, you know, back to the Joss Whedon and Justice League, I, oh, I just have, I think they're trying to be too much like the Avengers. You know, the, the witty banter between them and they're all like, uh, that's not the meaning of the saying at all. And uh, it's oh, a that's patch. A now it's time to go. Oh, I'm sorry, you're Batman. We can't talk about it. It's um, a patch. It's a, it feels like a patch, right? Well, it definitely and, feels like a patch. Right. And the thing about Justice League versus Marvel and the DC Universe versus the Marvel Universe is that the DC Universe was basically humorless. It was all about trying to represent the best and the noblesse oblige and, right, and, right, right. and, and representing the best of humanity. Uh, and then Marvel's thing was that it is humanity. Um, you know, the mutant thing. And then, you know, all the superheroes are kind of relatable and have really big human issues. And to me, the biggest travesty of um, Superman versus Batman is that they, they, they kind of sullied Superman and try to make him, you know, this flawed character that has existential crisis about right and wrong. When in the comics, for the most part, the one guy you could count on who knew the right thing to do was that dude. Absolutely. And, and and he was played and he was played smart in the comics. He was generally because he was a godhead. He also right. was he he didn't get tri- he wasn't stuck in the quagmire 
Like they went really realistic in that sense with Man of Steel. First, they gave him a, a, a foundation where he was um, a little bit more conflicted about what the right thing is. But also, um, you know, that's a very mature uh, co- uh, concept. The, the quagmire of how to do the right thing in a in a world where e- you're put in a position where every single thing you do is going to have a negative effect on someone. Right. Going back to the old thing of, well, he, what's he going to do is spend his whole day flying around the world solving problems, you know, right? Yeah. Right. The, yeah. All of the, of the Snyder era uh, Man of Steel stuff has been about um, he means well, he has all this power, and he's, uh, and he's sort of hurt that people won't just let him do the right thing. And that he's being cornered into positions where he has to make tough decisions and he doesn't want to make tough decisions. That's a very real, well, it's a realistic problem, but it's not fun. No. And, and, the, and the whole dialogue with his mother, yeah, right? Where yeah. You can walk away from it. You don't have to do it. What I, mean, I, I, I didn't hate that. Just, way people hated that, though, because well, in both cases with his parents, I felt it was very realistic because we always have seen the Kents as being like, you're the best thing ever. You'll make the right decisions. We're really proud of you. Everything will be great smiles and pie and i liked the fact that they in that film both of them in those two films they both had a personal selfish component to it which is like you're my baby you don't owe them anything i thought that was realistic to me no, but, well no I, I think it was realistic but i don't think that that mole debate like yeah. uh, to me it was like if you have with great power comes great responsibility right right who happened who who coined that by the way I don't know. <laughs> the other half, right? The other half. But but I think, you know, if you that that whole moral dilemma about is the world worth saving, that, that that's almost what comes out of Men of Steel. Right? Like the, the whole Beowulf thing of humanity hating uh, hating the person that saves them. And then they try to have their cake and eat it too. And now, you know, you watch the trailers and whatever for Justice League and it's like, oh, the world's, you know, committing mass suicide because Superman's dead. I thought, wait a minute, they, 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 there were people that didn't like him. They, they wanted him to go right. away. And, right. and, and, and so now they've, they've kind of, what they use to make it perhaps more interesting from a character development perspective and a societal context. And, you know, Superman is not as unsullied as we want him to be, thought he was. And now they're twisting on its head that now we're propping him up and making him a hero after he's dead. Um, and I, I don't know. Well, but that whole, but the whole thing about the the, the DCEU is that they're trading on. They're 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 running before they can walk, right? So Marvel has been pretty careful about they've got this. They have a, they have tons and tons of really classic storylines. Just to, you know, even setting aside all of the recycling of stuff as as they go and retell the same stories over and over again in the comics, they have they have a huge legacy of pivotal big stories for these characters and marvel has been careful about getting into them in smaller doses or easing their way into them whereas on the dc side they jump right to the middle of it and they don't earn it right so the batman Batman. versus superman thing wasn't earned because we didn't have this we didn't have a foundation of those stories building up to a point where right like in the comics the idea that Batman would have a plan on how to take out every member of the Justice League if it came to that, that he was that right. prepared and cynical, was kind of like a reveal after decades of assumption that they're all best friends. That right. was what the shock was. There's yeah, no they, there they, there in this. This is just a, there's an alien I don't trust. Right, well, and, 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 well, I mean, they, they, they kind of had that cheap 9-11 thing, the uh, revenge and retribution. But the um, to me, it was just like, we're just going to throw these two 
mythic characters in a in a cage match and um just like alien versus predator but in like alien versus predator they in the end they go are we best friends now do we become best friends yep yeah (laughs) (laughs) but you know i don't even mind honestly i didn't mind and i've seen that movie now a number of times i didn't mind the setup of of the battle of metropolis being the reason why wayne was was so uh bitter i thought that intro was was one of the most powerful parts of the movie absolutely um I bought that. I bought his motivation as hate, of hating the concept of a Superman and being fearful of his power and his inability to, the people working at that level, having an inability to think about the ramifications of their actions on normal people. There was, it, where, the, where they, well, didn't, that's that's was, they didn't make Batman the villain. If they made Batman <laughs> the villain properly, it would have worked. Because he was playing a role that was um, very relatable for um, a, a sympathetic villain, right? There's that. There's that kind of a character. It's like yeah. I'm going to commit. I'm going to do things that are very bad to the people that you're supposed to care about because of this moral, this bigger gray area issue that I'm struggling with. Yeah. If we have, there was almost no difference between Batman and BVS and Strucker in uh, Age of Ultron, right? Yeah. Yeah. Except that they had to turn it and make everybody's happy at the end of BVS. But the foundation of the motivations of those two characters was essentially the same. So I wanted Batman to be the villain in the whole fucking thing. I just wanted to double down and just let him, just let him be the main adversary. Don't ever come back to anything else. And but, then, but then, but then that would have been, that would have been it for the whole justice league. Well, yeah, absolutely. Well, and right. so the other thing so, about, okay, go ahead. I was at, so one thing that I thought they could have done that would have developed a lot of richness in it is because Bruce Wayne's kind of just really messed up in the head, right? And um, and you know if they would have dug into a little bit about his guilt and um, mm-hmm. and his emotional state with the loss of Robin, yeah, they implied right? it, but they never went right. Further. And so I, you know, what if it was more of a setup that. I I couldn't be a savior when people that I cared about the most needed me from his parents to Robin and everything else. And now you have this golden boy that's a savior that's holier than thou. And he can actually save people when it matters. And that, that, that kind of sticks in friction thing, which they kind of alluded to with the mom element, which is the one thing that I thought they got right that they, except in the moment, uh, you know, he utters out, his mom's name and now suddenly they're they're best buds We're um, <laughs> right well, but, but you know the thing that um you know looking at how the marvel and dc characters play off each other that the, the the two companies were obviously aping each other through a lot of their their publication history but one of the things that they did really well in daredevil to a fault actually because it became really monotonous but one of the things they made they did really well with daredevil in imitating batman like Daredevil is the Batman of Marvel, right? But taken to a more to a different extreme. They that was a principal component to his character is that he had Catholic guilt. That he kept having people that were trusting him or people who were relying on him were being killed because he couldn't save them, or were taken out because they were targets because he cared for them. And super and Spider-Man had that happen, and the other characters had that happen too. But that's a fundamental way of deviating between it's the same character treated in two different ways marvel's batman suffers constantly from the guilt of his failures 
Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, Batman, it's always sidestepping that, at least so far as what we've seen. Yeah, yeah. What, I, what I was going to say was I want to see about Man of Steel. What I wanted to see is it's okay if he's putting impossible quagmires. What it needs is that, um, that Ocean's Eleven style or a, a Lucky Logan style thing where he finds a way or there's, or a, there's a way he had a plan. Right. Mm-hmm. That's what they need. You could you can bury Superman in an impossible situation, but then he can't just be powerful and, and noble. He also has to be smart. There has to be a way that he figures out how to overcome this if he's the kind of character that they want him to be. And unfortunately, I think the films have taken a taken a cue from the comics in a lot of ways where other characters treat him like he's the he's the do he's sort of a simple person. He's so black and white. And naive that he he's understand. such a he's such a goody two shoe right. that I mean he's utterly predictable. He's an idiot. He's just a, a paladin on his white horse going off charging at windmills. Yes, correct. Yeah. So but the, um, well, but the other interesting thing is with both Wonder Woman and Superman, the 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 moral of the story is don't have sex with humans because then you get guilt when they die. <laughs> that's absolutely true. Right. I think I think honestly that's a lesson that is in every movie. Don't have sex with humans. You'll have guilt when they die. <laughs> and, 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 and don't go off by yourself wondering what that noise is when you damn well know what it is. <laughs> Juno 2. <laughs> don't, don't have sex with humans because you have guilt when they die. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, anyway, okay. So that's sort of our entertainment wrap-up. I mean, other than that, everything in the entertainment world was pretty bleak um, with hopefully a, a positive, bigger picture positive coming out of some of that stuff, but, uh, all right. Uh, so Mr. Blake, let's talk about a movie, a sweet, sweet movie. Let's do a review. We're only 13 hours into our current session of recording. Let's talk about a movie. I propose we talk. Oh, about we've been recording. <laughs> I, I propose we talk about that feel good superhero film of last year. Sophie's choice. Wait, Spider-Man Excellent. homecoming. Oh, much different. There was a time when he had a Sophie's choice. He did. Say, save, save the platinum blonde, really intelligent, interesting Emma Stone looking girlfriend or save the school bus full of kids or whatever. And, you know, that's yeah. the sort of pathos that they gave him in this one, a little different. So what did you think about Spider-Man Homecoming? Well, first of all, um, I'm really happy that Topher Grace was not Venom. Whew. So let's just start I there. I he wasn't dancing. Well, yeah, well, God. Uh, I was going to say, you know, in our prior conversation, the, the one thing that would just be the tipping point is like they did the Avengers, the musical. <laughs> what can Marvel do to disenfranchise their people? Yes. Uh, but let's, severe let's do homo- yeah. Severe, severe homophobic rhetoric uh, and show tunes at the, yes. same, at the yeah. same time. At the same time. Springtime for Hitler. <laughs> <it is. laughs> hey. <laughs> Mel Brooks, save us now. The, um, uh, I, I actually was very pleasantly surprised by the movie. I thought, um, given the way, that they, well, the way that they introduced Spider-Man in uh, Civil War, uh, right? I thought the, the follow-on from that could have been really hinky. And, and, how so? And, what? How so? What do you mean? Um, well, they, they sidestepped the whole origin issue. They sidestepped the whole Uncle Ben issue. 
Well, what did you think going into the movie that they were going to do wrong? Like, what did you? Th- what were you afraid of? I had some concerns. I want to know what so, yours. So, so my concern was that they were going to do another retread of the origin story. Yes, Uncle Ben. Right, right. and uh, and they didn't, and they they really t- set it up really well with um, him just being this goofy kid that was, you know, just totally blown away by the situation. Um, was doing a like a Twitter feed uh, <laughs> of the, the, the battle at the yeah. airport and, uh, and then his infatuation and uh, just kind of hero worship with Tony Stark. And I thought that set it up really well. And then similarly, um, Michael Keaton and his character in the setup blew me away. Like how well okay, they did that. So, all right, and I agree with you, but so what I thought, so my concern going into this was they introduced Spider-Man in a very interesting way, was ruined by the trailers, but the idea that he just springs up as a surprise secret weapon in, the, in that conflict and he's fully formed and in one scene basically steamrolls over every previous version of Spider-Man we've ever had as being just like the perfect Spider-Man. He was just unreal his night, his enthusiasm, but not naivety and his, yep. his exuberance, um, but not, uh, infallibility. Like he was just, everything about it was so well done. Uh, even down to the reference under roots, you know, like everything about it was such a great, like, you, you know, contemporary and nostalgic nod. It's like, how do you top that? Right. And how do you go into a solo film after you've already broken the character that way right and so i thought okay they're going to go two directions it's going to be a a prequel or it's going to be somehow he comes off of that and then he's got to have his real life again and then at night he goes off and fights with the avengers and then he comes home and i thought it was going to be too much of a disparity and what i hadn't given it hadn't given thought to it until the trailer sort of gave it away it never occurred to me that there would be internal conflict between him and stark that would lead to a a place where he had to justify himself. And I thought that was a really interesting and age appropriate twist for the story that he would be, Oh, you went out drinking. You obviously don't have the responsibility and maturity level to have the car keys. So I'm gonna take your car. Mm-hmm. Away, right. Mm-hmm. That was so, so realistic in the, even though, and especially given that it was like, yeah, he made some mistakes, but it really wasn't, it kind of unfairly, he unfairly lost the suit in a way but on the other side, it was a very important lesson. If you think you need that suit, then you shouldn't be doing this. But so it, but, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, but you but you realize that that was the same arc that Tony went through, right? Right. That right. that that it, Iron Man three, right? Iron Man three. Like, am, am I a mechanic? Is the suit who I am? Is it you know what is it that defines me as a person? And so it was really interesting to see how Tony managed that with this very eager beaver kid that just wanted to be a grown up before he was ready. And, and I really, I don't know how we're going to do this, but the final scene uh, was really telling. And I thought just really powerful. I don't think right. we even have to have structure about this discussion. Okay. But I loved how they just, it was an homage to all the different elements that has been the Spider-Man mythology for what, like four decades. Yeah. But um, it was, but it was a, it was a cocktail that felt yes. perfect. It felt right. As opposed to so many times when they pick and pull, we were 
we were shitting all over some of the DC attempts to do yes. this. Yep. It felt so, earned in a way that on the other side we haven't seen. Right. And it's just, I just want you, why can't you just be the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man, you know, uh, and, and get the churros from the old lady you help across the street. And, <laughs> and, and, I love, so I'm a big fan of a year one story. You know that about me. I love, mm-hmm. I liked Batman Begin because I wanted, a, you know, a Batman that wasn't formed yet making mistakes. I want, I want that story in my movies. I'm more interested in, and Daredevil season one, right? I want to see the character before he's become fully formed. And so I really appreciated that about this movie that we saw the things that he naturally could do very well, but how he didn't know how the nuance and how to control it in a way that would keep people from harm or even physically control himself. That his inertia had always taken him too far and he was finding himself flying into situations that he didn't know how to get out of. And, uh, you know, all that stuff is very teenage. That's a very strong, I mean, this movie was this love letter to John Hughes films, but it was a mm-hmm. very strong uh, binder to establishing that this is a teenager with incredible opportunity and power and is still navigating it as a very well-meaning, but, but, but flawed in his inexperienced person. But it was incredible. Yeah. Well, and, and, and the simplicity of the goal setting for the motivation around him, right? Right. It was, it was really well done. You know, you see things in binary, there's right and wrong, and you got to do the right thing. And like the whole um, oblivious, obliviousness to, you know, the sub-agenda that you know, Tony Stark was tipping off the feds and that they were doing it. But it also shows really well um, that eternal struggle between teenagers and adulthood where um, the, the adults think they know better. The teenager is absolutely convinced that they don't. And, you know, it was, yeah. it, it was beautifully played out and it was over and over again. Like they give them the suit and it's in like the training wheels mode. Um, yeah. totally I, didn't, I didn't want, I don't need all the suit. I, you know, I appreciate the fact that we're, we're, they're pinballing him into a, a iron, you know, sort of a, a version of an iron spidey kind of thing for right. for, for uh, Avengers, and and I understand that in the context of arming him up for for a bigger a big scale story like that. But you know, all of his little <clears throat> gadgets and stuff that was a the love letter to Ditko that I didn't need personally because I don't need him to have all that stuff. So if you're going to do that, at least what I liked about it was that he was shut down on a lot of it. Well, and, and malfunctioning where it wasn't. Right, but and also that he walked away from it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right at, at the end, like, they had the whole press conference, and we're going to introduce the new Avenger, and he's like, "No, I really do just want to go be the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man." And uh, I, I didn't, I, buy, I, I didn't buy his. I like so. There's never been a great uh, amateur Spider-Man costume, but this was the best we've seen. The only thing I would say is that um, it was a, quite a reach that he would have optics the way he had in his amateur spider-man suit like i almost felt like he should just have had like welding welding goggles or something oh no but i, I kind of like it because it was like the tactical yeah. night vision goggles that you can get from an army navy surplus store yeah but it was <laughs> but it was pretty stylized for that like i, I don't yeah. know i wanted it to be really rudimentary but it was okay otherwise but, I but, think it worked really well can, can i my one technical issue is yet once <laughs> again the um the the web right and, and his magic juice that he does does in a chemistry bench in the lower drawer, it just kind of does ad hoc. Um, yeah, yeah. I, There's really no way around it, but, it, but, it, but the, 
but the physics of the physics and the internal logic of the web in this movie was the best they've ever done. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and that he, that he messed up with it. Yeah. 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 So, uh, also, but, 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 but I just, I'm sorry, I don't mean to touch you off. Again, but no, the, thing that, the, the thing that I loved was that the suit, you know, just like Tony's, uh, concierge suit is like, do you want to go to kill mode? He's like, no, I don't want to go to kill mode. I thought that was, um, yeah. I, I, it added a dimension to it that um, was really nice. The two, the two, okay, so from the tech standpoint, the stuff that I didn't have interest in was all of his, like, he's got 357 different modes of web shooting, whatever. I was like, whatever. But I love that they introduced the Ditko gliders under his wings because, you know, I'm old enough to think that that's a cool look for Spider-Man and it was neat the way he chose to implement it in experimenting by leaping over the helicopter. That was cool. And then also, uh, it was creative and and somehow felt, uh, it just sort of felt from a design theme standpoint, logical that he had that secret drone in the chess piece, um, only because it's such, a, it's such a significant design element in his costume. The idea that it would peel off and become a thing that he didn't even know it did that cracked me up. It surprised me and it, and it pleased me even as much as I didn't really need him to have a drone. I thought that was hilarious right. that it came off yeah. of him doing that. Yep. Um, what, Moon Knight, one of my favorite Marvel characters, who was another sort of variation, oh, yeah. Boy. variation on, uh, on Batman. But uh, I've always loved the idea that, you know, he could, pe- you know, there have been times when his chest symbol was peeled off and used as a thing. And I, I don't know. I just like the idea um, of, uh, of graphic oh, graphics graphic. suddenly having a function. But anyway, so. Can I, can I, can I, I was going to do another shout out here. I yeah. think um, Michael Keaton as a vulture was brilliant. Unbelievable. I can't imagine anybody else doing as good a job in that role. And unbelievable. Um, right. And I mean, not just it his, was, not just his, the uh, framework of his like motivation. And yet again, why he was doing I, I, I'm totally blown away by Michael Keaton as an actor. Yeah. And uh, the ability that he was able to add depth and nuance to that role in a very limited screen time. That's true. And, 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 and they, between the plot and his performance, they were able to establish the, ra- the very tenuous rationale behind some, a normal person becoming a supervillain. It was all very plausible. He sold it. He had that edge. I liked it. But then the, that, John, that John Hughes on steroids thing of making him the date's dad. What I liked about it was that they took possibly one of the most contrived, cheesy, sort of weak ways of webbing, so to speak, people together in one of these stories of everything being connected. They make her dad be the bad guy and then he sees who they are and he knows who he is and they have this big battle and they know who each other are, which they've done so many times before in different ways, but they made it feel surprising, interesting. And then they made it feel like there was ramifications to their battle. That no matter what they did, his daughter was going to be hurt by the results of that battle. Yep. I thought that was really, really interesting. And, and much better executed than the whole Green Goblin art sure. in, in a lot of the other films, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, right, and I just thought that the, um, the, the, and I think it comes down to that actor mm-hmm. to express that depth of emotion, and he's a really good actor. Um, 
that he knows there's no, this is a no-win situation. And his trepidation and his core motivation balancing out and doing it in a great way was um, was really astounding. And he, I also found that the, the love arc was a little bit, you know, just hopscotch and um, very predictable. But the, the what made it really exciting was when you added Michael Keaton into that mix. Well, that's what I was going to say. You know, the the love and the the whole concept of this, you know, the love interest for Peter Parker is something that's been done over and over again, and it it's been such a, uh, a wish fulfillment component to that character that he's the little the nerd that no one paid attention to, and he gets these powers, and then suddenly he's fighting off the two most incredible girls in his high school, and then he's got super villain girlfriends and all this other stuff. It's like instant wish fulfillment for comic creator types. Right. And yet in this, the big deal was the prom, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> it was so grounded. It was so realistic compared to all of that other stuff. Um, and, and, and the science club, the science quiz and the science club. Yeah. And I liked, and I liked that. Um, I like the twist because I like mm-hmm. the, the, the ethnicity choice in the casting played up the twist that you didn't see it coming that Keaton was her father. Um, that totally worked for me. I did not see it coming until it happened. And, and I also like the setup for Mary Jane. Mm-hmm. Right. And I also like if they ever chose, choose to, to bring in the, the Wolfman, right. That character flash, right. Flash Thompson. How, what a yeah. great twist on finding a I way know. to make a modern bully. Right. I know. And it was just brilliant. And, the, and then the, 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 the humor in this movie, again, just the typical Marvel brand versus, you know, all the Sony versions of Spider-Man just kind of. Um, I felt like the, the tail end of uh, Garfield's run that <laughs> he was starting to feel closer to the right vibe in his yeah. tomfoolery in public. It was in his attack of the rhino. And it, there was something about his, 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 his uh, sort of egging him on and pissing him off. It was starting to feel right, but it wasn't totally right. And then he put on the fireman's helmet and it was just what's happening in this one though. It was 100% perfect. Yeah. The tone was just dead on. Um, hey, one thing about uh, one thing about his, this technology of his suit that I didn't mind was that they got Jennifer Connelly to do the voice because who among us doesn't need a Jennifer Connelly no, no, that, that's something that um, should be available on demand. <laughs> but going back to Flash, though, uh, Tony, what's his, Tony Revolori or something. Um, not only do I only um, associate him with Grand Budapest Hotel, they even had a thing when they went to Washington, D.C., and they got checked into that hotel, into that hotel. That, that hotel and he goes, oh, I've seen bigger, right? Yep. <laughs> what a great nod, man. That was so much fun. How many of the people watching that movie never saw Grand Budapest Hotel, right? Uh, I love yeah, probably probably quite a few. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it, it was, I mean, just from the execution standpoint, and even the supporting cast on the villain side, like the shocker. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that was a very subdued way, a very nuanced way to really make that character relevant to the storyline. And I thought the fact that the shocker changed identities when one guy got melted accidentally—that was, that was a um, great twist. yeah. And then I the, like the rationale for for design elements, right? Like, yeah, the shocker look was the quilted sweater or whatever he was wearing was the made that sort of fishnet pattern that you see in the comics. Oh yeah, because and again, they they made the superheroes not look like um, 
ballerinas. And, uh, and even the villains, not ballerinas, which is really good. You know, so in the DC world, the, the subject of collateral damage, had, it went from zero to 10, right? Because right. instantly, it was like nothing. And then there was Superman and Zod blasting their way through buildings, causing all this destruction. And then all the crypt- Kryptonians just de- devastating Metropolis. And it was just went from nothing to everything. And what I like about the Marvel universe is that they're showing this incremental, they're showing the scales of care that, that uh, uh, onlookers and, and bystanders can be hurt through the actions at the high level and at the very street level, right? And we've seen this in the way, uh, you know, we, we saw this as a pivotal thing in Age of Ultron that was very successful, her being, her overdoing it, Scarlet Witch overdoing it, and then all the victims of the fallout from that embassy attack. And then in this one on a smaller scale, the whole thing that led Stark to take away the suit from him, from his, mm-hmm. the, the shocker weapon, him webbing it or whatever, them fighting and it blasting the hell out of things. And then, well, if he had to had more experience, he would have prevented that. Well, I think right. that's interesting because that happened after the events of Age of Ultron, where we saw on a much bigger scale, the whole Sokovia Accords thing, the whole premise of that bigger picture specter in the Marvel world is the idea that superheroes running around unchecked are dangerous. Mm-hmm. And in Civil War, for Iron Man to be on the side of, yeah, we need to control things, I have guilt. It, it was very relatable to me that he would be coming down so hard on Peter Parker over the unintended, unintended collateral damage from attacking those guys in that ATM. Yep. Right? It was a scale factor difference, but it was the same problem and it was the same guilt that Stark has, that he was applying. Yeah, absolutely. And, but, and again, but it was, it's one of those things that's intrinsic to the character. The, the first scene with the bank robbing Avengers, uh, when the, again, it's a, the technology and it just kind of blasts over and the, like totally obliterates the sandwich shop and he immediately goes over there um, and pulls out the, the owner. Right. I mean, that, that, yeah. that is the quintessential Peter Parker. And, and, I thought they, they, they set that up very well. Um, I agree that, 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 that the reality is there because in, and it was really, again, well done in the airport scene where there's no humanity. It's just these guys and, and women just battling it out and having a battle royale and no consequences in that environment because there's no friendly fire, no loss of life except for, um, you know, roadie. But, the, um, but then they transfer it into a highly urban setting and then things get real really quick. And these yeah. are people that you know and you relate to every day that are now getting hurt by what you're doing. And I thought yeah. that was uh, really well done. Well, and, and the, uh, the, so the, 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 the broader idea of a superhero who's in school, no different than a superhero who works in an office or hangs out with his mom all day, is that the bystanders, the people that he cares about, could be affected by his other life coming through. And that's always been this threat, this bigger picture threat, like, well, you know, I'm going to fight these, these guys. And, but if they ever found out my secret identity, then, you know, someone I care about could be hurt. Well, they skip to the end in this film. He almost immediately is having this problem because they tracked him to his school. And I love that it was not, um, I felt like other projects would have just let them just blast the hell out of the school. I'm like, why are you Spider-Man? Like, I thought it was interesting that they were walking around going, what the hell is he doing in a high school? Like they didn't, it took them a while to, to parse that Spider-Man, Spider-Man was, was a student there. 
Yep. Right. And it was really interesting. They, they, you were, they were very self-aware as these environments were colliding between mm-hmm. John Hughes high school world and the superhero world. The characters are very self-aware that this was happening and that it was weird. And I like that. Yep. And I also like his, I also like his sidekick. Uh, can I be the guy at the desk? And um, the way that the, it comes out, he climbs into the window and he's crawling on his ceiling and he shuts the door and then he's holding this Death Star Lego set. And that was just another great scene. That does. Oh, I thought, I thought you were talking about uh, uh, Michael Keaton's sidekick because I think he's he's oh, no. he's actually the tinkerer, right? Yep. No, I was, I was talking about, uh, talking uh, about Peter Ned. Parker. Yeah, yeah. Ned, yeah. So we have a thing when we do our reviews, right? We have a red tentacle moment, which is our favorite thing. And then our and then a bad octopus, named after my previous trip to Indonesia, which is your least favorite thing. And uh, I guess I'll tell you, my, my red tentacle about this movie was entirely Ned. It was all of his reactions to learning about Peter Parker's identity and then constantly drilling him about mm-hmm. it. Just, I could not get enough of it. Do you it lay was, eggs? You know, like, no, I don't yeah. like <laughs> And that whole thing where he crawls in the room and, and, and Ned is standing there with the death, or sitting there with the Death Star. The Death Star, yeah, it is. The it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You're Spider-Man? He's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Dude, you're on the ceiling. And the best part was, well, yeah, and even besides the ceiling part, the best part was he, 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 he decompressed the suit or whatever. Or no, he compressed the suit and went, and then he's still ripped, right? I was like, uh, he got caught shoplifting or masturbating. He's like, no, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. And then like, yeah. dumps the garbage in the, dumps the goods in the, the closet. How much of that, one of the best scenes that they're going to get in Justice League of Barry Allen snatching the bat, the batarang, how much yeah. of that is stolen straight out of Stark doing the thing and then him catching it? Yeah. Right? Yeah, catching whatever it was he did. Um, yep. Although it was pretty funny that he he dropped he did the thing where he dropped the where the secret the costume was being hidden. That was pretty funny. Yeah, um, and I also really liked the whole thing where Stark was uh, was uh, sort of sexing up Aunt May. That was hilarious. No, that's, I think that's that's brilliant with Marissa Tomei as Aunt May. That that, but it was so on the nose, and I love that about it. When she was cast, everyone's like, "Wait, young." pretty aunt may this doesn't make sense because you know i mean she's she's not a 20 year old but she's in, incredibly attractive and but she's i mean she could be 50 right yeah. but that's what i'm saying she's very she's not unattractive she was not a a hand-wringing pie-baking old aunt may she was a vibrant woman with her own with her own life and and in and in and of itself, that was interesting, but it was even better that Stark was just like, hello. <laughs> it was just so in character and creepy. Yeah. <laughs> guys, the guy's moving on my mom, right? Or whatever, you know? Yeah, no, it's Other totally people. creepy. Like, yeah. Well, and it also played up a little bit um, some of the other nuance of, uh, of Stark being a father figure that he didn't have. Yeah. Right? Yeah. They don't talk about it, and it wasn't their Uncle Ben business. But I mean, I thought it was really interesting that a lot of his his issues were about bonding with Stark, like you said before. Well, no, and, and getting his approval. Yeah. Right? This isn't and, a hug. We're not hugging. <laughs> right. I'm, I'm getting the door. And then, <laughs> and then the whole, and then the whole surrogate uh, uncle with happy. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was hilarious. Right. And him, and him tricking him with, by uh, uh, messing with the phones or whatever it was he was doing. Yeah. But I also love that opening scene in the hotel room when they go, <clears throat> you know, uh, the, the prelude to the Civil War cross connect, 
I'm like, why are you wearing that suit? Uh, did you see the new suit? He's like, what's the new suit? It's over here in your bedroom. I'm like, I have a whole nother room. And uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Favreau as Hogan has been the best thing. One of the best recurring things about the whole Iron Man series of stuff. And uh, uh, it, it was, it was a wonderful application of that character to be in this movie mm-hmm. to have Hogan have to eye roll his way through uh babysitting this kid was hilarious. Yeah. Cause he had, this, he had this bigger picture thing he was doing, packing up the mansion and doing all this other stuff. Um, and then he also has to babysit the kid. I thought that was hilarious. Yep. But, but you know, that also sets up the whole thing with the new Avengers HQ and the, the, the new Avengers that we're going to see very soon that, right. um, the, there's a whole lot of subtext that stuff has changed significantly. Right. Um, we've yeah. seen, we've now seen two glimpses of change. We've seen the end of civil war and we've seen the beginning of the end of this movie and, and, and they're going to fill it in and that's going to be what's interesting about it. Yeah. So, and, then, and then Thor Ragnarok, when you see it, it'll sit on the, the other scale of things. So it's, wow, it's okay. uh, it's really good. One of the other things I really liked when we were talking about the costume before, it's like we've almost taken for granted now after Civil War, but the idea that they found a way to make the Steve Ditko era uh, varying, varying eye slit thing work with those, the Oculus of the, of the lensing of his, of, his gla- of his goggles in the costume, it, it's like night and day in how you oh, make how that you, character relatable. Yeah, because now, now you, can, you can have expression, right? And he can, can have surprise, he can have focus. It gives you a, a, a different dimension, even than uh, Iron Man, right? Where you have to go to the inside the helmet right. to a relatable human character. So it's a, it's a good way to add some emotion to um, the character that surprisingly no other version of this movie, of this character ever thought of. So it was really, really nice. One of the things I really liked over the course of the sort of the, the time progression in the Marvel universe is the way we go from uh, ima- like uh, amateur to professional or like uh, raw to seasoned. Like, so uh, the contrast is, and this is going back to Tony Stark that I love so much in Iron Man, you have this pivotal thing where he's in this, the the version two armor and he's trying to fly. He's trying to hover. And he's like, and then he goes up the thing and then he tries to land on the roof and like a dumbass doesn't figure out the structural yeah, integrity of the roof and he falls through. And he goes through the roof and then goes yeah. through the floor and then, yeah, yeah, all that stuff about trying to figure it out and then uh, and then the midpoint of his comfort level in Iron Man 2 where he had the, my, my favorite, the suitcase armor, right? Where he put it on, he goes, and braced for it as it, as it built itself around him. But he was still like, like it was so rough that it was violent to his body. His body was kind of knocking him around a little bit as it, as it built itself around his arms. And then you get to uh, Ultron maybe where you saw him land on Avengers tower and walk and, the tower had a bunch of a articulators bunch of and stuff that would pull the armor off of him while he was walking. Oh no, that so was, was, that like was the first Avengers. That was the first huh? Avengers. They're talking to Loki. Yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. And I right. love that he was so seasoned at this point that um, he doesn't even flinch, right? His trust level in his technology was so tight that he was yep. and and it was like as if some it's like the what it made me think of is um, because he's rich and has that sort of air the billionaire thing about him, it reminds me of that thing where 
you see these ultra rich people, they walk in the room and someone has sleeped over and pulled their coat off and handed them a drink and they didn't even do it. Like, like they barely stopped moving. Right. That's what it is. Like like James Bond with a martini coming in. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And, and so they, then there was a, there was a version of that in this movie too, when he landed on the roof deck after that whole thing and popped out of the suit. Right. There was that same sort of just casual, like he's so advanced and, 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 uh, and well, this is normal. This is his normal. This is his normal. And Spider-Man's world is barely starting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but the, and that goofiness in the, and the transition, right. When uh, he goes in the alley after he gets a sandwich and he puts it all in the backpack and he puts it on the trash container and then he comes back and it's gone. I love and, that. Uh, yeah. That was always, a, that's bothered yeah. me since I was a kid was the stashing of his, of his bag. You know, like I always annoyed me that it was just hanging somewhere. Yep, and and then also and then also his, his juvenile crime fighting right like saves a bicycle you know like <laughs> this is your password yeah. right and then he thinks the guy's breaking into his car when it's actually his car and the whole dialogue in the alley it uh, it, it was just a refreshing a refreshing change and something I think was much needed uh, hopefully they'll carry that through in these big Uber movies that was interesting I wonder if they're going to. Um... They planted a lot of, we're in the world of Easter eggs, so things may not end up being a thing. So Shocker may not ever go on to be anything more than he was. Tinkerer may not. But, you know, we also saw the the, base, the basis of Prowler, right? That was, uh, oh, I'm blanking on his name right now, right? Um, from Community. Uh, Donald Glover. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Which he, is- he goes Aaron Davis. So he's the prowler in the comics. Yep. Uh, that was pretty neat. Also, um, I was going to mention, I like, there were two sort of sequences. I really enjoyed. Well, three sequences. I really enjoyed. I liked the end sequence with the, all the aircraft stuff, because I like seeing when characters are pushed to their limits and they are barely, just barely pulling something off, right? It's like him trying to control the descent of the thing and pulling against everything. Just like with him at the the, the sort of kind of cheesy, they cut the cut the ferry in half, which is, was a, sort of a cheesy effect, but him trying to hold it together and just being coming, completely stuck between the two. It, it made for great cinematography, with the webs holding it together, right? I mean, that Symmetry, was really, Symmetry yeah. is fun. But it wasn't just, and it wasn't just like, in the trailers, I thought, oh, okay, that's lame. He's just kind of holding them together and that's just their, that was a nod to the old way the, the Gwen Stacy death thing, right? But, but also in the actual movie, I liked that he was shooting webs at all, a bunch of different places, and he was trying to, he was really trying to stitch it together, which I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I liked Zendaya as Michelle. What were you going to say? Something else? Oh, I was just going to say the scientist in me and the engineer in me. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a couple of times was like, uh, get the fuck out of here. Yeah, I know. Well, come but on. um, yeah, you just have to, you just have to let it go. Uh, I liked Zendaya. I liked her. I liked her per- her performance and her presentation as Michelle or MJ. I liked I liked her um, anti anti love interest vibe. Yeah. So you guys are complete losers, right? When they're like, "Has she worn that top with that skirt before?" And <laughs> yeah. The, so the other thing I, that's the other thing I was going to say was the three sequences I really enjoyed in his superheroism were the final scene with the aircraft, the, the whole thing at the Lincoln Memorial, the, the way that they used verticality, but also isolated him. 
was very just it was a very deliberate choice to have that happening in its structure that was tall but away from everything else because the whole image of him is flying through this you know working his way through manhattan shooting webs at buildings and just constantly having something and the old mm-hmm. gag of the 60s cartoon was you shoot webs into the sky right yeah <laughs> psychedelic webs web slinging and in here it was like he was out there in the middle of nowhere which is what i thought was really neat and then yeah. uh, and then lastly i just loved 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 the ferris bueller run of course yeah. it was straight out of ferris bueller and it was so and it was as it was like it would double down on what was funny about the Ferris Bueller when he did it, right? Because you, yep. you're, seeing the, you're seeing it being replicated, but even worse, right? Yeah, I thought that was great. Yep. Uh, there's an actress that was one of, the, one of the girls that he was around in his class, an Asian girl named Tiffany Espenson. And there's a lot of rumors that she will play Silk in a future film. Yeah, oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, oh, and there's one other thing I, I realized when I was watching it. I had read going into it that um, John Francis Daly was one of the uh, screenwriters, and, and he's been writing a lot of stuff. He's responsible, actually, for a fair a fair number of things that we've enjoyed and maybe didn't realize it was him. I don't know. Freaks and Geeks, Horrible Bosses. Yep. So here we have him writing a movie, and then Martin stars in it. I thought that was right. Yeah. Right? So, anyway, that was a thing that happened. Yeah. So uh, before we close out this, uh, how perfect was it that the Ramones were in the soundtrack? I thought the soundtrack in this was just absolutely brilliant. Soup to nuts. Like even the prom scene, I think they sold something from 16 Candles. It was, just, it was absolutely brilliant. Um, to, me, to me, the Ramones thing was like, uh, it was the level of enjoyment that in, uh, in Lebowski when they bring the ferret in and he misidentifies it as a marmot. Yeah. Nice marmot. They used the Ramones, but they played Blitzkrieg Pop instead of Spider-Man. <laughs> like, yes. Hilarious to me. <laughs> anyway. But the, uh, the, other, the other thing that really came through is the, um, the love for New York. Yes, right? for sure. And, and like and, the, the boroughs, right? Like it, was, yeah. it wasn't just Manhattan obsession. No, it was Brooklyn. Yeah. I like that. Right? And, it, and it, it came down to... Uh, well, even the, the Steve Rogers dialogue, right? With uh, where are you from? Like Queens and well, I'm from the Bronx and uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're doing a lot to really ground it in the East coast, whichever they appreciate with the yeah. exception of when he puts a, a, a mansion on the cliff and gets it blown up. But yeah. Okay. Well, but, I mean, Otherwise the, 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 the perfect metaphor here between uh, Captain America and Iron Man is Tupac and Biggie. Yes. Uh, that's, you know, it's obvious. Obviously, it's too obvious. <laughs> obvious. Uh, so I, I watched. I watched um, about seventy-five percent or so, sixty nah, percent of a really unpleasant remake, Total Recall, two thousand twelve. Oh, and and you watch this thing, and you see the, the seeds of how they may have been able to pull this off, but didn't, and and just all the mistakes they made and every casting choice that was wrong, and how they used ca- uh, actors that are actually really great and ruined them, and how they took technology and tricks about their design of that world and destroyed it. And there was all this stuff about it that would feel familiar, and then I'd realize I'm remembering the original movie and it did it better. Or I would look at a character or a, an actor and be like, well, okay, I think I like them. I should like them. But... At the same time, I'm hating them because this movie is making me hate everybody that's in it. 
Um, um, I didn't realize until now it was, uh, his name is Bokeem Woodbine. And he is, he was the, he was the second shocker in this movie. And then he was the friend in Total Recall. Hey, I'm your buddy. You know, yeah. Whatever. Um, now thinking back on where I knew him from, now I'm even more irritated at Total Recall. <laughs> even well, I mean, the Total Recall, it just proved to me that Arnold Schwarzenegger is a better actor than Colin Farrell. And holy shit, Hannibal Buress is in this movie. Yeah. And it's like they painted themselves and convinced themselves to make a really bad movie. Because if you set out to make a, a dog's lunch event, I don't think you could succeed as well as they did. <laughs> no, no, but yes, but I mean, Hannibal Buress is in Spider Man. I, I keep forgetting that he was in it. And he was great. So is the point here is, is is the point you're trying to make is that everybody can do better the next time? No, my my point was a transition between thinking about everything that was wrong about Total Recall, and then thinking about everything that was right about Spider-Man: Homecoming. <laughs> Had Hannibal Buress, and, and the Total Recall would have benefited from Hannibal Buress. Two weeks, I'm telling you. Uh, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, good. It was a good. Movie. I enjoyed it. If yeah. Hannibal Buress had been the two weeks lady, that would have made Total Recall worth seeing. No. No? No. Total Recall is a, a, a total mess. Apparently, Principal Morita was the, the great-grandson or the grandson of one of the Howling Commandos. What do you think about that? Huh? Principal Morita in yes. Homecoming. Yes. His character is the grandson or great-grandson of one of the Howling Commandos. Huh. And so I thought that was a subtle enough nod that I appreciated it. What I was a little bit annoyed by was how the school was wallpapered by Starks and, you know, like every poster and every room, every building was named after another major Marvel character. And like, it was so heavy handed in that way, in that way. Yeah. yeah. Although I did really, really enjoy the Captain America, America PSZ video. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think this guy's a traitor now, but whatever, getting in the gym. Well, and also, but it was great because it felt like it had been, it was a dated film and he was in the Avengers one costume. So it was like, it was something had been made, you know, three or four years earlier in that. Story. Yeah, yeah. Which is, which is an accurate representation of the current infrastructure in the public school system. So, yeah. Yes. Well, 10, 10 years, 15 years late. Okay. But, but, so, but, 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 but so how great is it that Captain America still, even from World War II, where he was used initially just as a PR tool, mm -hmm. is now like another PR tool for physical fitness and the... Oh, yeah, I felt perfect. Yeah, it's just perfect. Right. So I guess what we could say is that we thought the movie was okay. Total Recall 2012? No. <laughs> <laughs> Homecoming. It was all right. It was okay. It was fun. Yeah, it was super fun. I, I will give it. A, I will give it a, a lot more than okay. Yeah, I know. I was kidding. So, yeah. what was your red tentacle moment? You think if you had to pick one, my favorite moment. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be your favorite moment, but what's a highlight moment for you? That you know, your red tentacle. Come on, man. Um, I, I'd have to say my red tentacle is seeing Tom Holland. Um which is this little British emo kid um, stepping into one of the biggest American roles in our comic book culture and knocking it out of the fucking park. And, and holy hell, how lucky for them to find him 
as someone yeah. who's so physical that he would do those stunts. All those yeah. videos before this where he was, where they were, well, the Instagrams where he was doing all his training for flips and stuff. and I was In his backyard on a trampoline, yeah. Making all the difference in the world and the believability of it versus just always relying on a stunt double. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so the, to me, to me, my red cynical is Tom Holland. All right, then. Yep. So mine was I, I, Ned. Mine, yeah. <laughs> mine, mine was Ned, Jacob Batalan. The... Uh, I got this little question. I'd love to find out that that scene in the hotel room where he does the backflip over the bed. If that if that was real or CGI, I thought I saw a making of the show. Didn't really do it, but I could be wrong. Like I'm sure he, I'm sure he had a, like a little launch assist, but still, yeah, sure. right? I mean, yeah, uh, yeah, that was amazing. What was yeah. your uh, if you had to choose a bad octopus? What was it? Oh, wow. Mine was wow. the uh, 357 types of web shooting battle control system in his gauntlets. I just didn't need any of that. Uh, um, wow. Uh, my least favorite moment. The inclusion of Tyne Daly. No, I actually love Tyne Daly. Cagney and Lacey, I love. Um, okay. Uh, wow. I'd have to say um, the the romance aspect of it. Um, His obsession thought, with her was not... Yeah. You never once think that she's going to last as his love interest. It didn't... And it also didn't have enough of... She... She's, I mean, she's, a, she's attractive enough. They had enough chemistry, but uh, Liz, I just didn't feel like you ever thought that she was the one he was supposed to be with. It right. Was so broadcast that it wasn't, and yet she didn't seem, she didn't seem far enough out of reach for some reason. I don't know. Well, it, she seemed like just a, a, an, uh, an obvious plot vehicle. Yeah, yeah. Right? And it was just something that they didn't want to fall in the trope of Mary Jane this early, Right. They want to take their time with that or Gwen, right. um, which I appreciate, but it was just, it's like everybody watching this that knows anything about Peter Parker knows that this is not going to last, right? That he does not end up with this, with this girl. And um, it just seemed, it, it, it seemed forced. That, that was the only thing. It was forced. I think you're right. Yeah. All right, then. So I guess that was our, Sweet, sweet review of Spider-Man Homecoming. Do you think they're going to make any more movies with this character? I think they will. <laughs> so how are we getting... So that's the big MacGuffin, though. Not the MacGuffin. That's the big... That's the big uh, uh, risk, is how do they now... How do they now parlay the goodwill of both Civil War and this movie and then make him make sense in something on the scale of Infinity War? We'll have to see, but I think um, I, I I have a feeling that they'll be able to pull it off, right? Because the Infinity War with Ant Man and Spider Man playing such a central role in it, in the books, right? At least um, yeah. I think uh, I think they're in a good position to to execute on that. They said that be, some, I'm really some of the stuff they've said is that it's going to be like an inverse heist movie, like he's going to be going around snatching the gems. Um, which is an interesting idea from a narrative standpoint because it, it'll be cool to watch the Avengers being on the defense. But they're the mm-hmm. establishment that someone is 
is undermining as opposed to being them being some uh, a group fighting a, some big larger because you know Thanos is such a bigger larger than life mega villain the idea that it would be that he and his his uh, his order his little black order or whatever they're called would be uh, you know sneaking in and basically doing ambush attacks to get the gems is a really interesting construct I, I'm really looking forward to that yeah yeah so you could see you could see a, a, a scenario where characters like Spider Man and Ant Man will be interesting if they are in that, like I'm hoping that they will be used in that, in that uh, voice of the audience kind of way. Like they're going to be like, yeah. what? This is crazy. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and rocket raccoon. Yeah. Right. Sure. Right. So rockets, a kleptomaniac. Spider-Man's been stealing stuff with webs. Ant-Man can drink anywhere in the perfect thief. And he is a thief in the jail because he was a thief. Um, there, there's a lot of fun twists you can put on that. Uh, this may or may not be in Thor. Don't tell me if it is, but I read that uh, Hulk and Rocket Raccoon are, are going to be a common pairing in the uh, in either Infinity War or Avengers Four. So that sounds cool. I like that. I have, I have no comment. Yeah. Okay. And then uh, also the other thing I was going to ask you before we wrap it up, dude, is uh, we have another segment that we like to call planned plundering usually when we get to it we've had too much to drink and it's like but it's planned plundering and it's where uh, we talk about you know what we're into what we're what we're looking forward to what we're currently consuming so what do you got i mean what was my favorite uh, new thing yeah like what are you <laughs> looking forward to or what are you currently consuming or what i am really looking forward to the expanse coming back oh jeez we need to get into that. <laughs> yeah, I'm just, I'm just going to leave it there. Let's not have a conversation. We'll just go on and on and on. But I just, I just, I just can't wait to see where they take it. I'm living and breathing that, that stuff. I'm halfway through book six right now, and I've been reading it uh, religiously on my trip So, and, and, and in the weeks leading up to it. So it's just yeah. I've been doing nothing but reading Expanse for about three months. So, <laughs> Yeah, that, 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 I, I did the binge read over like yeah. two months and just went through everything. Yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, okay. And anything you're looking forward to watching other than Expanse or, uh, Justice League, maybe? I'm, I'm really, well, I'm going to go see Justice League just for penance. Um, <laughs> that will be my lint, uh, sacrifice. The, um, <laughs> uh, the, um, what I'm really looking forward to is a Black Panther. Mm. To me, that, that, that is a big question mark on how they're going to pull it off and, and how well it will be executed. And, um, I'm really looking forward to seeing how they take it uh, i think it'll be very interesting and a great opportunity to make a, a bold stand around a character that um historically has just been underrepresented and i just can't wait to see what they do did you say he was underrepresented um yeah, yeah but, but in the pantheon of no, the I, know, I know what you meant but so yeah. uh you we started out this conversation talking about how the 24-hour news cycle and the sort of hyper-saturation of exponential news has made it to where you don't remember yesterday, today, but it was a big deal, right? Because it's like every time you wake up and you open your phone, it's like another 10 things. But it was only a few weeks ago that the, the only thing I could think about was how incredible that Black Panther trailer was. And then the previous one with Run the Jewels as the soundtrack on the trailer. Yeah. Uh, I read a, a great little thing where he, uh, Chadwick uh, Boseman was talking about his deliberate choice um, on accent. And it was profound. Oh, he, it, was, yeah, no. it, was, yeah. it was pretty interesting. His, his idea that 
because he was asked why he was not using a more of a European educated accent if he's playing the role of a highly educated uh, African leader. And his point, his point was very simple, but it was so obvious. It kind of slapped me in the face. He's like, Wakanda, I wasn't sent from Wakanda to be educated in the West and then brought it back like the, the colonial story. Wakanda was its own thing. It is the most advanced culture on the planet. I wouldn't be, I wouldn't have a European voice. That's, that's white supremacy talking. And once I got past the sort of the slap in your face aspect of that rhetoric, which I understood, you think about it, it's a really good point. The idea that by, by virtue of how history works, that the most highly educated people in, in third world countries were people who came over and were educated in the West and then brought that back to their home countries has a, de- a default expectation that the West was superior. And his, and his point very simply was, no, <laughs> it, we're way ahead of you. I thought that was fantastic. Yeah, and, 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 it, and it kind of flies in the face of the whole, um, it's a wake-up call and a very good one about how comic books can elevate and challenge your thinking about how the world should be. I agree. And, yeah. and, uh, and it also in civil war, right? The who talks in front of the UN, nobody else except for the King of Wakanda. Right. And you know, it's not the president of the United States, not the, the premier of the EU. It's nobody else. It's the head dude from Wakanda. And I just love that play on it because it's, um, you know, you hear Africa and the initial response is you think colonial empire. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, like war, war, warring tribes, which you get plenty right. of in this movie, but not in the way that we're used to seeing it. Right. So I, I just can't wait for that movie. I just uh, I hope they really execute well on it because I think it's a great opportunity to show. There's a lot of why, why comic books are so great to begin with. There's a lot of uh, commentary about how there's a there's a bit of a phase one problem seeming in the in the trailer, like we're going to get the whole grow the character and then the character fights a version of themselves and it doesn't have enough there there but i have and i agree i was a little bit disappointed to see that uh michael b jordan seems to don another black panther costume and it's not even like a white panther it's like it's it's the same and they're fighting but that's it everything else i'm seeing about his character with all of the tribal tattoos and everything looks amazing and his stagger his like his, his swaggery sort of attitude that he's got in his in his demeanor and then the man and, and I've been waiting forever to see the manifest claw and Andy Circus, the way they've rationalized his sonic weapon and the way he looks and everything. I can't believe how well it's like well beyond anything I was imagining they would be able to pull off in this movie. Right. It, I, I just, I hope it doesn't turn into a coming to Wakanda thing. Right. And yeah. uh, I saw that video. <laughs> yeah. And the, uh, I just, it's a great opportunity to, redefine a lot of different conversations, expectations, and I just hope they pull it off. That's all. Yeah. I'm going to go watch Thor. What do you think of that? I think, I think that is the best idea you've had in a long while. Nine. Blackfish, snake scale.